This is the multi-voice text-to-speech podfic reading of Harry Potter and the Two-Way Mirror by the Hole of the Moon, composed by Burning Aurora. Chapter 1 Harry, Dad got the tickets. Ireland versus Bulgaria, you have to come. Is Sirius getting you tickets? Only as soon as you know if you're coming. Ron. Ron, Sirius got tickets. Sirius, Remus, and I are coming to the borough the night before the cup to see you all and travel there together. See you so soon. Harry. All right, I'm ready. Let's have it out. Sirius Black, godfather of Harry Potter and true love of Remus Lupin, said while sitting cross-legged at the end of he and Remus's bed, facing the other man who was leaning against the headboard, his own long lithe legs stretched out and crossed at the ankle. I wouldn't call it having it out, Remus corrected dryly. I would call it taking proper precautions and planning for contingencies. Who I love when you talk dirty. I've something really dirty in mind if we get this planning session done in under ten minutes. Ah, bribery. I'm in. I thought so, Remus smiled. All right, so first, the gift basket is prepped and ready for the Weasleys. Sorted. Sirius said, pointing to the wicker basket sitting atop his trunk with various offerings. Wine for Molly and Arthur, boxes of shamrock-shaped and red and black-colored assorted biscuits and popcorn for snacks representing the two teams, and spare spectator glasses for anyone who needed them to watch the cup. And what was our agreement for Harry during the cup? Sirius rolled his eyes but responded. He can wander around the campgrounds before the match with his friends as long as he carries the two-way mirror but no letting him out of our sight after the game, with all the rowdiness and whatnot. Remus smiled. Just so, and if anyone gives him, or you, trouble. Here, Remus Lupin was referring to Harry Potter and Sirius Black's respective fame. Harry's fame, of course, had to do with his being the only person alive to ever survive being hit directly with the killing curse, which also happened to be cast by the most notorious and vile dark wizard of the present age. Sirius's fame, of course, had to do with first of all being the heir to the House of Black, the most ancient pure-blood family in Britain, then being sorted into Gryffindor, denouncing his family and joining in the wizarding war against said dark wizard, and second of all, being thought by the whole of the British wizarding world to have betrayed his best friends and godson to said dark wizard, being sentenced to Azkaban, only to escape twelve years later, go on the run with a nationwide manhunt, and then be exonerated when Peter Pettigrew was found alive and to have been the traitor. Sirius's model good looks and rebel persona were also a significant factor. I'll distract them, you'll take Harry, and then I'll shake them off. Sirius answered Remus, and there was a slight burning to his eyes that conveyed his own very sincere passion on this point. And last but not least, if anyone gives me trouble, Remus asked. Here, Remus Lupin was referring to the fact that the current staff and student body, and most likely their families, of Hogwarts had all come to be aware of his being a werewolf, and the wizarding world, on the whole, had a substantially prejudicial view of werewolves, who were considered dark creatures and unfit for intermingling with wizard society. Sirius's eyes burned a little deeper. We don't engage, he said, but his voice was barely above a growl. Now, this was a representation of one very noticeable difference between Sirius and Remus. Sirius was all headstrong and daring confrontation, 
while Remus was more for using a mild dry tongue and presenting a benign front. But he held with the saying of rising above only when he felt that a confrontation was not worth it, and in this case, he did not find any encounter of prejudice toward himself being a werewolf to being worth a scene or worse, was serious, a brawl. It would only bring further unwanted attention, and would do nothing to change any witch or wizard's mind about werewolves. Remus smiled warmly at Sirius. Full marks. Sirius growled and crawled forward on the blanket, and Remus's pulse fluttered as lightness and warmth flooded his body. Sirius straddled his knees on either side of Remus's hips and used one hand to lift a few strands of Remus's brown hair, streaked with gray, off his forehead. Sirius's own curly black hair framed his beautiful face, setting off his alabaster skin. Now, what was it you had in mind, Mooney? Sirius's voice rumbled in his chest. Remus leaned his head forward so his lips ran along Sirius's temple, the bone beneath so sharp, the skin so smooth. Sirius shivered. Well, I thought, if you were ready, we could. I'm ready. Sirius said, cutting him off by locking his lips on Remus's and moving his hands to Remus's shoulders to pull him away from the headboard. Remus smiled into Sirius's lips, moving now with Sirius as they kissed, to lay them onto their sides as they kicked off their pajama bottoms. Sirius took Remus into his hand and Remus felt himself fully hardened, his body becoming a live wire, and he was swimming in Sirius's scent. Without breaking their lips and without looking, Remus reached a long arm to his nightstand and grabbed his wand, casting the spell wordlessly. Sirius felt his body loosen deliciously, and the ache grew with his readiness. Remus's strong arms flipped Sirius onto his other side, moving his long limber body behind him, and Sirius gasped at his slight entry, and then pleaded for more. Remus pushed in deeper, and Sirius was gasping, the ache of pleasure and want consuming him and Remus was panting in his ear. All right, tell me if it's too much. Yes, yes. Sirius was saying breathlessly, and he felt like he would die from the pleasure and the desire. I want you. I need you. And Remus filled him completely, and Sirius's eyes rolled back in his head and Remus was holding him so tightly, so close, they were as close and connected as their two bodies could be, and Sirius had dreamed of it for so long. They came into a bliss that slowly retreated into a warmth like a fire's embers, and Remus cast a cleaning charm before returning to his tight hold on Sirius. Sirius felt the strength of Remus's hold, Remus's heartbeat against his own, and was reminded of what he already knew, what he always knew with Remus. He was loved, and he was safe. Remus held Sirius to him, taking Sirius's fingers into his own and interlacing their fingers. All right. Remus asked him again. I feel on top of the world, Mooney. Sirius told him. I love you. He said, moving his head to find Remus's lips and giving him a sleepy and tender kiss. I love you, Pads. Remus replied as Sirius lay his head back onto the pillows, and the two men did not move from their position against one another until Remus's alarm clock woke them the following morning. Remus locked the front door to Hope's cottage and waved his wand to cast one more ward before turning to where Sirius and Harry waited in the front garden. Harry had his trunk, his firebolt, and Hedwig in her cage. After the World Cup they would be staying briefly at the burrow again before Harry boarded the Hogwarts Express. 
Sirius had his trunk and the gift basket for the Weasleys. Remus picked up his own trunk and walked towards them. Remus and Sirius would not be returning to the cottage until the next summer. They had already informed Harry a few days prior that they would be moving to Hogsmeade for Harry's fourth year to be closer to Hogwarts. But there was still the business of sorting out where Sirius and Remus would exactly be living in the only entirely wizarding village left in Britain. That, Remus and Sirius decided, was an after Harry was on the Hogwarts Express problem. Ready for your first side along operation. Sirius asked his godson with a wicked grin. Harry smiled a little sheepishly back at him and shifted on his feet. It's just like taking a somersault on your firebolt. Sirius told him smartly. If you feel a little nauseous afterward, that's normal, but it'll pass just as quick. Harry nodded. Okay. Remus gave his mother's cottage one last parting glance as they walked to the edge of the boundary. His mother had loved him entirely. But the bite when he was a young boy changed the way she looked at him, and the cottage had seemed to have absorbed guilt into its foundations. His father, Lyle, had been older than Hope by ten years, and Remus's condition aged him further, and he never seemed to shake his own role in Remus's attack. He left the family cowardly when Remus was in his second year of Hogwarts, and while it did seem easier to breathe in the house, and for Remus and his mother to share smiles and laughter— she had lost the last of her spark. She passed away a few months after James and Lily's wedding, and the cottage fell to Remus. But at that time, Remus and Sirius were sharing a flat in Muggle London, and fighting in the Wizarding War, and it wasn't until after October 31, 1981 that Remus moved back into his boyhood home. Guilt now laced with pain, and the house seemed to haunt Remus, but he was already haunted, and he had nowhere else to go. But moving back into Hope's cottage was serious return to him and Harry in tow, Remus had never for a moment felt the weight of the past within its walls. All that remained of the darkness was the cellar. But besides that, that summer the house felt like it had finally been freed of its burdens, of its past. That toast that first night should have included Hope's cottage itself, Remus thought, free at last to be what it was always meant to be. Harry held Sirius's hand and they disapparated with a pop. Remus followed a second after. They landed on the overgrown grassy front lawn of the burrow, in Ottery St. Catchpole, to the loud sound of the door swinging open and a tumult of, Harry's here, and, Blimey, Sirius Black, on our front lawn. The Weasleys ran out to greet them, and Sirius presented Arthur the gift basket, while Molly took Harry's trunk from him with a fuss and then Sirius and Remus shook hands all around again. Hi, Professor Lupin. Hermione blushed up at Remus as he stepped towards the burrow, near the back of the crowd. Remus smiled down at her. Hi, Hermione, and please, call me Remus. Or Lupin, if you prefer. He wondered how many times he would have to remind her before she finally relented. They clambered into the burrow and Molly told Harry he'd be rooming with Ron and Ron led Harry up the stairs toward his room below the attic, taking Harry's trunk gallantly from his mother, and though Harry offered to take it back, the freckly red-haired teenage boy graciously refused. And Sirius and Remus, would you mind sharing? Fred and George had to move into Charlie's old room because— And here Molly shot a glare at the twins. Something exploded, how it did without underage magic, I'm sure I don't know. 
but you can use Bill's old room and we've a spare cot set up in there. Will that be all right? Remus felt a little guilty at Molly's unsure and slightly nervous expression, but also overwhelmingly grateful at the twins for their escapades. Since Sirius's return to him, they'd never spent a night separated, except for that full moon Remus spent in the cellar, but he had not been in his mind of course for most of that time, and Remus had been dreading the idea of a wall between him and Sirius. He knew Sirius had two, although there was nothing to be done if Molly had offered them two rooms. Remus had just been outed as a werewolf and Sirius was still being reintroduced to wizarding society, adding their relationship on top of that was something they didn't think they were ready for. So, it was a relief for the excuse to share room. Of course, Molly, Remus assured her. It's not a problem at all. Sirius, busy talking with the twins trailing behind him, followed Remus and Molly up the stairs and into Bill's room. Sirius and Remus deposited their trunks and went back down the stairs quickly. Remus went into the kitchen with Molly, helping her prepare dinner, while Sirius went out into the back garden to help Arthur set up the outdoor dining table. In short time, as the cloudless sky was turning deep blue, Molly called down the kids from up the burrow's stairs with an enchanting carrying holler spell, and the stampede of footsteps made Remus smile. This time, Percy Weasley appeared from his bedroom to join the guests, as Molly had told Remus he'd been working busily on a report for his boss, Barty Crouch Sr. Padfoot, George said, pulling back Sirius's chair for him as Sirius prepared to take his seat with the three other adults at the end of the table. Sirius gave a great bow as he sat. Mooney, Fred said, doing the exact same to Remus, who was taking the last seat at the adult's end of the table, beside Sirius and across from Molly with Arthur across from Sirius. Remus winked at Fred and bowed his head at him before taking his seat. Molly was watching the twins as the two men sat, and sitting across from Remus, she gave Remus and Sirius a look that clearly said, don't give them any more ideas. Remus gave her a sage look that clearly said, come now, Molly, I'm a grown man now and Harry's guardian, and once more. I was their professor last year and gave them numerous detentions. They will have to be of age until I give them any more ideas. Sirius gave Molly a cheeky smile and a wink that said, No promises. They all tucked into a wonderful dinner of roast chicken and ham, potatoes, and salad, and the adults opened one of the wine bottles brought by Sirius. Remus and Sirius both kept glancing sidelong at Harry every few minutes, watching him talk animatedly with Hermione. Ron, Ginny, and the twins. Percy, at the far end of the table, was taking bites of his meal between scribbling on a piece of parchment, but Molly was too busy chatting to Remus and Sirius about the upcoming school year to notice. And have you found a place in Hogsmeade, Sirius? Molly asked, as Remus's letter a few days prior had informed her of Sirius's plans to move there during the school terms to be close to Harry. His letter had used the phrase. Sirius will be looking for a place in Hogsmeade, which carefully omitted himself without directly saying that Sirius would be moving alone. Remus had liked to say the news of his accompanying Sirius in person to smooth it over for her perception, but he wasn't ready yet for that conversation. Not yet, Sirius answered, distracted by something George was showing him under the table that Remus pretended not to notice was some kind of glowing candy wrapper. He had an idea, suddenly of how and what may have exploded in the twins' room. 
He's been a bit occupied with reading up on the Irish and Bulgarian players, Remus said with a wry smile, changing the topic smoothly. What did y'all think of Crum? Ron, seated on the other side of George, couldn't seem to help but to ask Sirius. Mighty good seeker, he'll be giving the Irish the run for their money, Sirius asserted. You won't be rooting for Bulgaria, will you? Fred asked him. Sirius's eyes twinkled with jest. I've hedged a few bets, he said, looking mischievously at Remus, who just smiled mildly back at him and took a bite of salad. Oh, you've a betting pool, George said, massive grin spreading on his face. All right, what's the in price? Molly's eyes had narrowed but Remus quickly assuaged her worried by answering her son. No price, Remus said, strictly betting on chores and pride. This, Remus and Sirius knew, was not exactly true and it was why Sirius pinched his thigh lightly under the table. Chores, per se, was not exactly the word Sirius would have used to describe what they were betting on, but it was the quickest and easiest white lie Remus could think of that would make sense. I'll bet on pride, Fred said eagerly. Shame that, George said with a tisk of his tongue, seeing as you've got so little to begin with. Dinner ended with nightfall and the kids stomped up the stairs to their various rooms, with Fred and George last to go, after drawing up their own bets after Sirius and Remus shared theirs with them, carefully avoiding mentioning any of the chores they were betting on. The adults finished the dregs of the wine bottle by the fireplace and Arthur explained to Remus and Sirius how they'd be meeting Amos Diggory and his son Cedric, the current Hufflepuff Quidditch captain at Stoatshed Hill the next morning to Port Key to the World Cup. Then Molly insisted the men get their proper rest before the big day tomorrow. You'll all have to enjoy yourselves and keep an eye out for trouble, you need your rest, she told them. Remus and Sirius climbed the stairs and went into their room, and Sirius transfigured Bill's bed to be slightly larger to fit their two bodies, and Remus's long legs. Remus slid into bed, arms wrapped around Sirius and thought that what he was most excited for the next day was not watching the game or experiencing the bustling merriment of the campgrounds, or even receiving his rewards if he won any of his bets with Sirius about the match. What he was most excited for would be seeing the looks on Sirius's and Harry's faces as they watched the 1994 Quidditch World Cup. Chapter 2 Sirius Black was more of an early bird than Remus Lupin and even though they had to wake up that morning before dawn, he was alert long before their alarm went off. For many years, Sirius had loved one particular sight, one particular daily occurrence, which had now been returned to him since that fateful night when he had been reunited with Remus and Harry. It was watching a sleeping face, a pair of closed eyelids the color of lavender, the eyelashes a chocolate brown, and slack peach lips. It was listening to soft breathing, light as a songbird's wings. And then it became watching those eyes, always they had been perceptive beyond their years, intelligent and watchful and sincere, open and knowing. It was seeing those lips smile gently at him, seeking his own with the fresh joy of morning to say, Oh, there you are, I'd been asleep, and I missed you even then. Watching his moony wake up was something serious did not have words to describe. It was a feeling in his chest like his heart itself was a flower blooming to meet the sun. Big day, Remus murmured after retreating from he and Sirius's ritual morning kiss. Sirius beamed at him, 
his excitement for the day now pumping him with the same energy as flying his motorbike once had despite the fact that the sun was hours from rising. Come on then. Remus and Sirius dressed in their usual clothes, Sirius in his slim-fit jeans, a graphic t-shirt, black leather jacket and matching black leather combat boots, and Remus in fawn-colored corduroy trousers, an olive-green jumper with suede chocolate-brown chukka boots. Sirius grabbed his black leather travel bag with he and Remus's things for the cup. Remus, Sirius's and Harry's cup tickets, spare clothes, more than a few galleons for spending, as well as two flasks of fire whiskey, and then they headed down to the kitchen. Sirius was bounding down the stairs with all the enthusiasm the day warranted while Remus followed more sedately and thinking predominantly about tea. They came down to the kitchen to find Arthur and Molly, and to Remus's joy, the teapot and two empty teacups were waiting on the table for he and Sirius. Sleep well, Molly said from the kitchen stove where she was stirring a pot of porridge. The cot do you write, Remus? Remus managed to hide his blush behind his teacup and answered her with an earnest smile that had everything to do with he and Sirius being able to share a room together while at the burrow. It was excellent, Molly. Thank you. You've a bit of time for tea and quiet before we wake the kids, Arthur told Remus and Sirius. He was seated at the head of the table, shuffling through his sheaf of large parchment tickets. But just then there was the sound of approximately twelve pairs of footsteps pounding down the stairs accompanied by a shout of, Can you stop that thundering? from Percy Weasley. All of the adults chuckled as the bouncing figures of Fred, George, Ron, and Harry appeared in the kitchen, accompanied by the more subdued but still animated faces of Hermione and Ginny. Molly put the huge pot of porridge on the table, waving her wand to summon bowls, spoons, sugar, and jam. Eat up, you need your strength for the walk to the port key, Molly told the kids as they congregated at the table. Harry, his eyes bright and smiling between stifled yawns, sat himself next to Sirius, who began talking to him excitedly about the details of taking a port key as Remus drank two cups of tea faster than Harry had prepared his porridge. George, Mrs. Weasley suddenly shouted, making Remus jump and spill a few drops of his third cup of tea on the table. What? George asked innocently and fooling absolutely no one. What is that in your pocket? Nothing. Don't you lie to me, Molly said, pointing her wand. Accio. Shining small objects flew out of George's pocket, which he attempted to grab desperately as they shot into Molly's outstretched hand. We told you to destroy them, Molly said angrily. We told you to get rid of the lot. Empty your pockets, go on both of you. Sirius was looking with an eyebrow raised at Fred and George as what looked like brightly colored candies flew out of the twins' clothes and they glumly took their seats. While Molly was distracted tossing the goods into the rubbish bin, Sirius leaned around Harry to Fred and whispered, Tell me all about that later, will you? Fred grinned at him and nodded eagerly. Soon they were ready to depart, and Molly kissed Arthur on the cheek and hugged each of the kids as well as Remus and Sirius. Have a lovely time and behave yourselves, she told them as they all departed the kitchen, stepping out the door into the chilly pre-dawn. The moon was still out, a waxing gibbous, in the black sky but a faint tinge of deep blue light which hinted to the building sunrise guided the group as they walked down the lane toward the largest hill beyond the village. 
The crisp air, long walk and early hour eventually tamed the hyper spirits of the kids and they fell into companionable silence. At the back of the group, Remus, who ran hot due to his lycanthropy, reached out his hand to Sirius, who walked beside him, to warm Sirius's freezing fingers. They reached Stoatshed Hill and began to climb, the kids becoming breathless and staggering around hidden rabbit holes and clumps of grass. Remus let go of Sirius's hand to move forward and help guide Harry and Hermione, his advanced eyesight in the dark allowing him to point out any precarious footsteps. Harry accepted the help gratefully. His legs were shaking a bit with strain of the uphill effort and his breath was sharp in his chest, and Hermione blushed at Remus's help, clutching a stitch in her side. Phew! Arthur panted as they finally reached the crest of the hill, taking off his misty glasses and wiping them on his sweater. We've made good time, we've got ten minutes, just need to find the port key. Remus looked around in the dark and saw two tall figures silhouetted against the still starlight sky on the other side of the hilltop. They must be the diggeries Arthur had informed them about. Over there. Remus pointed and said loudly to the group which had begun spreading out to search, save for Sirius, who had been waiting for Remus's sharp eye to point the port key out for everyone. Ah, excellent Remus. Arthur exclaimed, smiling and he strode off to meet Amos and Cedric Diggory as the rest of the group followed, Remus and Sirius in the back once more. Arthur greeted a ruddy-faced wizard with a brown beard who was holding an old boot in one hand. This is Amos Diggory, everyone, Arthur said. He works for the department for... Arthur suddenly stammered. He was shaking Amos's hand but suddenly seemed to freeze. After an uncomfortable moment which caused Amos's brow to frill, Arthur managed to finish. The regulation and control of magical creatures. Remus's heart stopped beating. Apparently, Arthur had completely forgotten Amos's department, and so had not thought to warn Remus. Beside him, Sirius stiffened. Um. Arthur straightened and composed himself. And I think you all know his son, Cedric. Remus did know Cedric, of course. He had been a brilliant sixth-year student when Remus had been teaching defense against the dark arts at Hogwarts the year prior. He was the captain and seeker of the Hufflepuff Quidditch team, and Remus remembered that he had seen the boy be the first to stand at the Hufflepuff table that dinner in the Great Hall when his condition had become known to Hogwarts. Hi, Cedric said, looking around at them all and then resting his gaze on the two men standing behind the group of kids. Professor Lupin, is that you? He exclaimed, his handsome face spreading into a warm smile as he stepped forward and extended his hand to Remus. Remus's heart had managed to find a steady rhythm again, his momentary sense of dread replaced with a mix of careful composure and genuine pleasure at seeing one of his favorite students again. Nice to see you again, Cedric. Just Remus now, as I'm no longer your professor. Shame that, Cedric said, shaking Remus's hand. But brilliant that you're coming to the cup. Cedric glanced back toward his father, who was staring at the exchange with eyes wide. Amos, with his role in the department for the regulation and control of magical creatures, had been made aware the next day after the news of a Hogwarts professor being a werewolf had broken at the school. Like most witch and wizard parents, he had been shocked, as well as affronted that Dumbledore had kept the appointment a secret. Amos had sought out the werewolf registry, a decrepit office in a hidden corner of his department floor, 
and riffled through the rusty metal cabinets until he found the file he was looking for. Remus John Lupin, Half-Blood Werewolf. Birthdate, March 10, 1960. Mother, Hope Jenkins Lupin, Muggle, Deceased, Father, Lyle John Lupin, Wizard, Previously Employed at the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures in the Werewolf Registry, Deceased. Bitten by Fenrir Greyback on March 5, 1965. Only werewolf in history to attend Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, sorted into Gryffindor, made prefect in his fifth year. Member of the Order of the Phoenix and fought in the Wizarding War against the Dark Lord's forces. Amos had pulled out the files on Fenrir Greyback and Lyle Lupin and realized how a five-year-old boy had been bitten by the most notorious werewolf of the present age. When Amos's only son returned to him from Hogwarts that summer, Amos had asked him about his former dad at Professor, and Cedric jumped to his professor's defense. Amos had left any shred of his last remaining reticence about the werewolf Dumbledore had employed at Hogwarts behind at the dinner table that day. Now, he stepped forward and shook hands for the first time in his life with a werewolf. It is an honor to finally meet you, Remus. Remus, taken aback a bit at this, smiled a bit shyly. Nice to meet you as well, Amos. Amos Diggory then turned to Sirius Black and looked both awed and befuddled. Ah, Mr. Black, an honor as well, he said, shaking Sirius's hand in turn. Pleasure, Amos. Sirius replied grinning so hugely it seemed to make Amos even a bit more stunned. He hadn't realized that he had just won Sirius's wholehearted approval. Amos turned a bit dizzily back to the group. Like the rest of the British wizarding world, he had read in the prophet that Sirius's exoneration meant that he would be taking over guardianship of his godson. So that must mean... Amos's eyes found Sirius's godson standing by Ron and Hermione. Merlin's beard. He breathed. Harry Potter. Harry, used to the way people stared at him when they met him, their eyes going immediately to the lightning bolt scar on his forehead, still fidgeted uncomfortably. Sirius moved forward quickly to stand beside Harry as Amos was saying, Sid's talked about you too, of course. Told us all about playing you last year. I said to him, I said, said that'll be something to tell your grandchildren that will, you beat Harry Potter. Sirius frowned at that. Not sure if he should be more annoyed at Amos's gawking at Harry or at his mentioning that his son beat Sirius's godson at Quidditch. Fred and George scowled, having never quite forgiven Cedric for beating Gryffindor in their first Quidditch match last year. Remus himself remembered how exactly Hufflepuff had come to win that match. It was how he had come to teach Harry the Patronus charm. Harry had stayed silent, and Remus was preparing to speak to change the conversation topic for all of their sakes in case Sirius said something a bit too harsh, and so that Harry wouldn't have to keep thinking about that match again, when Cedric Diggory beat him to it. Harry fell off his broom, Dad. Cedric muttered, looking embarrassed. I told you, it was an accident. Yes, but you didn't fall off, did you? Amos roared, genially oblivious. Always modest, I said, always the gentleman, but the best man won, I'm sure Harry'd say the same, wouldn't you? One falls off his broom, one stays on, you don't need to be a genius to tell which one's the better flyer. Sirius's approval of Amos Diggory was rapidly evaporating. His eyes had narrowed dangerously. His stance slightly in front of Harry was increasingly becoming opposing, and Remus, with his advanced hearing, could make out the low growl building in his throat. 
The plan of using Sirius as a distraction if anyone gave too much notice to Harry was simply not going to work in this case. Are we waiting for anyone else? Remus asked quickly. No, the Lovegoods are already there and the Fawcett's couldn't get tickets. Arthur answered just as rapidly. It's just a minute off, we'd better get ready. As the group converged in a tight circle on the port key, Remus moved to stand behind Sirius and Harry, putting one hand on the small of Sirius's back to say, Steady on. He reached his other arm around Harry's shoulder to touch the port key, his hand atop Sirius's on the boot. Three, two, one, Arthur said, one eye on his watch. And they were all tugged through space by the port key's magic to the outside of the campground of the 1994 Quidditch World Cup. They landed on a deserted Misty Moor, the kids staggering and some falling onto their backs. Sirius landed with casual grace and Remus with the steadiness he possessed between moons, while Arthur stumbled a bit. With everyone righted, they set off to a brisk walk. After a few minutes, the mist began to dissipate and the tops of hundreds of tents became visible in the distance. After registering with Mr. Roberts, an obliviated muggle who ran the campgrounds, they walked through the gates of the campgrounds and the diggers waved goodbye and went off to their own allotted plot, and the Weasleys, Hermione, Harry, Sirius, and Remus walked along the rows of tents. Some of the tents appeared on the outside to be normal muggle tents but enchanted on the inside, like the one they would all be using that night, while others showed magic outwardly. One in the distance was made of silk and looked like a miniature manor, complete with white peacocks tethered at the entrance. Another was three stories high with a smoking chimney. Another had a full front garden with flowers and a water fountain. At last they reached their designated spot at the back of the campgrounds and Arthur pulled out Perkins' enchanted muggle tent. It had to be set up without magic, so Remus and Hermione, being the two with the most muggle and camping experience, set up the poles. Sirius kept energetically trying to help so Remus gave him and the others the job of laying out the canvas and tarps. With the poles hammered in, they all together lifted the canvas and tarps, and the tent was pitched. Arthur and his kids went in eagerly first, then Hermione, and then Harry. Remus and Sirius held back, both watching Harry's face as he crawled into the tent. Harry's jaw dropped and his green eyes lit like emeralds as he took in the four-bedroom flat, complete with a bathroom and kitchen. Ron ushered Harry excitedly into the boys' room he'd be sharing with Ron and the twins, while Ginny and Hermione went into their girls' room. Remus stood by the table and admired the homey feel of the tent, the mismatched and worn furniture, the assortment of tartan, velvet, and old wood. Ah, Arthur said, returning from poking his head into the two other bedrooms. What did ya reckon, boys? Remus and I'll share. Sirius grinned excitedly not thinking twice. Here, however, there was no need to worry about appearances. It was the obvious setup. Arthur deposited his heavy backpack in the room on the right, loaded with clothes and supplies for the kids and their meals, and Sirius did the same in the room on the left with his travel bag. Remus turned his attention to the kitchen and noticed the dusty tea kettle. We'll need water, I'm afraid. There's a tap marked on this map the muggle gave us. Ron chimed up as he and the other kids were stepping back out of their rooms. It's on the other side of the field. Remus hid his inward sigh at the distance of the tap, and therefore, at the distance between now and a cup of tea, and smiled at Ron. 
Well, why don't you all go and get us some water? He asked, handing the tea kettle and a few pots to Ron, Harry, Hermione, Ginny, and the twins. And while you're doing that, Remus and I'll fetch us some wood for a fire. Sirius said, having returned from he and Remus's room. The kids, eager to explore the campgrounds, hurried to the tent flap entrance. Sirius caught Harry's shoulder on his way out and asked purposefully casually. Got the mirror? Yep, Harry said, using his free hand not carrying a pot to pull the two-way mirror a little out of his back pants pocket. Good lad. Sirius clapped him on the back. See you all back here soon. Remus and Sirius strolled through the campgrounds, pointing out the show-off tents and those that were the genuinely impressive to one another. The campground was waking with the morning sun now gaining in the sky, and witches and wizards did double-takes as they passed, murmurs trailing behind them as they walked. That is Sirius Black, that is. Da, Ma, did you see him? That means Harry Potter's bound to be here somewhere. Sirius seemed not to notice the attention or the whispered exclamations, and Remus hoped that Harry was remaining inconspicuous, surrounded as he was at the moment by the Weasleys and Hermione. They collected armfuls of firewood from the available stack and made their way back to the tent. Arthur was waiting for them, having cleared a patch of grass for the campfire, and Remus and Sirius stacked the logs into a pyramid shape as the kids arrived back talking excitedly about running into Seamus Finnegan and Oliver Wood. With the logs ready, Sirius slightly touched his fingers to Remus's wrist and inclined his head toward the fire. With a soft smile, Remus brought green flames alight in his palm, Fred, George, and Ginny, being the only young ones not to have witnessed this feat, stared in awe while Remus reached his hand into the heart of the wooden pyramid, and a green-tinged fire soon roared. Soon the group was eating sausages and eggs and drinking tea, sitting cross-legged on the grass in front of their tent. Sirius sat beside Harry and his friends while Remus hung back a bit. Their tent was in a thoroughfare of the campground so members of the ministry walked by regularly, waving and hurriedly giving greetings to Arthur and balking or tripping up a bit at the sight of Harry and Sirius, though none seemed able to get away from their duties to be able to linger. Throughout the afternoon, the kids would wander off for an hour or so to explore and return for drinks or snacks, before heading out again. A few ministry worker friends of Arthur seemed less busy as the game grew closer, with their final preparations done, and chatted with him while Sirius sat beside Remus. Barty crouched senior among them, looking exhausted and pale, but assuring Arthur he was just overworked from the cup. When any of the visitors noticed Sirius, he simply said hello politely and returned to talking to Remus, so they got the message and left him alone. As afternoon came, the noise of the campgrounds rose accordingly, and by dusk the orange and pink-tinged sky seemed to be pulsing with excitement. As night fell, magic erupted and sparks and trinket salesmen were running around the tents, selling luminous rosettes, hats with dancing leprechauns and shamrocks or roaring Bulgarian lions flags that played national anthems while they waved, collectible figures of the players which moved about. Sirius bought handfuls of goods, passing them along with the spectator glasses, omnioculars, to the kids with a huge smile. He got Ron an animated figurine of Victor Crumb and a dancing shamrock hat. Fred and George also got shamrock hats, as well as scarves and enchanted voice-carrying amplifiers for shouting, Ginny a miniature firebolt, Hermione a few brilliant rosettes an Arthur an Irish flag and a pair of omnioculars. Oh, don't bother, 
Arthur began at his gift, but Sirius shushed him. You set this all up for us and are hosting us in the burrow. Come now, Arthur. Arthur looked a bit shy at first but indulged at last, allowing Sirius to put some of the sparkling green and gold face paint on his cheeks he bought for them all after the kids' faces were appropriately decked out. Your turn, Mooney, Sirius said, turning to him with sparkling paint-covered hands. Oh no, you don't. Remus shook his head, laughing. Sirius waggled his eyebrows and leaned a bit closer, the rest of the group so distracted by their souvenirs and growing excitement that they didn't notice. You can't possibly know, Sirius said, his voice a growl low in his chest. How brilliant this will make your eyes look. Remus blushed, his heart stammering and not at all from the anticipation of the Quidditch World Cup. Please, Sirius whispered, his dark eyes twinkling with pupils dilated over large. Remus exhaled. For you, he relented. Sirius cheered and touched long fingers to Remus's temples and cheeks, giving him gold and green sparkling stripes that were so bright they almost made the scars and faint lines disappear. But as Sirius completed his finishing touches, he let one non-painted finger trace along the scar from the July full moon which Remus spent locked in the cellar at Hope's cottage, the wolf scratching in frustration. His finger trailed along the scar tissue there, and he looked Remus in the eyes feeling the exact same way he had that morning watching Mooney wake up, and thinking he hoped that his face and eyes reflected silently the message. You are beautiful. Remus reached for the paints in Sirius's hands, and took immense pleasure in the excuse to touch Sirius's face, painting his sharp temples and smooth cheeks with sparkles of green and gold. Sirius's alabaster skin was flushed with excitement, his eyes shining like stars in their own night sky. And then a deep, booming gong rang out throughout the campground and in the same instant, green and red floating lanterns blazed in the twilight, leading the way to the stadium. Chapter 3 As the group walked eagerly along the trail lit by red and green glowing floating lanterns through the wooded area between the campgrounds and the stadium, Arthur Weasley felt almost like a teenager again, which he had been at his first and only other time attending the cup. He beamed at the eager and odd faces of his children, keeping an extra close eye on the twins like Molly bid him to do, but mostly feeling as if he was as young as them again. At the news that Arthur had gotten tickets, he'd felt like nothing in the world would dim his spirits for the match, no matter which nations were playing. But he had to admit that when he had found out Sirius got tickets for he, Harry, and Remus, and of course would be attending with the Weasleys and Hermione, Arthur had felt a wee bit of a deflation in his excitement. Arthur was used to Harry's fame and people's reaction. Harry was always made uncomfortable by such attention, so that it usually faded quickly and without much fuss, especially if Arthur intervened as he had done on a few occasions. Besides, if it was just Harry, he could hide among the group of kids and people might even not notice he was there. Sirius, however, had been known as a young man at Hogwarts for preening a bit with his popularity and growing reputation. Now, Arthur had met Sirius properly since his time in Azkaban and after taking over guardianship of Harry, and Arthur had found himself pleasantly taking to this grown Sirius of the present day. His love, protection, and care of Harry was readily apparent. He was a gracious and enthralling party host who did not strut or toss his hair or boast. He was a loyal and true friend to Remus Lupin, 
which was something Arthur had not been around to see in Sirius as a young man, and found made him all the more likable. Sirius Black, born into the house with the greatest pure-blood supremacy complex in Britain, had come to be known for renouncing his family's ways and his fighting in the Wizarding War, but witnessing firsthand his dedication to a half-blood werewolf made Arthur see Sirius's past actions and choices not just as in retaliation of his family, or as perhaps as a way to prove himself or show off, but as who he truly was. Arthur now had no doubt that Sirius was compassionate, loyal, and loved fiercely, exactly like James Potter, his late best friend. No wonder Sirius had been made godfather. But, all of that said, Arthur had still been a bit unsure of how Sirius may handle attention at the World Cup from, for example, beautiful young witches. He didn't think that would be good for Harry, or his own kids for that matter. He knew that in guardianship of Harry, Sirius would die for the boy without a heartbeat, but did he know what was the best way to behave in such a setting? For Harry and all of their sakes. Arthur almost skipped as he walked, his Irish flag waving in his hands, which he had charmed not to sing until they got to their seats. He had found that afternoon that he had had nothing to worry about, for Sirius Black, it seemed, would always be full of surprises. Sirius had not even once looked at any of the numerous enamored witches at the campgrounds. One of Arthur's colleagues at the ministry, an impressive 25-year-old witch named Sasha Silverton, a former Ravenclaw who shot through the department ranks with ease and also happened to look like a supermodel, had greeted Arthur on her way past the tent that afternoon. She sashayed over to Arthur, talking a bit loudly and not even pretending to be looking him directly in the eye as she greeted him, gazing entirely at Sirius before getting her chance to say hello. Sirius, who had been sitting on the grass outside of the tent beside Remus, both men with their backs against the canvas and legs stretched out in front of them and crossed identically at the ankles, had been leaning with his head low to listen to something Remus was telling him. Sirius Black, such a pleasure. Sasha had almost cooed, stepping towards him and flipping her sheath of voluminous golden hair. Sirius had glanced up, smiling from whatever it was Remus had told him, and nodded towards her with eyes that seemed to Arthur to be a bit unfocused. Hello. All right, he had told her, and turned back to Remus, not waiting for a reply. Arthur had watched Sirius chuckle at Remus's low voice, and Sirius's eyes flashed with a brightness that had not been there when he had briefly looked at Sasha. Ha! Huh. Arthur had thought, and almost laughed aloud. Sirius Black, whose youthful rebel ways and long-lasting good looks made him a de facto assumed womanizer had been so well behaved so far at the World Cup that Arthur was now fully convinced that taking over his godfather duties had changed the man. Nothing at all in the world could dim Arthur's spirits now as they reached the stadium wall, the structure so tall and wide, several cathedrals could fit comfortably inside. Arthur led the way to the nearest entrance. A ministry which checked all of their tickets, and they went up the purple carpeted steps the crowd filtering their way to the left or right on each landing. Finally, after a long climb, they all reached the top of the staircase and entered their box, taking their seats in the front row of the top box of the stadium. Sirius had pulled a few strings and spent quite a few galleons to make sure he got seats with the Weasley party. Arthur was seated on one end, followed Fred, George, Ginny, Hermione, Ron, Harry, Sirius, and Remus. Harry Potter 
sitting with Ron on one side and Sirius on the other, looked down at the view of the stadium and thought he never loved magic more in his life. A hundred thousand witches and wizards in a colossal oval stadium which radiated golden light. The grass of the green field looked like velvet. The three goal hoops on either end of the field fifty feet high. A gigantic blackboard directly opposite from their box seat hung over the stadium, flashing slogans and advertisements in gold letters. Hermione, on the other side of Ron, who was busy staring out of omnioculars, was holding the cup program sheet. A display of the team mascots will precede the match. She told them. Oh, that'll be brilliant, Arthur said from the end of the row. National teams bring creatures from the native land, you know, to put on a bit of a show. They had half an hour before the match, and while the box they were in was a ministry box, the group were spared the political greetings. The Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, stepped into the box with his eyes on Harry, but took one look at Sirius's glaring at him, and turned away from the group. The other ministry workers and government officials from Ireland and Bulgaria took the cue from Fudge and avoided the group. However, unfortunate for them all, there was one party of three who did not take their cue from the British Minister of Magic. The long, pale blonde-haired man leading the party of two other pale blonde heads had only ever taken his cues from one wizard, and that wizard was, thankfully for the wizarding world, not considered fully alive at present. The Malfoys went straight to Fudge and did their introductions, before Lucius Malfoy's cold gray eyes swept knowingly toward the group in the box's first row. His eyes scanned the Weasleys, his lips curling as Hermione glared defiantly at him, then eyeing Harry somehow with eyes even colder, and then his gaze locked on Sirius. Remus's hand had gone immediately to Sirius's knee at the sight of the Malfoys. Sirius's cousin and Lucius's wife, Narcissa, stood behind her husband, her face inscrutable, back ramrod straight. At her side, Draco was alternating between looking haughtily at Harry, sneering at Sirius, and curling his lip in disgust at Remus. Okay, Arthur Weasley thought. This might be something to dim my spirits. Remus put a bit more pressure into his hand on Sirius's knee. But just then, Fudge had begun talking to Lucius, pulling he and his family over toward the Bulgarian delegation, and the Malfoy's eyes left the group. Everyone gave an internal sigh of relief and faced the field again. Sirius reached for Remus's hand and gave it a reassuring squeeze before letting it drop. Remus retreated his hand back into his own lap. We don't engage, they had said, that had been their deal, and as it often did, Remus's precautious planning had paid off. The voice of Ludo Bagman suddenly roared over the stadium. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Welcome to the final of the 422nd Quidditch World Cup. The blackboard now illuminated, Bulgaria 0, Ireland 0. And now, without further ado, Ludo Bagman continued with his magically amplified voice. Allow me to introduce the Bulgarian national team mascots. The villa that the Bulgarians brought danced in the world their moonlit skin and white-gold hair shining like they were made of pearls as they spun on the field. Arthur hurriedly looked toward his boys, keeping an eye on them as the Vila danced with their entrancing and blissful-inducing magic that tended to rather inebriate young boys and give them all sorts of dim-witted ideas. He stopped Fred and George from taking the shamrocks off their hats, and was leaning forward to look toward Ron when something else caught his attention. 
Sirius and Remus were smiling at each other, talking in low voices, their eyes locked on one another. They were not even sparing a glance for the most beautiful female beings in the magic world. Ha! Huh. Arthur thought maybe the two men, like him, were familiar with the Vila magic and didn't want to embarrass themselves so they were purposefully looking away. Reckon all those boyhood ballroom dancing lessons haven't worn off. Remus was saying lowly to Sirius so no one else could hear. I would have put my bet on you. Sirius barked a laugh. Mooney, are you saying you remember me ever dancing anything like that? He waved an absent hand toward the field. Remus gave him a wry smile. I'm saying that if any man could properly dance with Avila, it would be Sirius Black. If I ever had the chance, you'd have had my guts for garters. Sirius grinned at him. Remus cocked an eyebrow. Padfoot, are you saying that I'd be made insecure by a mere Vila? I was the Casanova of Gryffindor Tower, don't you remember? Sirius laughed so hard he clutched his sides and wiped at his eyes, not noticing that, with the Vila still dancing below, faster and faster now, Harry had begun to try to rise out of his seat. Arthur, looking purposefully away from the magical women below and watching his boys, looked down the row and found himself rather curious at whatever it was Remus Lupin, the kind and intelligent man who he knew to be quiet and genial, had said to Sirius Black to make him burst into barking laughter without an ounce of attention to the villa, of all beings. Arthur watched as Remus reached around Sirius's laughing body with a long arm to pull Harry back down into his seat. Oh no, you don't, Harry, Remus said with a chuckle. Arthur snapped his attention back to the twins and Ron, stopping them from standing as well, as the music stopped and the crowd roared in anger at the villa's departure. Honestly, Hermione tutted as Ginny laughed at the boys. And now, came Ludo Bagman's amplified voice again. Kindly put your wands in the air for the Irish national team mascots. A huge green and gold comet blazed into the stadium, circling the field before splitting into two each racing toward the opposite goal posts on either side of the field before a rainbow arched into the golden-lit night sky, connecting the green and gold balls of light. The rainbow faded and the balls of light merged back into one, turning into an enormous sparkling shamrock that rose into the air and over the stands as golden coins fell into the crowd. As the shamrock soared over their heads, they all saw it was made up of leprechauns, little red-bearded men each carrying a lamp of green or gold and small sacks filled with the gold coins they were raining down. The mascot's display faded, replaced with the introduction to the Bulgarian team players, who zoomed out on broomsticks from the entrance at the bottom of the field in scarlet robes. The world-famous 18-year-old seeker Victor Crum last to emerge to uproarious cheers. The Irish team players were introduced, as well as the game's referee and with a blast of Hassan Mustafa's whistle and a kick of the crate, the balls burst into the air and the match began. Harry Potter was glued to the omnioculars. The players all had firebolts, and flew with speed such as he had never even imagined possible, but took a break away from the omnioculars to cheer tumultuously with the rest of the group when Ireland scored. Hermione and Ginny were dancing on their feet, Arthur waving his flag, Fred and George shouting in their amplifiers Sirius bought them, Ron jumping up and down. Sirius and Remus were standing up to cheer too, Sirius pumping his fist and Remus clapping heartily. As the game continued growing in intensity with the teams scoring intermittently, Sirius's hand couldn't help but go to Remus's knee or his shoulder, shouting out the plays. 
Mooney, that was the fastest hawk's head attacking formation I've ever seen. The Porskov play. Remember, Mooney, in our fifth year house cup, James's knees almost touched the ground when he did that dive. Barlox that was a good Ronsky defensive feint from Crum. Remus did not have time to reply to these exclamations as Ireland pulled ahead by ten points and the game got dirtier and still somehow faster and Sirius's commentary became a non-stop run. But he was smiling so huge his face hurt, his voice growing hoarse from cheering, his eyes flashing rapidly between the game and Sirius's and Harry's animated faces. Harry pulled the omnioculars away from his face for a moment to adjust his glasses, and Remus caught Lily's emerald eyes on her son's face wide as dates and shining with amazement. Sirius turned his head partway from the stadium to look back at Remus, his hand quickly returning to Remus's shoulder. Mooney, did you see that? He cried. His heartbreakingly handsome face looked so carefree and innocent, and he was bouncing on his feet, and Remus smiled somehow still wider and told him. Yes, pads, I saw. But he did not mean the plays or the players or whatever it was Sirius had been referring to. He meant the two people he loved most in the world, who carried such burdens from their pasts, and they didn't need sparkling green and gold face paint to shine like the two brightest stars in the cosmos. Lynch, the Irish seeker, saw the snitch first but Crum gave the fastest chase anyone had ever seen, and caught the snitch, the noise from the stadium so loud for Remus's advanced hearing he had to cover his ears, and the scoreboard flashed Bulgaria, 160 and Ireland. 170. What did he catch the snitch for? Ron demanded even as he was jumping up and down for Ireland. He ended it when Ireland were 160 points ahead, the idiot. He knew they were never going to catch up. Harry shouted to his best friend. The Irish chasers were too good, he wanted to end it on his terms, that's all. Sirius looked so proud of his godson's understanding of Quidditch that he might burst along with all of his joy at Ireland winning. Remus, applauding, leaned over to Sirius. You win, he said with a mischievous grin. Remus had lost the biggest of their bets. He had put himself on Bulgaria catching the snitch and winning the match, while Sirius had predicted this outcome, although the score he had predicted was not exact. Sirius beamed up at him, bouncing forward on the balls of his feet toward Remus before rolling back on his heels holding himself back from throwing his arms around Remus and kissing him fiercely, especially with the glittering green and gold paint setting off Mooney's brilliant brown eyes, which were molten and focused overwhelmingly on Sirius. Remus smiled knowingly and said, Later. Sirius, voice hoarse from shouting and with Remus's implication, growled. Too right. Remus leaned back from Sirius as Fred and George ran over to Sirius and Remus with broad grins holding the coins they had gathered from the leprechauns before the game. We can fill our bets with more than pride now, they crowed, having won significantly with their bets on Ireland's chasers. Chapter 4 The group finally made it back to their tent among the boisterous crowd, magic sparks of green and gold, along with gleeful leprechauns, zooming over their heads on the lantern-lit wooded path back to the campgrounds. After Sirius cast a cleaning spell on everyone's faces to clear off the face paint, Remus and Arthur went to the tea kettle to prepare hot cocoa for the kids while Sirius went into he and Remus's room and came back out holding their flasks of fire whiskey aloft. How about a fire whiskey hot chocolate, Mooney? Arthur? 
He grinned at them as the kids buzzed around the tent's living room, talking excitedly about the match. I just might do. Remus smiled back at him and Arthur nodded enthusiastically. The adults sat at the table with their hard drinks and the kids joined them, taking the hot cocoa and soon falling into joyful debates about the fouls, the plays, and the comparative skills of the players. Sirius asked Harry and Ron repeatedly for their takes on the game as Fred and George argued with their father about Troy, Mullet, and Moran, the Irish chasers. Remus sipped his strong drink, the fire whiskey a warm burn mixed with the dark chocolate, and turned to Ginny. That'll be you in a few years' time playing for England, Remus said, referring to the chasers. Ginny beamed, her eyes growing wide. A girl can dream. And by then I'll bet there will be an even faster brim model out there than the firebolt. Hermione, her cheeks pink with excitement, but her eyes betraying her exhaustion, frowned in concern. I don't know how the players could even see where they were going as it is. Oh, Ginny, what if you fell? Or crashed like Crumb and Lynch? Ginny smirked at her. You're not feeling me, Hermione. I heard you call Crumb brave after that crash. Hermione blushed deeper red and gave her hot cocoa her undivided attention. Remus smiled kindly at Ginny. You'll be trying out this year for Gryffindor, surely. Ginny looked thoughtful. I'll try out as an alternate. Katie, Angelina, and Alicia are amazing chasers. I doubt they won't be playing this year. Not sure who will try out for keeper, but it's not my position. Harry, overhearing this, asked Ginny about her thoughts concerning the Gryffindors' team chances for their new school year, and Remus smiled at them, thinking that if Harry figured out the world of teenage hormones and crushes, he'd surely catch on to Ginny. Her confidence and self-assurance, not to mention the red hair, couldn't help but remind Remus of Lily, although Ginny was of course far sportier than Harry's mother had been. But the bittersweet notion and rising memories were too much for the current joyful hyper-atmosphere and Remus turned back to Hermione to clear his mind of thoughts of his beloved late friends. How did the Quidditch World Cup final compare to the Football World Cup final? He asked her conversationally. Hermione's cheeks remained pink as she looked up at him and faltered to reply. Remus smiled inwardly. Did she only know how to talk to him about essays and class readings? I. Hermione gathered herself, looking a little unsettled at her own lack of composure. I don't really fancy football. My parents think it's brilliant, and it was France versus Italy this year. France won. Remus intuitively thought she'd glean onto a conversation about France, and so asked her if she'd ever been there. Hermione eagerly told him about skiing in the Alps, and seemed relieved and sheepishly happy to realize Remus knew what skiing was. The table's conversations were splintered, Sirius engaged with Harry, Ron, and Ginny the twins with their father, but as Sirius continued to take pulls of his fire whiskey cocoa, his hand found Remus's knee beneath the table, and Remus, his own cup now getting low, put his hand on top of it and laced their fingers. The table was small, and everyone was seated quite close together, shoulders nearly touching, so he didn't think anyone would notice. Finally, Hermione was yawning after every other sentence, and Ron was blinking furiously to keep himself alert and Remus leaned forward to catch Arthur's eye down the table. Nearly time for bed, I reckon, he prompted. Arthur nodded and jumped up to herd the kids to their bedrooms. Remus and Sirius took all the empty cups to the sink and washed them as occasional shouts, bursts of songs, 
and magical bangs could be heard beyond the tent's canvas throughout the campground. Soon, the kids were in their pajamas and their designated rooms. Remus and Sirius bade everyone good night and went eagerly into their bedroom. Sirius cast a silencing charm as soon as their door was closed and Remus was waiting for him. Their mouths met fiercely, their hands yanking off each other's clothes desperately. They pulled back only to strip down their trousers and collided their bodies back into each other, moans rising in their throats. One of Remus's deft hands was in Sirius's hair, his other on his hip, pushing him toward the bed. Sirius's hand was on the small of Remus's back, his other also tangled in Remus's hair as the backs of his legs hit the mattress. Lips locked, Remus guided Sirius down onto the bed and straddled him, his hands moving in between Sirius's thighs, stroking him, feeling him fully harden and drinking down the moans escaping Sirius's throat. Remus stroked him and moved his lips lower, to Sirius's jaw, his neck feeling his rapid pulse, the vibrations of the rumbles deep in his chest. Sirius's hands were on his hips, squeezing him closer. Sirius came breathlessly arching forward into Remus's chest, their stomachs against one another, Sirius's slick warmth sliding between them. Sirius felt Remus's erection against him, and took him into his own hands, and soon Remus was panting, his heart exploding in his chest, and he was so, so very warm against Sirius's skin, like the most pleasurable of fires, and he came with a moan while Sirius nipped at his neck, his hands feeling Remus's release between his fingers. Remus cast a cleaning spell, and then they lay tangled in one another, hearts pounding, warm and blissful and released but still they each felt that aching want, that desire and need that had been building all day. Their hands searched the other's bodies, feeling the planes of muscles, the shape of the other's hips and chest and thighs, and Remus kissed Sirius everywhere he could purchase with his lips as Sirius's hands ran along his torso. Then Sirius's hands reached to Remus's cheeks and he cupped his face in his hands, bringing Remus's eyes to meet his. Sirius said the words he had been dying to say all day. You are so beautiful, my darling. Remus reached his own long and nimble fingers to Sirius's cheeks, stroking his sharp temples, running his finger down Sirius's jaw and throat. You shone so brightly at the match, he murmured. If I cast my Patronus now with that memory, my padfoot would light up the whole camp. Sirius smiled serenely. The best day. The best, Remus whispered, and leaned into the side of Sirius's face, kissing his fluttering eyelashes. Remus woke abruptly with the sound of a faint scream in the distance. It was pitch black. Sirius was sleeping soundly with his face against Remus's chest, his breathing even and deep, but Remus knew immediately that something was wrong. Sirius he said, loudly into the dark as another scream carried into the oddly quiet night, shaking Sirius's shoulders. Sirius. Mooney. Sirius murmured, his eyes still closed, moving closer into Remus. It's all right. Sirius, wake up. Remus sat up as he picked up on the sound of running feet in the grass, coming closer towards the tent. Sirius. His panic was rising. Something's happening. Sirius was awake now propping himself up, rubbing his hands, and then he saw Remus's white face, his wide eyes met Sirius's and he understood. In the next instant they were scrambling for their clothes and wands, dressing and bursting out of their room into the dark living room. Arthur, 
Remus shouted and threw open Arthur Weasley's bedroom door. Arthur, something's happening, we've got to go. Harry. Sirius was shouting into the boys' room. Harry, get up. Get up. Just grab your coats. Come on, boys. Ginny, Hermione. Remus yelled into the girls' room after Arthur had awoken and was grabbing his own coat and wand. Wake up, girls. Your coats, come on. The kids staggered out of their rooms, wide-eyed and catching on quickly to the shouts and noises around the tent. Remus ran out first, his eyes seeing far beyond what the others could. He saw people running for the woods, running away from. Sirius and Harry were at his side, the Weasleys and Hermione pooling out of the tent. Remus held his arm out to his side protectively in front of Sirius and Harry, staring at the distant dark figures moving forward through the campground towards them. The figures wore black hoods, their wands aloft, their jeering drunken roars of laughter growing louder. Remus had made no contingency or precautionary plans for this, but immediately he knew what was going on and what needed to be done. Run, Remus said turning to Sirius, who was staring at him wide-eyed. Take Harry, the kids, run for the woods. I'll meet you there. Just then green light burst from the advancing figures, and everyone in the group could see them now, masked hooded Death Eaters. Remus had not seen them in nearly thirteen years. Above the Death Eaters, suspended in the air by their raised wands, were four bodies contorting with the imperious curse. They were dressed in muggle clothes. Remus could make out Mr. Roberts, the muggle campground owner. The group of masked Death Eaters was gaining in size as more wizards were joining their ranks, moving forward, not all of them masked or hooded. A few of the figures were casting their wands at the tents they were passing, flames erupting as the tents lit on fire. Run! Remus shouted and pushed Sirius and Harry forward. The woods! Arthur was standing beside Remus now, rolling up his sleeves, wand at the ready. We've got to help the ministry. Sirius seemed to unfreeze and sprang into action. Right, come on you lot. He urged the kids forward with him, and they took off running toward the woods. Remus and Arthur turned in the opposite direction, running toward the oncoming marchers. They reached the outside of the crowd and began casting disarming spells and charms that led to ropes erupting around the figures' bodies. But the crowd around the central Death Eaters was closing ranks, protecting the hooded figures in the middle from spells. At last Remus caught a break in the crowd, and his spell hit a masked figure, causing their wand to go flying into the night. The next instant, he was being engaged by another one in a duel of flaming red sparks and then he was dodging stunning spells, ducking and rolling among the bodies with the members of the ministry who, like he and Arthur, were trying to get to the Death Eaters. Sirius hated to take off running away from Remus, and away from the action, but he was Harry's primary guardian, and Harry and the kids needed him. Even in his panic and fear and desire to go join in the fight with Remus, he knew it was right that he stick with Harry. Those were Death Eaters, at least some of them, in the campground. Harry could not under any circumstances be seen by them, and then there was also Hermione, he remembered, the muggle-born of the group. He kept all of the staggering kids in his line of sight as he ran beside Harry towards the woods, and breathed a sharp sigh of relief when they entered the relative safety of the dark trees. Come on, follow me. He barked at Harry, Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Fred and George, moving them through the crowds of frightened families that were gathered in clumps, shouting out for one another in the dark. 
At last they stumbled into a clearing of sorts among the trees, the moon high overhead illuminating the patch of grass and silver light. All right, this should be far enough. Sirius decided and instructed the kids take a seat. They did so with cautious expressions, and Harry looked up at Sirius, trying to read his face. Sirius, who are they? Why are they, those bodies in the air above them? Harry stammered. Six pairs of wide and very not sleepy eyes looked up at Sirius, who stood at where the patch of trees met a small path, keeping watch as witches or wizards ran or walked by, calling out for their friends and family or talking loudly. Sirius took a heavy exhale. His heart was still racing but his breathing had even out now that the kids all seemed to be in a safe place. He trusted Remus to be safe and help. Surely Remus would be all right. Surely. But now he had to think about what to tell the underage witches and wizards looking at him imploringly. It would do no good to try to protect them from the truth, Harry most of all. I think some of them were, maybe still are, Voldemort's supporters. They call themselves the Death Eaters. Sirius told them gravely, all the kids but Harry flinching and paling a bit at the name. I think with all the muggles nearby the stadium. The boasting atmosphere of the game. Surely some of those marchers are drunk off their gourd. Well, I think they decided to make a statement. The ministry will catch them, right? Ron asked. And other wizards will be helping him too, like Dad and Remus. I hope so. Sirius answered. But Death Eaters are hooded for a reason. And they'll disapparate if they feel cornered no doubt. But maybe a few will get ropes around them. Sirius's shoulders sagged. His eyes had fallen back on Harry. Death Eaters at the Quidditch World Cup final, and Harry Potter had been so close to them. Sirius, Hermione said in a voice that trembled a little, she was looking at him a little timidly but attempting for steadiness. Um, remember the night in the shack last year? What Pettigrew said? Sirius, of course, would never forget what Peter Pettigrew had told them all that fateful night in the Shrieking Shack when he had been reunited with Harry and Sirius and Peter had been discovered. I'm not the only one of the Dark Lord's ranks to escape justice. I'm not the only one waiting out there. I know there are others searching for the Dark Lord, and Sirius might not be the only prisoner to escape Azkaban. Sirius masked his face carefully, not wanting to frighten her further. I know, but we can't assume anything yet. Remus and Arthur know more when they get back. Pettigrew, what did he say? Ginny whispered to Hermione, and the kids huddled together. Harry, however, stood up and went to his godfather. All right, Harry. Sirius asked him, still keeping one eye on the path beyond their clearing of trees. Harry nodded but his eyes were still searching Sirius's face. Remus will be okay, right? They won't. I mean, the Death Eaters, they might know that his A. Sirius tried for a reassuring smile and put his hand on Harry's shoulder. He'll be fine, pup. It's just a riot. They're surrounded by ministry officials, and they won't be looking to do any real harm to witches or wizards, or werewolves, I'm sure. They're occupied with those poor muggles, that was their focus. Remus is just doing damage control. Part of what Sirius was saying was genuine. He did believe it was mostly true and that it was highly unlikely even a former Death Eater would be stupid enough to do something really horrid with so many ministry officials around. But when someone you love is even remotely in the path of danger, Logic tends to go out the window, and this was especially true for Sirius Black, who was well known for that trait. He focused on Harry's worried face, 
and the fact that Harry and the other kids were safe, and that Remus was the best duelist he knew, with werewolf agility and senses, and that the ministry, as much as he was discontented by it, was there. Harry opened his mouth to speak again, but just then there was the sound of twigs snapping and footsteps staggering unevenly in the woods beyond their clearing. The huddle of kids fell silent, hearing it too. Sirius wordlessly cast Lumos and stepped toward the sound, his heart stilling. Who's there? Sirius shouted, cursing that Remus wasn't here to see farther into the black woods. Moors Maud. A shout rang out the spell among the dark trees, unnaturally steady opposed to the panicked shouts from earlier. They all looked up as the jet of green light erupted from wherever the caster stood in the dark woods beyond the light of Sirius's wand. Sirius Black stared at the enormous smoking green skull and snake of the dark mark blazing like a new constellation in the night sky. And the woods around them erupted into terrorized screams. Run! Sirius shouted at the kids, grabbing Harry painfully by the shoulder as they prepared to take off sprinting. But before they could dash out of the clearing, they were surrounded by the sounds of twenty witches and wizards apparating around them. Sirius's wand raised as he stood instinctively in front of Harry, registering in the next instant that every single one of the people surrounding them now had their wands pointed directly at the kids and his godson. Stupefy! The voices shouted as Sirius cast a shield spell around the kids and himself, pulling Harry even tighter against his back, stepping sideways, attempting to see all the figures as stunning spells hit his shield and bounced, shooting out into the trees around them. Stop! A voice that Sirius Black would know even in a hurricane of spells shouted over the stunning spells. Stop! Remus Lupin broke his position in the circle made up of ministry officials. There was a rip in his jumper. His face was pale, brown eyes wide. Remus strode into the clearing toward Sirius, throwing his arms around he and Harry, pulling them into a tight hug. Sirius could feel Remus was shaking, and Sirius reached his arms around Remus, running his hands down his back, murmuring in his ear, We're all right, Mooney, we're all right. Arthur, also in the circle, had run over to his children and Hermione. Ron, Ginny, oh my. Fred and George, Hermione, are you all right? Which of you did it? A voice demanded from the circle of ministry wizards. Which of you conjured the dark mark? Remus released his embrace of Sirius and Harry, moving to stand protectively in front of them. Barty, they clearly were not the one who cast the mark. I'd have Sirius Black answer my question, I would. Barty Crouch Sr. demanded. His eyes were huge in his angry face. Oh, you would, Remus said and Harry had never heard Remus Lupin's voice sound so cold, and so much like steel. He took Sirius's wand from Sirius's hand and extended it to Barty. Not that he has anything to prove to you, but if you feel inclined, why don't you assuage your doubts? And be assured, I'll remember that you had them. Barty Crouch Sr.'s heated face blanched a bit, and he opened his mouth, but no words came out. There will be no need for that, of course, said Amos Diggory. Stepping forward from the circle of wizards, glaring at Barty Crouch Sr., and then turning his head towards the woods beyond the clearing. Come on, our stunning spells might have hit the caster. Amos, followed by a few of the other wizards and witches, disappeared into the woods. Sirius put his hand on the small of Remus's rigid back. You should help them, he said in a soft, comforting voice. Remus's muscles relaxed after a moment, and he stepped back, turning to face Sirius and Harry.
He was still pale, his jaw tight and eyes burning, but he took a steady exhale and nodded at them before moving toward where the others had gone and disappearing into the darkness. The group remaining in the clearing shifted anxiously for several long quiet minutes. Barty Crouch Sr. was still glaring at Sirius but did not say anything. After what seemed like ages they heard footsteps crunching on leaves and twigs once more and the scouting party returned. Remus shook his head at the seeking looks from the group. They must have disapparated, he said in a tired voice. Come on, let's get back to the tent. Remus led Sirius and Harry, followed by Arthur Weasley with his brood and Hermione, out of the clearing and onto the forest path, and they all began the walk back towards the tent. They arrived back to see a mass of frightened-looking witches and wizards were crowded at the entrance of the campgrounds. When they saw the arriving group, many in the mass surged forward. Who conjured the mark? Did they find who did it? It couldn't have been, not he who must not be named. Oh my, that's Harry Potter. And that's Sirius Black. We don't know who it was, they disapparated. Arthur Weasley called out to the questioning faces impatiently. Remus was moving too fast to answer, his hand gripping Sirius's hand, who in turn had his hand protectively on Harry's shoulder. They walked by smoking tents but otherwise the campground was subdued and quiet, and finally staggered back into their tent. The kids all looked shaken and collapsed into the chairs in the living room or at the table. Remus briefly put a hand on Harry's shoulder, who had fallen into a chair at the table beside Sirius, on his way to the tea kettle. Ron piped up from one of the sitting chairs. So that thing in the sky was... Voldemort's symbol. The dark mark. Sirius answered him gruffly, not looking away from Harry. Harry fidgeted, looking from Ron to Sirius. Everyone but Sirius and Harry had jumped a bit at the sound of the name. And it hasn't been seen in thirteen years, Arthur said from beside Ginny at the far end of the table. I don't get it, Ron frowned. I mean, it's only a shape in the sky. Remus turned away from the tea kettle. Voldemort and the Death Eaters sent the Dark Mark into the air whenever they killed, Remus said quietly, ignoring the flinches again at the use of Voldemort's name as he carried two cups to the table, passing one to Sirius as he sat across from him and Harry. People came home and found the Dark Mark hovering over their house, Arthur murmured. Or their friend's house, Sirius said hoarsely. No one spoke for a long while. How were his supporters here? Ginny asked. How are they not locked in? She faltered, eyes flashing to Sirius. Some of them managed to connive their way out of any accusations, got off since there was only hearsay against them, no real evidence. Not that that stopped the ministry from sentencing without proper procedure when they thought they caught one, Sirius said, and Remus wanted to reach across the table and take his hand. As it was, Harry did, giving his godfather's hand a squeeze where it rested beside his teacup. Sirius looked down at him and smiled tiredly, the smile not quite reaching his dark eyes. Did you catch any of them tonight? Fred asked, looking between his father and Remus. Remus shook his head. We caught a few Death Eater sympathizers, I suppose is what you could call them. The true quote end quote, Death Eaters, disapparated. Not that we can prove it was them, Arthur sighed. Although it was. Why? Why were they levitating muggles? Hermione asked a little shakily, although her face looked defiant. That's their idea of fun. Sirius answered her with a hollow sharp laugh.
half of the muggle killings when Voldemort was in power were done for fun. Like I said, I reckon they had a few drinks tonight and were pumped up on adrenaline and wanted to remind everyone they were still out there. He growled. But it wasn't one of the Death Eaters who conjured the mark. Hermione said, realization dawning in her eyes. Only Death Eaters ever knew how to cast it. Remus told her, setting down his tea. I'd be very surprised if the person who did it hadn't been a Death Eater once. Sirius's eyes locked on Remus's and they each were thinking the same thing. It could be the one Peter mentioned was out there, searching for Voldemort. It's very late, Arthur sighed. Once Molly hears what's happened she'll be worried sick. We should all try to get some rest and get an early port key home. The kids stood, looking worried and quite awake, but obediently they headed for their beds. Sirius gave Harry a tight hug as they stood. Best get you some sleep, Harry, he said, not wanting to belittle him too much in front of the other kids but wishing he could. He wished he could have Harry sleep in he and Remus's room if it were not a bit too much for a fourteen-year-old. Remus and Sirius went into their bedroom, propping the pillows on their bed against the headboard so they could sit up a bit, arms wrapped around one another. Sirius rested one hand over Remus's heart, feeling the comforting steadiness there. Remus ran his fingers along Sirius's neck, his fingers lacing in his hair. I was so scared when I saw the mark, Sirius. And you and Harry were right there, Remus said quietly, his voice tight. I know, I know, me too. Hogsmeade doesn't feel close enough now. We'll do everything we can, Remus said, assuring both himself and Sirius. Anything for Harry. Anything. Chapter 5 The group arrived by Port Key and Ottery St. Catchpole just after sunrise, and walked toward the burrow. The kids looked exhausted, and were all dreaming of breakfast. Arthur looked like he hadn't slept at all, which was in line with Remus and Sirius, although all the adult men's nerves were so charged that they hadn't yet felt the effects of the sleep deprivation or the running and dueling, in the case of Arthur and Remus, the night before. Molly Weasley ran out to meet them in the front garden of the burrow with cries of relief. Oh, thank goodness, thank goodness, she said, running toward her family. I've been so worried, so worried. She flung her arms around her husband's neck and released him with watery eyes cataloging her children. You're all all right. Ron, Ginny, Fred, and George hugged and assured their mother, and then they made their way into the kitchen. Percy Weasley was waiting for them at the table along with the teapot and bowls of porridge. The kids pounced on the food, and Remus on the tea. Percy looked greatly relieved to see his siblings, and then a little embarrassed. Molly had left the daily prophet folded in the middle of the table, and Arthur leaned over to look at it. The daily prophet's front-page headline for August 26, 1994 was as follows. Scenes of Terror at the Quidditch World Cup complete with a magic photograph of the dark mark above the treetops, the snake slithering out of the skull's mouth. The top of the fold article, written by none other than Rita Skeeter, featured such words and phrases as Ministry blunders, lack security, culprits not apprehended, dark wizards running unchecked, national disgrace, and rumors of former you-know-who supporters. Arthur sighed, not bothering to uncurl the folded newspaper. Molly, I'm going to have to go into the office, this is going to take some smoothing over. I'll come with you, father, 
Percy said. Mr. Crouch will need all hands on deck. I'll just go change into my robes, Arthur said, heading toward he and Molly's room. Remus, nursing his tea, reached for the newspaper, unfolded it, and then promptly dropped his teacup with a crash onto the wooden table. The Daily Prophets below the fold article title for August 26, 1994 was as follows. Harry Potter and Sirius Black seen at the Quidditch World Cup in the company of known werewolf. The below the fold article, written also by none other than Rita Skeeter, featured such words and phrases as Britain's beloved boy who lived, his nearly as famous godfather, seen enjoying the Quidditch World Cup, known werewolf Remus Lupin, controversial Hogwarts professor, resigned in disgrace. And questions concerning guardianship considering choice of companion may lead to investigation. Mooney, are you all right? Sirius said as he came to stand behind Remus, and then his jaw dropped and he snatched the newspaper from Remus's hands. Remus stared numbly down at his spilled tea and began fumbling for his wand to clean the mess, but Molly did before he had the chance. What's going on, you two? Surely no news is worse than... Molly was saying. Blast them. Sirius roared, making everyone but Remus jump. Nefarious dark creature, they say. Endangering his godson with his associations, they say. As if. I'm going to the prophet this minute. Sirius. Remus jumped to his feet, gripping Sirius's wrist and wrestling the newspaper out of his hands. You will do no such thing. What? Sirius cried, his face a mask of outrage, waving his hands. Potential investigations of my guardianship over Harry. Saying I'd ought to distance myself from you. I'd like to see them try. And calling you, bigoted blasted language. They pasted a picture of us in the box at the cup on the bloody front page. And there's one of you at Hogwarts. Your face with the caption, tragic and unnerving werewolf Remus Lupin, I will not have it. You could have heard a stunned pixie land on a stick of butter. It had become that quiet in the burrow's kitchen. Hermione, Ron, Ginny, Fred, George, and Percy were staring at Remus and Sirius slack-jawed and frozen. Harry was white as a sheet. He had lost all of his appetite and was feeling very dizzy, but there was a building anger in him that mirrored his godfather. Molly was standing on the other side of the table, her hand on her chest, her face as agape as her kids. Arthur, having returned from changing into his work robes, was completely frozen in shock. None of the others had read the headline of the article, but it certainly did not take a genius to guess what it said. Sirius's face was red and he was breathless from yelling. He was staring at Remus with eyes wide in righteous anger. He and the people he loved privacies had been invaded. They were hinting at investigations of his guardianship of Harry, and the love of his life's condition had been laid out in horrific prejudicial language for all of Wizarding Britain to read. Sirius. Remus said in a calm voice, stepping toward him and putting his hands on either one of Sirius's shoulders, looking into Sirius's enraged eyes. There's nothing to be done. You mustn't engage. It'll only make things worse. Sirius stared furiously at him. How can they? They want to take Harry away from me because of you. How dare they? Harry cried fiercely from the table. They can't do that. But maybe, until it dies down, it might be best. Remus, if you keep your distance. Molly was saying, looking a little resolved. No. Sirius growled so harshly that Molly paled a bit. Never. 
Arthur Weasley's eyes, already wide, went somehow still wider. But, Molly stuttered and then found her bold voice. You're moving to Hogsmeade, Sirius. It seems like a good chance to make some distance, for Harry's sake. What do you mean my sake? Harry said, eyebrows raised and looking at Molly with a defiant and daring expression. Remus's heart beat unevenly. Molly had hit on the one thing that might separate Remus or Sirius, and that was if it was what was best for Harry. They had separated at the campgrounds because it was best for Harry. They had separated for the July full moon because it was best for Harry. Remus, with all of his precautions and planning, hadn't considered how his coming with Sirius and Harry in public to the cup might lead to malevolent gossip, or worse, to speculations of Sirius's right to care for Harry. He's moving to Hogsmeade with me and that's final. Sirius shouted at Molly. I won't have any more talk of that. Ha! Arthur thought. Well, now a lot of things make quite a bit of sense. Remus, unaware of Arthur's revelation and worried Sirius was about to give away what he didn't know Arthur had already caught on to, jumped to distract Sirius from Molly's take on the situation. Sirius, Remus said calmly, getting his attention again. Let's just say fuck them and be done with it. There was another stunned pixie drop on butter level of silence before what Remus said fully registered and the kids all startled a very shocked laugh at hearing such language from their former professor. Yeah, fuck them. Fred and George cried, raising two fingers enthusiastically to the horror of their mother. Sirius flushed a bit, a strangled noise coming from his throat as he took a shaky exhale. Remus patted his shoulders and stepped back a bit, self-conscious now. Sirius still stared at him, and then, very slowly, his frozen face moved, and Sirius was no longer looking terribly violent. He was smiling, but with a wicked glint in his eyes. Fuck them, he declared. And they're going to pay for this. The rest of breakfast was a very stilted and muted affair. Harry noticed that Remus seemed to have lost his appetite as well, and just drank cups of tea while staring at Sirius, who was brooding with a scowl on his face. The kids kept sneaking glances at him, but he stayed quiet. Molly, meanwhile, had bustled away with the kids' clothes from the cup, busying herself with laundry and glad for the excuse. After the breakfast, the kids went out to the orchard beyond the back garden and the field there to play Quidditch. Whoa, Ron said as soon as they were out of earshot of the house, where Remus and Sirius had stayed behind to wash up the dishes from breakfast. That was wicked. George breathed in awe. It wasn't for your entertainment, George. Ginny snapped. What was wicked is what that vile woman wrote in The Prophet. She had no right. And they published it. Hermione exclaimed in disbelief. You lot don't think they can really investigate Sirius's guardianship because of Remus, do you? Harry asked, his eyes wide. He'd wanted to ask Sirius and Remus the same question as soon as he could. Oh, I don't think so, Harry. Ginny assured him, but all the other kids were looking a little uncertain. Harry swallowed his slight fear at the looks on their faces. Is Professor, I mean, Remus, really moving in with Sirius in Hogsmeade? Hermione asked Harry. Yes, Harry answered emphatically, not saying that it was out of the question that any place Sirius would be, Remus wouldn't. It seemed outrageous and against the laws of the universe that one would go anywhere without the other and Harry would fight anyone who said different. 
The others were staring at him, a little shocked. What? He demanded at them, the anger he had felt rising at the kitchen table returning with a vengeance. Nothing, Harry, Hermione hurried to say. And besides, even if the wretched press finds out about that, you'll be at Hogwarts for the full moons. They can't say anything really about safety with that in mind. Well, there's the holidays. She trailed off, calculating. Harry beat her to it. The full moon is December 12th. There won't be another while I'm living with Riemus until next summer. Five pairs of eyebrows raised in combined surprise that Harry had memorized the lunar chart, and that he seemed to know for certain that Remus Lupin would still be living with he and Sirius by next summer. Oh, come off it. Harry huffed, lifting his broomstick higher on his shoulder and marching onto the makeshift Quidditch field. Who wants the first spin on the firebolt? Sirius and Remus sat in the grass in the shade of one of the apple trees, watching the kids play Quidditch. Please, tell me what you're really thinking. Sirius implored him. Remus's hands rested on the grass, flexed, and blades of grass ripped from the soil. His eyes were hard and his jaw set as he finally let his emotions show. I'm thinking they will regret dearly for suggesting anything about your guardianship of Harry. Too right. Sirius growled. And for what they wrote about you. Remus didn't reply, his hands still clutching fistfuls of grass, and he stared straight ahead at the Quidditch field, although he wasn't really seeing the kids zooming around the air. Mooney, Sirius said, his voice a little gruff. Come on, tell me the rest. After a moment, Remus's hands released the blades of grass and he sighed, bowing his head, his brown hair flecked with gray hanging over his eyes. He looked tired. Sirius waited, hiding his impatience. Finally, Remus said quietly, We never talked about children, Sirius. Yes, we were barely more than kids ourselves. We had just come of age and we were fighting in a war. But even after James and Lily had Harry, we never talked about our thoughts on children. I kept waiting for you to say something. You were so good with Harry, Sirius. Now of course, too, but even when he was a newborn, and a toddler, it all seemed to come so naturally to you. And I was so scared of when you would finally bring it up. Sirius's mouth had parted. He had certainly not expected this, and was wholly confused. Blimey, Mooney, of course we didn't talk about children, as you said, we were just kids ourselves. James and Lily, they were another story. It never crossed my mind. You mean you and I and what do you mean scared? Sirius said, staring at Remus. Remus lifted his head and met Sirius's eyes. I thought you would want children, Sirius. And I would have to tell you I didn't. That I couldn't. What? Sirius breathed. I know it would have been madness, the idea of you and I, two men, raising a child together. But you looked so right with Harry, I thought you would say it was what you wanted, and that we could do it anyhow. And look at us now, clearly it wasn't such a mad notion. Remus smiled wryly, the smile not reaching his eyes. But, back then, I would have had to tell you that I thought it wouldn't have been right. That I could expose them to something no child should have to deal with. Part of me still thinks I shouldn't expose Harry. What if he had seen me after the cellar, Sirius? No boy should have to see that. It's ugly, it's... Sirius's face was contorted in indignation. You were a boy yourself when you were bit. You were five, Mooney. You didn't think this rubbish at Hogwarts, did you? We were close to Harry's age, we saw you far worse than the cellar, 
We saw the transformation with our own eyes. And it is not ugly. Damn you Mooney, you are beautiful always. What a load of barlocks. Sirius, however, knew that Harry had seen Remus the morning after the July full moon spent ravaging himself alone in the cellar of Hope's cottage. He had seen Harry's panicked face at the wolf's self-inflicted wounds on Remus's body. But he had also seen Harry's aching, his worry and care of Remus. And he had seen how it impacted Harry. It was Harry who had asked Arthur, before even Sirius had gotten the chance, for Arthur to stay the night for the August full moon so Padfoot could join the wolf. He had seen Harry's careful attention of Remus's well-being afterward, his kind and compassionate eyes. Yes, Harry was exposed to what it meant to be a werewolf, but Sirius knew that his own experience to Remus at around the same age as Harry had made him a better man, and had made him fall further into love with the man who was so wise and so strong and so brave. Moreover, Sirius would never in any way imply that Remus's lycanthropy was something Remus or Harry should be ashamed of. It was not easy and it was often very, very painful, but it was part of who Remus was, and Sirius wanted Harry to know it, to understand it, and love Remus for all of himself, as Sirius did. That was what was right. And after this summer, Sirius was now 100% certain Harry did. Remus was looking at him, thoughtful and a little sad. Sirius reached and gripped his Mooney's right hand. Harry loves you, Mooney. All of you. And fuck whatever anyone else has to say, you are right where you should be. Remus squeezed Sirius's hand, and slowly he nodded. It does feel right, Sirius, he said softly. Sirius nodded. Of course it does. Remus straightened and took a heavy exhale. Make them pay for what they said about your care of Harry, Sirius, but please be careful. Sirius growled low in his throat, but spoke declaratively. We'll think of something together. Ha! Arthur Weasley thought as he made his way out of his office in the evening from a very busy and sleep-deprived day doing media damage control at the ministry. Well, I reckon I have to tell Molly. Keeping this knowledge from his wife felt a lot like lying to her, and Arthur had never been able to manage that well with Molly. And besides, he wanted to have it out with her about it now so it was over and done with before she figured it out herself and blew it all out of proportion said something hurtful, or caused any potential unpleasantness for Harry, Sirius, and Remus. See, Molly could be a little less understanding than Arthur, who was a curious and accepting man by nature, his love of muggles just one way in which this manifested. Molly, however, was defined a lot of the time by her protective and motherly instincts, and she had taken to seeing herself as a mother figure to Harry the moment she had met him. So, Molly had a different way of thinking than Arthur about discerning what she considered unsafe or unhealthy for children. He knew that even though she hadn't said anything adverse out loud about Remus's lycanthropy and Harry living with him, and that she herself had even assured Remus at Harry's fourteenth birthday party that no one would say or think anything negative about his condition, that she was holding her own thoughts back. When Arthur had gone to Hope's cottage to stay the night to watch Harry for the August full moon, she had tutted and made a fuss over him going and when he returned she asked him carefully worded questions with her eyebrows raised. He had seen the gears in her head churning as she viewed Remus's lycanthropy through the lens of Harry being exposed to it. Arthur knew his wife, 
She was not entirely convinced Remus's condition was safe for Harry or right for him to see. Although she liked the man too much to say anything and didn't want to show her own kids her views. But while Arthur wholeheartedly disagreed with her line of thinking, he hadn't wanted to confront her about it because he hadn't the time for a row. But with her concerns about Remus being a werewolf as being a threat to Harry's safety or well-being noted, Molly had not seen Remus the previous night at the campground, and the way he had reacted was serious and Harry in potential danger. It would be hard for anyone to think that Remus was not safe for Harry after witnessing that. In fact, it would be hard for anyone to name any better protector for the boy. While Sirius certainly did well that night guarding Harry, as well as Arthur's kids and Hermione, it was Remus who took charge. And it was Remus who Arthur would want above anyone else, even Sirius, between Harry and danger. And considering Molly's potential thoughts on Remus, and Sirius's relationship being more than friends, Arthur had an idea of where she might come down on that. She most likely say that Harry needed a mother figure in his life which Arthur would respond by saying that he already had one in Molly, and did she really like the idea of serious dating and bringing women around to meet Harry. She'd also most likely say that the two men fooling around together was not a stable family image to present to the impressionable boy. But Arthur wholeheartedly knew Remus and Sirius were not fooling around together. What he had seen of Remus and Sirius together at the Quidditch World Cup included what he now knew to be very telling moments. Arthur was in love with Molly, and she was in love with him, but he did not think they'd ever been so in love with each other in the way Remus and Sirius were. Well, Arthur considered, they had just spent thirteen years apart. But still, even so, the way they looked at each other, the way Sirius saw nobody but Remus, the way Remus had reacted in the clearing, that was something else. That was, that was true love it was, Arthur was sure. He had reached the apparition point at the end of the ministry atrium and prepared himself to return to the burrow. Well, he thought, I've got a few questions. One, how should he tell Sirius and Remus that he knew? Because of course he would. He would tell them that he accepted them, that he would support them, and that he didn't want them to have to hide in front of him. Two, should he tell Sirius and Remus that he knew before he told Molly? And three, did Harry know? Well, Arthur Weasley thought, I reckon I should tell them first, and I'll find out from them if Harry knows. And then I reckon I'll tell Molly. Chapter 6 Preparing dinner that night was a slightly awkward event. Remus returned from the orchard to help Molly prepare the meal while Sirius took up the offers from the kids to join them for a few Quidditch drills before the sun fully set. Remus stepped into the kitchen to find Molly at the counter, a knife chopping vegetables on its own, her face a little pink from staring into the boiling pot of potatoes. She looked up when he entered, and straightened. Need any help with the roast, Molly? Remus asked her mildly. Molly Weasley looked at the tall, lean, scarred man standing in her kitchen his head bowed slightly so as not to brush the wood rafters of the ceiling. His prematurely lined face looked at her calmly, but his brown eyes were a little weary. It was so hard, she thought, because she genuinely adored the man. He had been a truly excellent professor of defense against the dark arts. Her kids respected and revered him. 
Harry loved him with his whole heart. He was capable and wise and witty. She greatly enjoyed talking to him, and she liked that he was also a proper cook like she was. Did she pity him for his condition? Yes, though she'd sworn to herself she'd never let him see. Did she think the lycanthropy meant he wasn't fit to be around Harry? She was torn. You could help me fix the rub, she answered Remus Lupin, and pointed to the sauces and spices waiting on the counter for the pork roast. Remus nodded and went over to the ingredients, beginning to sort them with his long, deft, and scarred hands. So, you're moving to Hogsmeade with Sirius, she said, taking the chopped vegetables from under the now still floating knife and putting them on the baking sheet, and placing them in the oven underneath the roast. Yes, Remus said again in a mild tone. I've said what I think, she said. I won't repeat it. They were quiet for a while. Remus finished the spread and then turned the pudding that evening, strawberry ice cream. He used his wand to set a knife to chopping fresh strawberries to add to the ice cream and Molly drained the water from the pot, the potatoes done. What you told me at Harry's party, Remus spoke, leaning one hip on the counter and crossing his arms, turning to look at her. It was very kind, Molly. Well, I meant it, she said, glancing up. But Harry gets enough torment from the press as it is. The news last year when Sirius escaped and we all thought he was out to kill Harry, that ate at the boy. And now there's this. She did not mention her own conflictions. Remus nodded, looking a little sad. It's not just in the media sphere. He'll have to deal with it at Hogwarts too. All the students know, of course, and now they know I'm in his company. Some of them, I'm sure, will have opinions in line with Rita Skeeter. Molly waited. She had caught on to that fact too, of course. Remus's eyes focused fully on her. Don't think I haven't considered things much the same as you, Molly, but my place is with them, and it won't deter insist I stay away. Sirius and I'll deal with the press, and Harry has proven he can handle naysayers. Molly sighed, and turned back to the potatoes, drying them on a tea towel. Well, all right then, Remus. She was still uncertain, but knew it was a losing battle for now. Dinner was decidedly not awkward. Arthur arrived just as the table was set, Percy an hour before him, and they each looked a little haggard, tucking eagerly into the food and launching into explaining the mayhem at the ministry. Molly sat herself purposefully beside Remus and made light conversation with him and Sirius. The kids all kept stealing weary glances at Sirius but he was exhilarated from their Quidditch drills before dinner and talked with them determinately about their upcoming school year. After a few bowls each of strawberry ice cream, the kids were all looking quite content and sleepy, and Molly herded them up for an early bedtime considering the long day and night they had had the day before. Remus and Sirius did the washing up, urging Molly to go to bed herself. She'd had a rough morning worrying about them all. The dishes drying, Remus and Sirius turned to head up the stairs to Bill's old room. You two got a minute to spare, Arthur suddenly asked them, looking up from the parchment he was writing on at the end of the now empty kitchen table, having brought some of his work home with him. Sirius's brow furrowed and he frowned. Sure, Arthur. Remus told him, although he was exhausted and heavily disinclined to have a repeat conversation like the one that he'd had with Molly before dinner. Arthur took off his glasses and rubbed the bridge of his nose before putting them back on and standing. 
He also looked knackered, but when he glanced to the two men again, he was smiling kindly. How about we sit in the back garden? Lovely night out, he said, gesturing to the back door. Remus raised one brow but nodded, and followed Sirius and Arthur outside into the early night. The air was fair and fresh, not too chilly yet. The sky was sprinkled with stars, the moon basking the back garden in silver light. Arthur led them a ways away from the house to the herb garden, sitting down on a tree trunk as Remus and Sirius sat on the low brick wall around the herb plot. Sirius crossed his arms, still frowning, while Remus leaned forward, putting his elbows on his knees and clasping his hands, waiting. Arthur smiled so warmly at them that Sirius's frown slowly faded and a look of confusion took over his face. Arthur, still smiling, took his wand out of his sleeve and waved it in the air, murmuring, Muffly Arto, a spell which muffled their words from any potential eavesdroppers. I know it's been a long last two days, Arthur said. You're both probably as dead on your feet as I am, but I just thought I could lift both your spirits a bit. Take some weight off your shoulders. Sirius and Remus waited, both with a brow raised. I don't give a damn about the press, or you living with Harry and Sirius, Remus. In fact, I think it's brilliant. I think there's nowhere else I'd rather you be. I think that you both are the best guardians Harry Potter could ever have. And I know you both love him, and I know you both love each other, and I know it goes far beyond the bonds of friendship. In fact, I reckon it's as deep as love can go, isn't it? Sirius and Remus stared at him. Arthur smiled at their masked faces. Come on now, boys. I think it's bloody brilliant. I can't say how happy I am for you both, considering all you went through in the last thirteen years. Sirius cleared his throat. You, uh, figured it out when I said he was moving to Hogsmeade with me, didn't you? Arthur grinned. That certainly put the pieces together. It seems we're not as subtle as we think, Sirius, Remus said, smiling softly. Sirius barked a laugh, running his hand through his hair. Seems so. Does Harry know? Arthur asked. Not that it's my place to say, but I just think it would make it easier on you both if he knew. And Harry could have no better role models for love, I know that. Remus stared at Arthur feeling his eyes grow slightly wet. Arthur looked at him, slightly taken aback. It was quite something to see Remus Lupin have tears in his eyes. Oh, Remus breathed shakily and bowed his head as feeling rose in his chest. Sirius reached for his hand, squeezing it as Remus took a breath and lifted his head again, eyes still misty. Harry knows, Sirius told Arthur. He figured it out on his own too. Not as discreet as we used to be, I'm Mooney he said, looking up now to meet Remus's eyes. Certainly not, Remus told him, voice a little hoarse. Arthur smiled at them once more. Well, that's all. I just wanted to tell you I know so you won't need to bother with hiding it around me. There's Molly, of course, reckon I should tell her or you too. Sirius turned his head back to Arthur, brow furrowing slightly. Might be best coming from you. Then he quickly turned to Remus. You reckon so, Mooney? Remus nodded, still a bit too overcome to speak. Arthur clasped his hands. Well, I won't be speaking to her about it tonight. I need some proper rest. 
Don't worry a bit about this, boys. Now, I best get in. I'll see you in the morning. Good night, Arthur. Remus croaked as Arthur stood. Night, boys. Arthur said, giving them a parting smile, and walking back towards the house. Remus and Sirius sat on the low herb garden wall under a starry night sky. Sirius leaned into Remus, and Remus wrapped his long arms around him. Sirius looked up and met his eyes, and reached his face up to kiss Remus gently on the lips, taking one hand and wiping away the single stray tear that had fallen down Remus's cheek. That was quite nice, Sirius murmured. So sweet a man could get a toothache. Remus smiled softly at him. It was, wasn't it? The rest of the week passed amicably. Arthur had decided to wait to tell Molly until Sunday night, their last night before the kids left for Hogwarts, and Remus and Sirius for Hogsmeade, since he and Percy were busy all week and weekend at the Ministry, still dealing with the fallout from the events at the Quidditch World Cup. Molly went to Diagon Alley to gather the kids' school supplies, taking Sirius's bag of galleons for Harry as Sirius told her that she should also use it to buy her kids' books firsthand. She blushed and tried to argue but he insisted and finally she relented. As she was about to depart, she called Sirius and Remus over and showed them the Hogwarts school supplies list for that year. Each student was requested to bring dress robes. Ha, huh. Sirius said. This wasn't on last year's list, was it, Mooney? Remus shook his head, confused. Maybe they're planning a ball of sorts. Well then, make sure you also get some first-hand robes for all the kids, Molly. Sirius told her. During the day, the kids played Quidditch in the orchard, or chased gnomes around the back garden, or threw sticks for Padfoot. Fred and George had thought Padfoot was bloody amazing and hammered Sirius with so many questions that eventually Molly shouted at them about how dangerous the Animagus process could be and how they'd better not get any ideas and how enormously illegal it was for Sirius to have done it underage, and that even when they were of age she would be sure to still be standing in the way of that. Sirius smiled sheepishly at the twins and whispered, Later. And then they got to talking with him about their dream of opening a joke shop. Weasley's wizard wheezes, showing him their remaining magical candies that their mother hadn't yet disposed of. Remus saw Sirius sneakily give them each a handful of galleons for their orders. Remus would sit and watch the kids and Sirius play Quidditch while reading, and more often than not, Hermione would join him with the standard book of spells, grade 4. She blushed furiously as she first came to sit beside him, but slowly the blush would fade as she got more comfortable. Every now and then they'd break from their reading and talk. Hermione would ask him questions and advice about the spells mentioned in the book that she'd be learning that year, and Remus told her that he was reading up on the history of Hogsmeade, winking at her as he told her that he knew more than any book about the Forbidden Forest, but had to learn more about the village. He spread his book wider for her to see the page detailing the Shrieking Shack. A long-abandoned dilapidated wooden house on a hill on the outskirts of Hogsmeade, the shack became haunted in 1971. The nature of the particular violent spirits which could be heard at least every four weeks from 1971 to 1978 are still up for debate among scholars. Though the shrieking shack has since fallen silent, with no reported screams from within its walls since June 1978. Locals and visitors of Hogsmeade are warned to never enter its walls for fear of reviving what lies within. Hermione's face had paled as she read, 
and she looked up at Remus with wide brown eyes. Her brow furrowed and she opened her mouth before closing it again, looking thoughtful. You can say anything to me, Hermione, Remus assured her. Color returned to her face as she blushed and took an exhale, collecting herself. I was just thinking. Well, will you be using the shack again this year? It might be suspect that the shack stood silent for so many years and then. Well, if the screams come back. She looked at him apologetically and continued. And the locals will surely recognize you after that article in the Prophet. It mentioned the years you were at Hogwarts. Hermione trailed off. The very werewolf who taught the current student body of Hogwarts defense against the dark arts without their parents' consent also walked among the students of Hogwarts as one of them from 1971 to 1978. The article had said, Do you think they'll figure it out? Remus asked her calmly. She nodded, eyes still wide, looking at him. Remus smiled at her. Well, I don't plan on using the shack this year. There's no need, I can transform in the forest now with Padfoot. Besides, I don't think they'd give much mind if they ever did find out the reason for the name the Shrieking Shack, considering if they found that out, they'd also be occupied by the fact that they're living in close quarters with a werewolf in the village. Hermione's face quickly washed over in worry. Oh, Remus. Don't worry, Hermione, he said, patting her lightly on her small shoulder. I won't be seen out in the village. She frowned, looking indignant. But you were just saying how much you loved going as a student. You loved the three broomsticks. And the little museum they built a few years ago you just read up on. It's not fair, you shouldn't have to stay away. Remus smiled wryly at her. Have you ever heard of glamour spells, Hermione? On Saturday it rained all day, and everyone but Arthur and Percy, who unfortunately were being called into work that weekend, played wizard's chess in a tournament. They all watched enthralled when Sirius and Remus played each other for the winning game. Sirius, of course, charmed the pieces to swear. Wanker. Or. Asshole. The kids snickered, Molly frowned, and Remus smiled serenely. Sirius made verbal commentary throughout the game. Oh, thinks he's sly, doesn't he? He'd say with a wicked grin, blocking Remus's maneuver. Remus just smiled and winked at Harry. Finally. Sirius's queen fell and he flipped the board over in a show of mock sore losing before smiling hugely at Remus, and crowing how he'd never been able to beat Mooney in chess. If I ever let him play the morning after a full moon, he'd still have me by the barlocks in good time. Everyone's faces but Harry's paled at that reference, but as Harry was now used to the marauder's humor, he just grinned and pounded Remus congratulatorily on the back. Sunday night dinnertime came and went and Arthur and Percy had not yet returned home. Molly sat agitated in the living room, glancing repeatedly to her enchanted clock to see if their hand had moved from work to traveling. The twins and Sirius were huddled in the corner of the room, whispering over a piece of parchment. I said no ideas, Sirius, Molly said sharply, catching on to them. Sirius winked at the twins and took his leave from them grinning at Molly as he strode over to perch himself on the arm of the chair Remus was seated in reading his old battered copy of Wide Sargasso Sea. Harry was polishing his firebolt by the fireplace with the broomstick servicing kit Hermione had got him for his thirteenth birthday, Ron and Ginny were playing gobstones, and Hermione was engrossed in her fourth-year spellbook, comparing the text with the parchment Remus had written her with his tips and tricks for the spells. Oh, they're on their way. 
Molly exclaimed suddenly as she saw Percy's and Arthur's clock hands move to traveling. A second later they went to home as they apparated, and they heard the back door open into the kitchen. Molly stood and rushed out to greet her husband and son, casting a warming charm with her wand over their waiting dinner plates. Well, the fat's really in the fire now, Arthur sighed, carrying his plate to join them in the living room and collapsing onto the sofa. Percy came to sit in the spare armchair, as Molly joined her husband on the sofa. Rita Skeeter's been ferreting around all week, looking for more ministry mess-ups to report. He looked up from his plate, his eyes going to Remus and Sirius. Remus closed his book silently. I'm afraid it's quite well known I was seated near you both and Harry at the cup. Arthur continued. She finally managed to corner me in the atrium on my way to disapparate. The kids looked up from their various activities. Harry's hands froze on his broom handle. I didn't say a word to her, of course, Arthur said, his voice betraying his irritation, which was immediately joined by his muttering, vile woman, under his breath, before saying louder, she's muckraking for something to fuel her implications for an investigation but she seems to have hit a dead end. Harry's shoulders sagged in relief and Sirius loosened beside Remus. And she'll stay there if she knows what's good for her, he said hotly. Sirius and Remus had been plotting in their bed each night for a way to get back at Rita Skeeter and the Prophet for publishing the article, but they hadn't latched onto the right idea yet. Besides, they kept getting distracted by the mischief in each other's eyes. They always did like the sight of the other plotting pranks. They were marauders after all. Soon Arthur had eaten and Molly ushered the kids up to bed. Night, Sirius. Night, Remus. The kids chorused as they took the stairs, Harry at the back of the group so he could give Sirius his nightly hug goodnight. Remus was always less physical with his affection, with both Sirius and Harry, except of course, with his physical affection with Sirius in private. Harry had only seen Remus hug Sirius one time, when Sirius had returned from Peter's trial. Remus's tight embrace of Harry and Sirius in the clearing that night with the dark mark in the sky had significantly surprised Harry, and told him how worried Remus had been about them. But now Harry turned to Remus on the landing and gave him a tight goodnight hug as well. It had been a wonderful week with the Weasleys for Harry, but he knew Remus and Sirius were still wrung out from the events at the cup and with that horrid woman's article. Remus hugged Harry back, and Harry found that he was quite warm. His body definitely ran hotter than Sirius's. Harry stepped out of the hug, gave them both a wave, and went up the stairs to Ron's room. Remus was folding the last of his clothes into his trunk for the journey tomorrow, reaching for the pajamas he'd laid out to sleep in tonight as Sirius lounged on Bill's transfigured bed, watching him, when Remus straightened. There were footsteps in the living room on the floor below, and now going up the stairs. They were hurried and gaining in volume as if the person were stomping. Sirius, the bed. Remus began but it was too late. Their bedroom door burst open and Molly Weasley stood in the doorway. Remus could now hear a second set of footsteps running up the stairs, chasing after her but too late. You too. Molly cried, her finger pointing at Remus and Sirius, her eyes flashing between the two of them, her voice thick with passion. Arthur appeared at her shoulder in the doorway gasping for breath and with a worried look on his face. Remus was reaching for his wand, 
meaning to cast a silencing spell, when Molly ran at him and threw her arms around his neck. Remus staggered back a bit, not from the impact, but from shock. Molly had been completely flabbergasted when Arthur had first told her, but as she sank numbly to sit on the edge of her and her husband's bed, she had listened to his stories from the Quidditch World Cup, and all of her own conflictions vanished. It had been right in front of her eyes, and she hadn't seen it, but now, with the moments Arthur had witnessed shared to her, it felt so blaringly obvious. They love each other, Molly, Arthur had said, and I've never seen anything quite like it. In Bill's old room, Molly pulled away from hugging Remus, wiping under her eyes, sniffing. Oh, you beautiful foolish boys. Arthur stepped into the room, smiling hugely. Sirius had jumped up from the bed and came to stand beside Remus and Molly. All right there, Molly, he asked her with a grin, putting his hand on the small of Remus's back. She swatted his chest. You two know how to keep people on their toes, she said before looking up to Remus's face. I'm so sorry, Remus, for what I said. About keeping your distance, I mean. I'm so sorry, please forgive me, Remus, Sirius. Of course, forgiven, Molly. Remus smiled down at her. Forgiven, Sirius told her. Molly straightened her night robe and stepped back toward the door and Arthur her face flushing a bit as she took in the transfigured bed taking up most of the room. She gave a shaky laugh and smiled. Well, better get rid of that cot, shall I? Chapter 7 Remus, sleeping on his back, opened his eyes to see Sirius's face propped up on his chest, looking up at him with pupils over large in his dark eyes. Remus's arms were wrapped around Sirius, pressing him to his chest even in sleep, and Remus smiled dreamily at him, pulling Sirius higher so their lips could meet in their morning kiss. Are you ready? Remus croaked, his voice heavy still with sleep. Sirius, his nose brushing against Remus's, shook his head gently. No, but I'm excited for the lad. His fourth year, when he comes back to us in June, he won't be a boy anymore, he'll be a young man. What will he be in December? Remus smiled softly, lifting a hand to tenderly tuck a strand of dark hair behind Sirius's ear. He'll be in need of the best Christmas he's ever had. Sirius asserted, smiling wistfully, already thinking about a tinsel and candlelight Christmas tree and presents wrapped in red and gold. Remus kissed Sirius's nose. Which he shall have. Come, Padfoot, I'm currently in need of tea. Sirius transfigured Bill's old bed back to its normal size and he and Remus carried their trunks down the stairs into the kitchen. They passed Molly on the stairs, who said she was on her way to wake the kids and that Percy was sorry to miss them but had left early to turn in a report for Crouch. Remus went quickly to the tea kettle and prepared tea for he and Sirius, and they sat side by side at the table, hands on each other's knees sipping quietly and enjoying the chirpy birdsong and the slight breeze that drifted through the open window above their heads. Remus tucked another stray hair behind Sirius's ear as the wind lifted it, and in return, Sirius kissed his cheek gently as Remus sipped from his teacup. A throat cleared in the soft silence. Remus and Sirius's head snapped to the sound, finding Ginny Weasley and Hermione Granger, their trunks and a small owl in a cage at their feet. Standing in the kitchen doorway, the sounds from the open window having hidden their footsteps from Remus. Morning, ladies, 
Sirius beamed at them. Fancy a cuppa. Oh yes, thanks. Ginny said eagerly, hurrying toward the table and serving herself. Couldn't sleep a bit last night. My Alpadwijan was so excited for today he kept hooting in his sleep. Probably dreaming about the owl feed in the owlery. I'm hoping to catch a few hours sleep on the train. The golden trio never bother talking to me on the train anyway. She waved a casual hand in Hermione's general direction. How are you two getting up to Hogsmeade, by the way? As Ginny talked, her bright hazel eyes twinkled with mirth. The corners of her lips were twitching as she held in her laughter, and there was not an ounce of a blush on her cheeks. Hermione, however, was still standing frozen in the kitchen doorway, her eyes each the size of a snitch. We'll be taking the Hogwarts Express too. Sirius grinned at Ginny. But you won't see us. We'll be in the last car. That's a shame. Ginny said, taking a seat across from Remus and Sirius. I'm sure many students would love to meet you, Sirius, and say hello to their former Professor Lupin. She said, smiling hugely at them both. Remus, who had gone rigid when Hermione and Ginny had made their presence known, relaxed a bit. His free hand was still on Sirius's knee, and Sirius had not moved his hand from Remus's either. He allowed his back and shoulders to loosen and smiled kindly at Ginny. Well, no one else's guardians will be on the train, Sirius was saying. We wouldn't want to draw further attention to Harry. Ginny smiled at the plural word. Guardians. Her mind had been churning since she had stepped into the doorway and seen Remus Lupin, her former professor, reach a deft scarred hand to tuck Sirius Black's glossy hair behind his ear, his eyes like melted chocolate, and seen Sirius lean into his tender touch, and then turn his head slightly, kissing Remus's cheek, his lips tracing lightly over the fresh scar that had not been their last school year. This is why Harry knew Remus would be staying with him and Sirius next summer. This is why Harry memorized the lunar chart. Ginny had thought. She hadn't considered Remus to be Harry's guardian until now. Sirius was Harry's godfather and guardian, according to what she knew. Remus had offered them a place to stay over the summer, as he was Sirius's best friend and cared about Harry, and Sirius hadn't the time to find somewhere secure. Earlier that week, after Sirius had declared that Remus would be coming with him to Hogsmeade, she assumed that Sirius was being a good friend. She knew from what Harry had told her that Remus had endured twelve long years of suffering and solitude, thinking his best friend had betrayed his other best friends to their death, and transforming every full moon alone. She assumed Sirius would not leave him alone to transform anymore, returning to his monthly night adventures with the wolf as Padfoot. Moreover, Remus had never been able to secure a steady job due to his condition, and Sirius could offer him a place to stay free of rent. That all made sense to her as the reasons behind why the two men would be living together. But this, this made more than sense. It was just, right. Ginny didn't even need to blink longer than it took her to recognize that. All right, Hermione, Remus said softly, looking at the bushy-haired girl who was still standing as if petrified in the doorway. Footsteps could be heard on the stairs and soon Harry, Ron, Fred, George, and Molly entered carrying their trunks, Harry with his firebolt and Hedwig's cage. Finally cracked, has she? Fred said, looking curiously at Hermione as they all had to step around her, rooted as she was in the kitchen threshold. Nah, she just walked in on Mooney and I being physically intimate. Mind you, could have been worse, 
Sirius said easily, his eyes glinting mischievously. Remus smacked Sirius's thigh, blushing, but he couldn't help smiling, and Sirius barked a laugh. What, Mooney? The kids haven't seen a kiss on the cheek. I mean, it could have been something that I can guarantee they wouldn't have seen before. Remus's cheeks turned beetroot red. Sirius, he cried in shock. Harry Potter laughed so hard he dropped his firebolt, and Hedwig hooted angrily. Fred and George's eyes were flashing from Sirius and Remus to Harry to Hermione so fast they looked like their heads might start spinning. Ron was staring at Sirius with a dumbfounded and confused look on his face, clearly having not understood any of the innuendos and maybe nothing at all of what was going on. Molly stood in the kitchen doorway, fighting back a shout at Sirius for his joke, as well as her laughter. Harry, still laughing, went over and clapped Hermione good-naturedly on the back. Come on Hermione, sounds like it was quite tame. Hermione's cheeks had colored and she was now blushing furiously, almost as much as Remus. With everyone's eyes on her, Hermione cleared her throat. Morning. She croaked, and everyone, including Remus, burst out into uproarious laughter. Arthur Weasley joined the group as they settled into their chairs to eat breakfast. What did I miss? He said, looking around the table. Harry was whispering an explanation to Ron, who still looked confused. Hermione's face was flushed, and she was still so flustered that she was attempting to eat her porridge with the wrong end of the spoon. Fred and George were leaning close to Sirius on the end of the table whispering. We thought you were a ladies' man. Nah. Sirius winked at them. Just a wolf for one wolf. Remus snorted into his teacup, cheeks still pink, and Ginny laughed so hard she almost fell out of her chair. She seemed to be catching on quickly to the marauder's humor. Ah, so we're all in the know, now. Arthur grinned. Brilliant, he said taking a seat at the table beside Molly, who was fighting a smile. Suddenly the fireplace in the living room, visible from the kitchen, roared to life, and there in the flames was the head of Amos Diggory. Arthur, Amos shouted. Mad-Eyes just reported an intruder in his yard. He was out by the dustbins, they sprayed rubbish everywhere, there's muggle, what do y'all call them? Muggle or ears. Arthur had sprung up from his chair, running over to kneel in front of the fire. Were the bins still shooting out rubbish when the muggles got there? Apparently, if Rita Skeeter gets this story, Arthur... Arthur groaned. And what about the intruder? Amos rolled his eyes. You know Mad-Eye. Might have just been a neighbor's cat, he's probably on extra alert since he's starting his new job today. Come on, best get into the office. Amos's head retreated from the flames and Arthur stood, hurriedly running to grab his cloak by the back door in the kitchen. I'd better hurry, have a great term, everyone, he said. I'm sure Molly, Remus, and Sirius will be all right taking you to King's Cross. He ran along the length of the table kissing the heads of his kids and wife before dashing out into the garden and disapparating. Mad-Eye? Harry asked Sirius. Mad-Eye Moody, the retired famous aura, remember he gifted us his car? Sirius said, tucking into his porridge. Oh right, Harry said. Isn't he that nutter? George began. We all think very highly of Mad-Eye Moody, Remus said mildly, but there was a faint sharpness in his eyes. He was a fellow member of the Order of the Phoenix. Constant vigilance, Sirius intoned. 
Fred and George looked like they wanted to say something along the lines of still a paranoid whack job but smartly stayed quiet. After breakfast, Remus and Sirius went into the village to phone for two muggle taxis to take them to King's Cross. As soon as they were out of view down the lane toward Ottery St. Catchpole, Ron erupted. Sirius Black, Sirius Bloody Black, the Society Page's biggest heartthrob, they named him Britain's most eligible bachelor in July, do y'all remember that, Fred and George, is, um, with... Ron sputtered, looking to see that Harry was glaring at him, something he never remembered doing to Ron before. My Uncle Mooney. Harry completed Ron's sentence. For how long? Hermione stammered. Since they were about sixteen. Harry answered, a smile now spreading on his face, thinking about his godfather and uncle as young boys. He did, in fact, notice the six pairs of raised eyebrows, which included Molly's, but he didn't pay them any mind. And that's the last question I'll answer, he said emphatically. You lot want to know more, ask them. Soon they were all piled into taxis on their way to King's Cross. Remus and Sirius with Harry, Ron and Hermione, Molly with the twins. Hermione's cat Crookshanks had finally emerged from wherever he'd been roaming while at the burrow, and sat purring in Sirius's lap the whole way to the station. Sirius and Remus stood on either side of Harry, Sirius with a hand on his shoulder, as they stepped through the magical barrier onto platform nine and three quarters. The Hogwarts Express with its shining scarlet engine was parked at the platform, steam billowing in the air around it, and parents and students stood crowded on the platform. They had all arrived on the platform by the time the whistle blew. Molly hugged each of her kids, and Harry and Hermione, kissing them all on the head. Thank you for having us to stay, Mrs. Weasley, Hermione told Molly as she helped Hermione load her trunk onto the train. Sirius leaned down a bit to look Harry in his brilliant green eyes. Got the mirror? He asked. Yep, Harry said, showing him the mirror in his pocket. I'll keep mine with me nearly always, Sirius said. Just tap it with your wand and give us a shout and you'll see my face appear. I'll us too, please Harry, Remus said. He was standing a little distant from Harry and Sirius, and he looked highly uncomfortable. His hands were in his pockets, and he was hunching over a bit his brown eyes weary. Around them, crowds of people were stopping to stare blatantly in awe at the famous godfather and godson. Out of the corner of his eye, Harry noticed a few people's eyes wander away from Sirius and Harry and catch sight of Remus. He saw faces pale and lips curl in disgust. Harry stepped toward him and threw his arms around Remus's waist, giving him his second hug in so many days. There were gasps of shock up and down the platform. When Harry had first embraced him, he noticed how rigid Remus's body was, but after a moment, Remus's loosened, and his arms wrapped around Harry. He bowed his head and said quietly, Take care, Harry. We'll miss you. I'll miss you too, Harry said, stepping back and hugging Sirius in turn. Come on, pup, we can talk anytime you like and visit us during Hogsmeade weekends, Sirius said cheerily. Although Remus knew it was for Harry's sake not to see how much he'd worry about and miss his godson even from the close vicinity of Hogsmeade. Sirius took Harry's trunk and Hedwig's cage and loaded them on the train. Harry hurried into the train compartment with Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Fred, and George, and the kids all leaned out the window to wave goodbye to Molly, Remus, and Sirius. See you lot soon. Sirius grinned. 
Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Have a wonderful term. Remus smiled at them. Don't do anything Sirius would do either. There was a collective chuckle at that, and Sirius winked at them before he and Remus stepped away to walk down the platform with their trunks toward the last compartment where they would be riding along to Hogsmeade. Behave, won't you? Won't you, Fred? And George? Molly said to the kids. As Sirius and Remus walked the length of the platform, there were gasps and hissed exclamations. That's Sirius Black. Oh my, that's the werewolf. But Remus's advanced ears caught a few other ones. Mum, that's my former Professor Lupin, not a bloody dark creature. Dad, stop. If he was really so dangerous, someone would have been bitten by now. I mean, he was a student and a professor and no one knew a thing. The pistons roared and the train began to move as Remus and Sirius stepped into the last car of the train and took their seats in the compartment opposite the trolley and the elderly which who operated it, Hestia Hollyworth. She smiled kindly at them, remembering them both from their years at Hogwarts and Remus's ride aboard the train last year. The train soon rounded the corner and King's Cross faded into the distance. Rain began to pelt the train's windows as they traveled north, and Harry and his friends caught up with Seamus Finnegan, Dean Thomas, and Neville Longbottom, talking entirely about the Quidditch World Cup and what they had seen happen with the riot and the dark mark. At the back of the train, Remus and Sirius leaned against one another. It felt like an open wound, traveling together on the Hogwarts Express without James and Lily. They stared out the window seeing the hills and mountains of Scotland rush by. How was riding on the train last year? Sirius whispered. Besides the Dementors, Remus asked him. Sirius shivered and Remus squeezed his hand. You'll never have to see them again, Sirius. Never, I promise you. Sirius nodded, his head on Remus's shoulder. It was the day after a full moon, Remus answered Sirius's question. I was covered in healing scars, under my robes. I was exhausted. I arrived before any of the students and found a seat before collapsing into sleep. When I woke up, it was dark, the Dementors were there, and afterward, I was staring at James's young face, with Lily's eyes, looking up at me, and I almost wept. Sirius squeezed Remus's hand now as Remus continued. I wanted to grab his shoulders and tell him, I'm so sorry, Harry. I'm so sorry I couldn't be there, that I wasn't strong enough or brave enough to find you. I'm so sorry that I am much less than half of who I once was, that I will never be able to be what you need me to be. Sirius lifted his head to look at Remus. There were tears running silently down his face, his voice had grown hoarse. Sirius released his hold of Remus's hands and reached up to cup his cheeks, wiping the tears away with his thumbs. Remus choked a strangled sob and Sirius whispered, Hush, Mooney, it's all right. Remus took several shaky breaths, the tears still flowing silently. You became his Professor Lupin, Sirius murmured. And now you are his Uncle Mooney, right where you should be, and exactly what he always needed you to be. You mustn't put so much blame upon yourself, darling. You were alone. Sirius's voice cracked. You believed I'd betrayed them and yet you survived. That's all that matters, that you got to hear. Remus blinked his eyes to clear them, and lifted his own hands to hold Sirius's wrists. And you, Sirius, you survived Azkaban, you escaped and came to find Peter and protect Harry. And you came back to me, 
he said, a soft smile spreading on his lips as he lifted one hand from Sirius's lovely, lovely wrists to his cheekbone, stroking it gently. My bright star, he whispered. Sirius leaned forward, pressing their foreheads together. Chapter 8 Rain was pelting down in torrents as Harry and his friends disembarked from the train, waving quickly at Hagrid before hurrying into the carriages which seemed to move on their own up toward Hogwarts. Remus and Sirius, hidden from view by the dark night and the sheets of rain, stepped off from the platform and headed down the lane towards Hogsmeade. Sirius cast a shield charm over their heads to keep them dry. As they approached the village, the lights becoming blurrily discernible through the rain, Remus removed his own wand from his sleeve. He lifted it towards his face, and opened his mouth to speak the glamour spell. Mooney, no, Sirius said, and suddenly snatched his wand away from him. Remus stopped walking and looked at him in confusion. What, Sirius? The three broomsticks might have a crown. I wouldn't reckon so, in this weather, Sirius said, looking at him soberly. But besides that, Ross Murta has always had a soft spot for us. If she won't rent us the room upstairs now that she knows about you, then we'll find somewhere else to stay. Sirius, there's really only one other place to rent a room in Hogsmeade and I really don't think it's worth the risk of having to stay there. It is worth it, Mooney. I won't have it otherwise. Come on now, I may be dry but I'm still bloody freezing. Sirius said, taking his hand to Remus's elbow and pulling him forward down the street. Inside the three broomsticks it was toasty warm. There was a roaring fire in the back of the pub and the tables were mostly empty besides a few travelers who were waiting out the rain with glasses of brandy. Roz Murta looked up from the bar at the sound of the door opening and stared at the two men who walked towards her. She'd know them any time, anywhere. She'd know them at a hundred years old. It was Sirius Black and Remus Lupin, two members of the group of friends that twenty years ago she could overhear calling themselves the Marauders. The group that included the late Lily and James Potter. She'd served the group Butterbeers when they first came at thirteen, and she served them hard cider and shots of fire whiskey after they reached their sixth year. The two surviving group members she'd seen in all sorts, serious and barking laughter, or brooding anger, or in drunken silliness, singing loudly, Remus with heavy shadows under his eyes and pale skin, or looking healthier and smiling softly with pink cheeks, or drunkenly nodding along with the music. They looked so good, all things considered, she thought. Still handsome as ever, both of them. Sirius still looked like a rock star, and Remus like a bookstore owner with a mysterious side. Sirius's hair was longer than she'd last seen it, and he was broader about the shoulders. Remus was just as skinny as always, and as tall as he had been when he'd shot up at sixteen, but his face was lined, he was only thirty-four, and there were new scars on his face, but now she knew why, and all she thought was she hoped he was taking care of himself, and that Sirius was taking care of him. Here they were in front of her, and she beamed with joy. As I live and breathe, she cried, running to wrap them both in a hug before stepping back. You'll be needing the room upstairs, she said, eyeing their trunks. They smiled down at her and nodded. Nice to see you again, Rizmurta, Remus said. You as well, it was Professor Lupin last year, but I know it's back to Remus now. She grinned up at him. Too right, Sirius spoke up. The room's available. It sure is, 
Rasmurta assured him. Before you head up, please, what will you have? Come now, it's the first day of term, let's toast to Harry's new school year. Harry Potter and his friends sat in soaking wet robes at the Gryffindor table in the Great Hall as the new first years of Hogwarts were sorted into their houses, also dripping water onto the stone floor. One of the new first years was shivering under Hagrid's enormous coat and was waving to his older brother, seated near Harry with the Gryffindors, and mouthing to him. Colin, I fell in the lake. Followed by two thumbs up. Once this first year, named Dennis Creevy, was sorted into Gryffindor, he rushed over to the table to join his older brother. Colin, I fell in. The boy cried as he sat at the table. It was brilliant. And something in the water grabbed me and pulled me into the boat. Cool, said Colin excitedly. It was probably the giant squid, Dennis. Wow, said Dennis, as though nobody in their wildest dreams could hope for more than being thrown into a storm-tossed, fathoms-deep lake, and being pushed out of it by a giant sea monster. As the plates and last of the puddings had been cleared, Albus Dumbledore stood from his seat in the center of the high table. So. Dumbledore declared. Now that we are all fed and watered, I must once more ask for your attention while I give a few notices. The full list of forbidden items within the castle as designated by our caretaker, Mr. Filch, is comprised of 437 items which may be viewed in Mr. Filch's office should anyone like to check it. The corners of Dumbledore's mouth twitched before he continued. As ever, I would like to remind you that the forest on the grounds is out of bounds to all students, as is the village of Hogsmeade to all below third year. Harry Potter smiled widely at this. He imagined the wolf and the dog racing and chasing one another through the forbidden forest with the full moon overhead, and Sirius had signed his Hogsmeade permission slip and he might even get to see his godfather and uncle on those weekends. It is also my painful duty to inform you that the Interhouse Quidditch Cup will not take place this year. Dumbledore continued. What? Harry gasped, his smile evaporating in shock. Fred and George were staring open-mouthed at Dumbledore, evidently too dumbfounded to speak. Ginny looked bewildered. This is due to an event that will be starting in October and continuing through the school year, taking up much of the teacher's time and energy, but I am sure that you will all enjoy it immensely. I have great pleasure in announcing that this year at Hogwarts. But just then the doors of the Great Hall swung open along with a loud rumble of thunder, and everyone turned to stare at the man standing in the doorway. He was leaning against a tall staff, covered in a black traveling cloak, illuminated by a lightning strike that flashed across the ceiling. He had grizzled dark gray hair, and as he began walking up to the high table, a dull clunk echoed with every other step. Another lightning strike lit up his face as he reached the high table. His face was a million times more scarred than Remus's. It looked rather like it had been chiseled out of weather-beaten wood. One of his eyes was beady and dark but the other was as large as a galleon, electric blue, and swiveled constantly without blinking. The strange man took the empty seat, stabbed a sausage off a plate with a huge knife he had pulled nonchalantly out of his robes, and began to sniff it. May I introduce our new defense against the dark arts teacher? Dumbledore said brightly into the stunned silence. Professor Moody. The teachers applauded, as well as a few of the less stunned students. Mad-Eye Moody is our new professor, Harry muttered, glancing at Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Fred, and George. Must be, Ron said in an awed voice, staring at Moody in fascination. 
You have to ask Sirius and Remus all about him. Ginny whispered to Harry. Maybe they can help us get full marks in his class. What happened to his face? Hermione whispered and then turned pink when Harry and Ginny glared at her. Dumbledore was clearing his throat into the murmuring silence. As I was saying, we are to have the honor of hosting a very exciting event over the coming months, an event that has not been held for over a century. It is my great pleasure to inform you that the Triwizard Tournament will be taking place at Hogwarts this year. You're joking, Fred exclaimed loudly. The tension in the Great Hall since Moody's arrival suddenly broke as nearly everyone laughed. I am not joking, Mr. Weasley, he said with a twinkle in his eyes. Some of you will not know what this tournament involves, so I hope those who do know will forgive me for giving a short explanation. Albus Dumbledore then explained to the current student body of Hogwarts that the Triwizard Tournament, a friendly competition between the largest European schools of witchcraft and wizardry, Hogwarts, Bobatons, and Durmstrang, involved three champions drawn from each school to compete in three magical tasks. However, the death toll had risen over the years and the tournament was discontinued. After several attempts to reinstate the tournament, Britain's Department of International Magical Cooperation and Magical Games and Sports thought the time was right for another attempt and ensured that no champions this year will be in mortal danger. The heads of Bobatons and Durmstrang will arrive in October with their shortlist of candidates and the selection of the three champions will take place on Halloween. An impartial judge will decide which students are most worthy to compete for the Triwizard Cup. At every house table, students were staring raptly at Dumbledore or murmuring fervently among their friends, eyes wide with excitement. However, Dumbledore then explained the new rule that only 17-year-olds and above may put their name in for the tournament, which was received with much disappointment, as well as glints of mischief in Fred and George's eyes. The delegations from Bobatons and Durmstrang will be arriving in October and staying with us throughout the year and I know that you will extend every courtesy to our foreign guests and you will give your wholehearted support to the Hogwarts champion when he or she is selected. Now, it is late. Bedtime. Chop chop. After saying the new password to the fat lady and entering Gryffindor Tower, Harry and Ron said goodnight to Hermione and Ginny, Fred and George had tucked themselves into a corner of the common room, already debating how they'd sneak by the impartial judge to put their names in for the tournament and entered their dorm room with Neville, Dean, and Seamus. I might go for it, you know, Ron said sleepily once they were all tucked in bed. If Fred and George find out how, the tournament, you never know, do you? Suppose not, Harry said, but he was thinking of what Sirius and Remus would say if they heard he had put his name in. Sirius would of course be thrilled that the tournament was taking place at Hogwarts, and Remus would probably be very curious and they'd both try to attend the tasks, no doubt, but both Sirius and Remus would be mortified if Harry put his name in, Harry was sure. They were all for Harry playing Quidditch, but competing in a tournament which historically had a death toll, even with measures against mortal threats, that seemed like something they'd be quite opposed to. And of course, there was the assured attention being the Hogwarts champion ensued, that would not do for any of them. If Harry's life came under any further scrutiny, the media might dig its claws deeper into investigating Remus, and concurrently, Sirius's guardianship. And what if, Harry thought, the media found out about Sirius and Remus being truly in love with one another? Still, as Harry drifted off to sleep, he could not help thinking about standing on the grounds, hands raised in triumph, 
as a certain girl's face glowed in admiration. At the three broomsticks, Sirius and Remus had ended up having a bit more than just a toast. By midnight, Sirius had his arms slung over Remus's shoulders and was swaying a bit as they climbed the stairs to their rented room. As soon as the door was closed and a silencing spell cast, Sirius was nipping at Remus's neck, pulling Remus's jumper over his head to reveal his bare torso. Planes of angular, lean muscle, hard and tapered with crisscrossing scars, and Remus was shaking off Sirius's leather jacket, removing his shirt, and running his long fingers down Sirius's broad chest, feeling his carved abdominal muscles, his lips behind Sirius's ear. They fell onto the bed and Sirius was kissing Remus's throat and murmuring lowly, Need you, need you. And Remus needed him, needed to be inside him, to be as connected as their two bodies could be. And soon they were, Remus with his arms wrapped around Sirius's body, face in his neck and hair, and Sirius was gasping, Please, please. After they drifted back to earth from their euphoric release and cast a cleaning spell, Sirius lay facing Remus and they smiled a little drunkenly and more than a little blissfully into each other's eyes. Chapter 9 Dear Sirius and Remus, Mad-Eye Moody is our new Dada professor. Did you already know? What a surprise. Got any tips to get on his good side? What do you reckon we can expect in his classes? Reckon he'll tell us what it's like to be an aura. I'll just tell you too, I don't really fancy hearing any stories about the war. I wouldn't mind if you two told me some, but I wouldn't really fancy that, in class, with everyone. Anyway, let me know what you think we can expect. Maybe you can come up sometime to say hello to him or you'll see him in Hogsmeade. You both should give me some credit for saving the best for last, the Triwizard Tournament is taking place at Hogwarts this year. Bobatons and Durmstrang will be arriving in October, and the champions will be drawn on Halloween by some impartial judge, and then there'll be three magical tasks we'll all get to watch the champions compete in. Only 17-year-olds can compete, by the way. Ron, Fred and George are hard-pressed about this. Anyway, reckon you both can come watch. Ask Dumbledore, I'm sure he'd let you. Once you've found a place in Hogsmeade let's use the mirror so I can see it. Talk soon, Harry. Dear Harry, that is rather surprising news that Mad-Eye took up the role of professor. He was always more a man of action, but it is quite good to hear that your new Dada professor is a proper expert in catching dark witches and wizards. I'm also sure he'll be a zero-sum grader, so make sure you mention the key points around vigilance and keeping a sharp eye out in any of your essays. With Mad-Eye, it's always about never dropping your guard. He's seen everything and I'm sure he'll have quite a few illuminating aura stories. I'm certain he won't talk about the war. Mad-Eye's a proper soldier and he knew your parents well. He would never tell stories to students about wartime as he would about being an aura. That said, if you would like to hear anything about that time, about your parents or Sirius and I, only ask. We both think it's important that you know what it was like, and what we all went through, and we'll do our best to tell you. You deserve to know, Harry, if you wish to. We'd also like to see Moody in Hogsmeade. The first Hogsmeade weekend will be the first weekend of October, so do let us know if you'd like to give us a visit. We understand if you are busy with your friends of course, and we will also see if Moody is on chaperone duty then.
That is very exciting indeed that the Triwizard Tournament is taking place. And well done that only students of age can compete, you almost gave me a heart attack for a moment before I read that there was an age limit. And mind you, Harry, my heart beats a little sturdier than the average wizard. Serious and I will certainly inquire to Dumbledore about attending the magical tasks and we look forward to hearing what it is like hosting the Bow Batten and the Durmstrang delegations at Hogwarts. Sirius is out right now house hunting and I'm writing this letter to you in the back of Hogsmeade's music shop, Dominic Maestro's. When you put on one of his vinyl records, the animated musician or band appears and you can see them perform. Sirius bought me, Electric Warrior, and, Hunky Dory, back in our school days, but over time the records warped and the dancing and singing figures faded. Now, I'm getting serious, Diamond Dogs, so he can dance along with Bowie to Rebel Rebel. With how serious is with shopping for anything, I'm sure he'll have fallen in love with the place by evening. We'll be in touch soon so we can show you where we are staying with the mirror. Enjoy your first week of classes, Harry, and we're eager to hear what you and your friends think of Moody. Remus. He folded the parchment into an envelope and handed it to the waiting snowy owl who sat perched on the edge of the counter, her head bobbing side to side to the opening sounds of Rebel Rebel. Here you are, Hedwig, Remus said affectionately. She gave one of his scarred knuckles a gentle nibble with her beak before flying out the open window of the shop. She had recognized Remus despite the glamour spell he had cast upon himself that morning. I understand wanting to know about Rosmerta, Sirius. Remus had told him as they prepared to depart the rented room that morning. But I just want to go quietly poke around the shops. There'll be plenty of time to introduce myself in Hogsmeade later and influence attitudes. Sirius had frowned. I don't like you with blonde hair. Surely you don't miss the gray streaks. Sirius had growled, vehemently shaking his head. How many times do I have to tell you, Mooney? You're beautiful always. Besides. And he had stepped closer to Remus. I thought it rather fit the Professor Lupin image. Remus had given him a kiss on the lips, smiling. The glamour is only for today. Once we're settled, we can start our campaign of changing hearts and minds on werewolves. Sirius held up the daily profit he had gotten for them that morning while he had let Remus have a lion and taken care of bringing tea and breakfast up to their room. He had folded it to the society page, where the featured article read, Unusual sight at Platform 9 and 3 quarters as Hogwarts students depart for new term. Below the headline was a magic picture of Harry stepping forward, hugging Remus on the platform, Sirius standing beside them looking proud with a huge grin on his face. The picture was animated to show Remus's arms wrap around Harry after a brief hesitation, bowing his head to speak to the teenage boy. The caption below the picture read, Harry Potter and Sirius Black spotted once again with the werewolf Remus Lupin. Seems as if Harry's kickstarted that campaign for us, Sirius had said with a gratified smile. Remus had taken the newspaper into his hands. Sirius did not look at all miffed about the article, and that must mean he considered it worth the invasion of privacy and relatively inoffensive. Remus read, there remain still lingering questions about the choice and nature of such a close relationship between Godfather and Godson with the werewolf. But it seems Harry Potter has no qualms about his safety in such close physical proximity with a dark creature.
How this has transpired and what it could mean leave us with quite a query. But, have no worries, dear readers, our loyal journalists continue their quest to make sure the boy who lives guardian is up to snuff. Remus's brow had furrowed only slightly. The article was as harmless as he could have hoped, considering the scene they had made at platform nine and three quarters. But it was hinting now at looking into the close relationship between Harry, Sirius, and Remus. Sirius, noticing Remus's now glamoured blue eyes had stopped scanning the page, had declared, Shame that their quest will remain at its dead end, don't you think? All right, Mooney, I'm off. I've a meeting with a realtor, a lovely bloke who runs the cauldron shop, Sirdiwin, he is. And you say I don't listen when you read me non-fiction books on magical villages, now who looks a fool? Oh wait, you already do with that ghastly straw blonde hair, so that's double fool for you, and I'm out ahead. Remus had chuckled and kissed Sirius one more time before Sirius strode across the room, opening the door with a flourish and giving him a parting mischievous grin. As soon as we're in our new home, I want my Mooney's grey streaked hair and his brilliant brown eyes back. Remus had blushed as he answered. And you shall, so long as the home you've picked comes with a prime spot for the record player and a decent bookshelf. Sirius had faked an affronted gasp. You doubt my worship to the supremacy of books and a record player in one's home. Remus had smiled wryly. Go on, then, Padfoot, you'll find me on the high street after your guided realtor tour. Sirius motioned to Remus's hair. Well, I'll certainly see that for miles around. The Daily Prophet had flown through the air, just missing Sirius's head as he bowed out of the room, barking with laughter. Got her balaji with the Hufflepuffs and care of magical creatures, damn it was still with the Slytherins, Ron said looking at his schedule that morning in the Great Hall. Double divination this afternoon, Harry groaned. You should have given it up like me, Hermione said. Then you'd be doing something sensible like arithmancy. As the owl post came in, Hedwig soared over to Harry. He pulled out the letter he had written in bed before breakfast, handing it to her with a pat on her snowy white head, and she flew back out the open windows. Did you ask them about Moody? Ginny asked Harry, taking a bite of her toast. Yep. Harry nodded. I'll let you lot know any advice. Hey, Harry. Neville said, looking a bit odd as he lifted up a newspaper for Harry to see. This you with Lupin. Harry's eyes widened and he took the paper from Neville, scanning the article and heaving a sigh of relief. It seemed to be pretty innocuous and didn't really seem to say anything worse than the other one about Remus. Hard to beat the prejudicial language of that one. But even as Harry exhaled, his mind nagged him a bit. The article had hinted that the close relationship of Harry and Sirius to Remus was their next focus after Remus's lycanthropy, and having come up with nothing to say about Sirius's guardianship, for now, at least. Yeah, that's me saying goodbye to him. Harry answered Neville, handing the newspaper back. Must be cool, Neville said admiringly. I mean, must be totally wicked living with Sirius. But cool that Lupin comes around. Harry felt a sudden urge to tell Neville that he could maybe see his godfather and uncle in Hogsmeade if he wanted. Harry hadn't forgotten that Neville had shut down Cormac McClag in the night in the Great Hall when everyone had found out Remus was a werewolf. But Harry held himself back, that was definitely something he'd have to offer Neville in private, and after asking his guardians if it was okay first. Herbology that morning consisted of squeezing pus out of bubotubers, 
and care of magical creatures was spent trying to get blast-ended scruts to eat handfuls of frog liver. So, quite lovely. It didn't hurt Harry, Ron, and Hermione's appetite, though, as they pounced on the lunch of lamb chops and potatoes. Divination that afternoon, as usual, started with Professor Trelawney making a mystic prediction about Harry in front of the whole class. You are a bit preoccupied, my dear, she said mournfully to Harry. My inner eye sees your soul's concern for two people very dear to you. And I fear the thing you dread the most will indeed come to pass, perhaps sooner than you think. Harry just stared at her mask-like while Ron rolled his eyes. Harry would have normally thrown anything she said out of his mind easily, considering how off she had been last year about the Grimm. But this time she had something that made his heart stutter a bit, which was something he'd never admit to anyone. Concern for two people very dear to you. Well, Professor Trelawney could just be reading the Daily Prophet. But then Harry thought of that time last term when she had gone into that weird trance and said that stuff about Voldemort returning. Dumbledore had even said it seemed genuine. The students spent their double divination mapping their planetary birth charts while snickering about Uranus and then trooped down to the Great Hall for dinner, Harry and Ron meeting up with Hermione. Potter. Hey Potter. A voice called as they were queued up in the entrance hall. Harry, Ron, and Hermione turned to see Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle standing there. What? Harry said shortly. You and your blood traitor of a godfather's pauper pet are in the paper. Malfoy said loudly, waving around the day's daily profit so everyone looked at them. Listen to this. He cried, reading the article aloud. Harry just put his hands in the pockets of his robes and held his head up high. Quite finished, Malfoy he said as soon as Malfoy looked up from reading. Malfoy sneered, his eyes glinting wickedly. So, tell me, Potter, he said. Does the monster smell as dirty as he looks? What I'd give to be that close and have my silver knife. Harry lunged towards Malfoy just as Ron and Hermione grabbed his robes, holding him back. Get stuffed, Malfoy, Ron snarled at him as he and Hermione pulled Harry further away using quite a bit of force to turn Harry away from Malfoy. Bang! Several students screamed as something white-hot grazed the side of Harry's face, and Harry plunged his hand into his robes for his wand. But before he could draw it there was another bang. And then a roar filled the entrance hall. Oh no you don't laddie. Professor Moody was stomping down the stairs into the entrance hall his wand out and pointing at a white ferret that was shivering on the stone floor exactly where Malfoy had been standing. Did he get you? Moody growled, looking at Harry. No, Harry answered. Missed. The ferret squeaked and started running. I don't think so. Moody roared again, pointing his wand and levitating the ferret into the air, bouncing it up and down on the stones. I don't like people who attack when their opponents' backs are turned. Moody growled. Stinking, cowardly, scummy thing to do. Professor Moody. Professor McGonagall cried, coming down the marble staircase. What are you doing? Teaching, said Moody. Moody, is that a student? Shrieked Professor McGonagall, dropping the books she was carrying. Yep. No. She cried, pulling out her wand and a second later Draco Malfoy lay on a heap on the floor, his face bright pink. Moody, we never use transfiguration as a punishment, Professor McGonagall said in shock. We give detention, or speak to the offender's head of house. I'll do that then, 
Moody growled, glaring at Malfoy. Malfoy, eyes watering in pain and embarrassment, glared hatefully back up at Moody, mumbling words such as my father. Oh yeah, Moody said, stumping forward closer to him. Well I know your father of old, boy. You tell him Moody's keeping a close eye on his son. Now, your head of house will be Snape, another old friend. Come on, you, he said, grabbing Malfoy by the arm and pulling him towards the dungeons. Remus Lupin stood with his eyes closed at the end of a quiet lane where Hogsmeade backed up as close as it dared to the outskirts of the Forbidden Forest. Sirius stood beside him. Remus could hear him bouncing on his feet. He felt the trickling water sensation as Sirius removed the glamour spell from Remus's face. Ah, there you are. All right, Mooney, open your eyes. Remus opened his eyes to see the sunset casting shades of peach and indigo onto a two-story white stone cottage with a gilded front door. The front garden was overflowing with flower beds and herb plots, and tall trees stood on either side of the structure, so that it looked tucked snugly in among vegetation and growth. Sirius took his hand. Come, come, he urged, leading them up the stone footpath and opening the golden front door. There was an entrance hall for hanging coats and Sirius bade them to remove their shoes and drop their trunks before they continued, stepping down the hall into the living room. The ceiling was high and the chestnut wood of the room polished deeply brown. There was a fire roaring in the fireplace, and every wall of the room besides the one with the front-facing windows was made up of shelves, which were presently empty. There was a massive sofa of red velvet, perfect for two men to spread their legs while sitting facing one another multiple plush armchairs complete with footstools, and two lamp tables each with a golden lamp. Sirius, Remus said, staring in awe at all the space on the shelves, the comfortable and resplendent furniture. It's perfect, I know. Sirius beamed proudly, pulling Remus now towards the kitchen. The kitchen was a huge space. There was a long wooden counter and a kitchen island of identical wood, a large dining table fit for twelve people surely. There was a black shining tea kettle on the stove, copper pots and pans hanging over the island, and a back door led onto the wide open back garden that left them directly facing the trees at the edge of the forbidden forest, only a little distant. Now I know what you're going to say, Sirius was saying. The kitchen is far too big for just the two of us, and we won't be having very many guests. But I was thinking, wouldn't it be nice if we could host Christmas this year? And you haven't seen upstairs yet, there's four bedrooms. Take me to ours, Remus said, his voice hoarse, peeling his eyes away from the dusk-hued trees of the forbidden forest. Take me to our bedroom. Sirius caught onto his mood immediately, and interlaced his fingers through Remus's growling deep in his chest, a broad smile spreading on his face as he led them both up the stairs, down the hall to the last door, and opened it. Remus would notice later that the bed was a four-poster, large enough to fit four men instead of just two, and the room also came with its own fireplace. Remus would notice later that the sheets were made of the finest cloth, deep maroon, and that the open window provided a view of Hogsmeade and Hogwarts Castle far in the distance on its hill. He would notice later that the room had a wardrobe far bigger than he or Sirius would need, and that the bathroom came with a clawfoot tub that they could both fit in. Remus would notice all of these things later but soon he was laying on their new bed with Sirius in his arms, and all he saw or noticed was Sirius Black.
It's wonderful, Sirius. Remus told him between kisses. You know what sold me? Sirius smiled and pointed one hand toward the hearth in the bedroom. I thought, how nice that fireplace would be for full moons. Remus, eyes enraptured upon Sirius's lovely wrist in the growing twilight, lightly brought Sirius's hand to his lips, kissing the fair skin of his inner wrist. I've a present for you, he murmured against Sirius's skin. Sirius shivered. Oh, do tell. Remus reached for his wand and said, Accio trunk. And a second later his travel trunk came flying through the open bedroom door. Remus did not take his eyes off Sirius as he slowed it with his wand and it sank on the wooden floor in front of the bed. Open it, Remus said quietly, smiling softly, looking at Sirius. Sirius beamed and jumped up, opening up the trunk and standing up a second later holding the new magical album of Diamond Dogs. His eyes were huge, his face lit from within and he looked up at Remus in wonder. The record player's just below my spare cloak, Remus told him, sitting up, smiling wider. Sirius pulled it out and carried the magical record and Remus's record player to the dresser, setting it up and turning on the record. David Bowie's figure appeared floating above the spinning record, he was cast in a faint yellow and golden hue, his hair gelled back, wearing rose-colored glasses, a cigarette between his lips, playing the guitar and dancing in a white and black tux. Sirius turned to Remus as the opening chords of Rebel Rebel began. His dark eyes were burning, his smile huge and his face flushed, his black hair tousled from their sex only minutes before, and he reached out a hand toward Remus on the bed. Dance with me, my darling. The Casanova of Gryffindor Tower, Sirius Black said. Remus rose, walking smoothly over to stand in front of Sirius leaning his head low as he took Sirius's hands, and then they were dancing like it was 1975 and they were in the Gryffindor common room. Chapter 10 And this'll be your room for Christmas break, Harry, Sirius said, angling the mirror away from himself to show his godson the bedroom he had prepared for him the day prior, although it would sit and wait for nearly three months. Sirius, as per usual, had spared no expense. The bedroom boasted a four-poster bed with a red and gold bedspread, what else, and also had several cots lined up below the window. I know it's early, we haven't asked Arthur and Molly yet of course, but I'm hoping Mooney and I can host a Christmas party this year, and these'll be for your friends if they stay the night. Sirius said as he showed the mirror the extra cots already set up below the huge window in his godson's allocated bedroom. That'd be grand, Harry Potter exclaimed propping the mirror up on the arm of the sofa in the Gryffindor common room so Ron and Hermione could see. It was late on Wednesday night, and they were the last ones left besides a few seventh years who were so busy researching potential tournament tasks that they didn't notice the two-way mirror or the men who appeared in it. The mirror moved with Sirius to show Remus leaning in the doorway of Harry's room, arms crossed casually as he smiled indulgently at Sirius. When he noticed the mirror was now facing him, he bent over a bit to look closer at Harry and his friends. How are you all finding your first week? He asked them with a soft smile. Arithmancy is brilliant, Hermione said eagerly. These two should have taken it with me. Ramus's eyes twinkled. I thought you'd quite fancy Professor Vector's class. What does Professor Trelawney have you two doing now? He said, looking at Ron and Harry. 
Horoscope charts. Ron huffed. Ah, Remus smiled wryly. Well, Moody's class is tomorrow, isn't it? All three kids' faces brightened. Yeah, we heard it's wicked. Sirius's face reappeared as he positioned the mirror on the desk in Harry's room to show both he and Remus's. I'd have killed to have Moody as my Dada professor at Hogwarts, Sirius said, and then looked with a mischievous grin at Remus. Might have even killed to have had your professor last year. Me teaching you. We wouldn't have made it past page 5 without you coming up with a scheme to use Bogarts for your own purposes. Oi. I was an excellent tutor to the youngins in your study group. Also, for your own purposes, Remus said dryly. I believe you were a little jealous of how much of my time those sessions were taking up. Or did you really want to teach first year's levitation spells? Harry smiled knowingly at Ron and Hermione, who were witnessing Sirius's and Remus's unhindered banter for the first time. It sometimes left Harry out a bit, but it was usually so entertaining that it made up for it. Just then, the portrait swung open and Neville Longbottom tripped on his robes on his way into the common room, his arms weighed down with books and rolls of parchment. Hiya, Neville, Harry told him. Hiya, Harry, Neville answered, looking disheveled and mournful. My cauldron still hasn't stopped smoking and Snape's going to have one of us sample a batch of our dreamless sleep potion by next class, he said as he staggered to the armchair beside the sofa and dropped his books. And I just know he's going to make me. Neville had looked up and saw the mirror, and noticed the fact that it did not reflect Harry, Ron, and Hermione, but instead showed Sirius Black and Remus Lupin. His mouth fell open. All right, Neville, Sirius said in the mirror. Blimey, you look so much like Frank. I told you so, Remus told Sirius with a soft smile. I still think Professor Snape shouldn't be asking students to sample their own potions on the first attempt, he said, talking to Neville. Neville's mouth worked until he found his voice. Yeah, yeah. Harry chuckled. It's a two-way mirror, Neville. Sirius and I both have one, so we can talk like this while I'm at Hogwarts. A bit of the confusion and shock ebbed out of Neville's face, and he bobbed his head, nodding, and then began to look quite excited. Reckon you both can come to Hogwarts soon. Not sure when the first task of the tournament will be but it'd be grand if you could come then. Sirius smiled hugely at Neville, his dark eyes alight as Frank and Alice's son revealed his inherited good nature and compassionate heart, and Remus smiled softly at the boy who he had taken under his wing, subtly protective, when he was a professor. Reckon we shall. Sirius answered him. The clock above the fireplace in the common room chimed twenty-two hundred hours and Remus was prompt to say, It's late and you have a rather exciting class tomorrow. I left a letter for your next professor at the end of term last year so Professor Moody knows what we've covered. You'll tell us all about the class, won't you, Harry? Harry nodded eagerly. Sure will. Constant vigilance. Sirius barked, grinning as he said Moody's famous catchphrase he told them about. Remus smiled softly at Harry and then his eyes roamed to the other faces of Ron, Hermione, and Neville. Best get some rest, you all. Good night, Hub, and good night, Ron, Hermione, Neville, Sirius said to each of the kids in turn. Night, Sirius, night, Remus. They chorused and the mirror faded back to reflect just their own faces back at them. The next day after lunch, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, along with the other Gryffindor fourth years, 
arrived at Moody's classroom and took their seats just as Moody's clomping footsteps could be heard down the corridor. Moody stomped up to his desk and sat before shaking out his grizzled gray hair and calling out the name register. Right then, he said after the last person was counted present. I've a letter from Professor Lupin about this class, he said, his magical blue eye spinning to fix itself on Harry not at all subtly. Seems you've had a pretty thorough grounding in dark creatures. Red caps, kinky punks, grindylows, coppers, and werewolves. A bit of a strangled shocked gasp filled the classroom at that, and Harry stiffened. He sat stonily staring at Moody, the electric blue eye staring back at him fixedly. Remus and Sirius had of course fought with Moody in the war, but they hadn't mentioned if he had known about Remus being a werewolf back then. But he definitely knew now. A well-rounded grounding, Hermione declared defiantly at Moody. On dark creatures and also on afflicted people she said, emphasizing the last word. Considering Moody's quite formidable appearance, there were a few stunned and impressed glances from the other students at Hermione's boldness. Right, Moody said, his normal eye looking at her while his blue eye still remained fixed on Harry. But you're behind on dealing with curses, he continued, and Harry relaxed a bit. Moody didn't seem to be dwelling on Remus Lupin's condition, just on their coursework. So I'm here to bring you up to scratch on what wizards can do to one another. So, right into it. Curses, he said, clapping his gnarled hands together and flicking his tongue over his lips. They come in many strengths and forms. Now, according to the Ministry of Magic, I'm supposed to be teaching you counter-curses and leave it at that. I'm not supposed to show you what illegal dark curses look like until you're in the sixth year. But Professor Dumbledore's got a higher opinion of your nerves, he reckons you can cope, and I say, the sooner you know what you're up against, the better. How are you supposed to defend yourselves against something you've never seen? You need to be prepared. You need to be alert and watchful. So, do any of you know which curses are most heavily punished by wizarding law? Several hands raised, including Ron's and Hermione's. Moody pointed at Ron. My dad told me about one, it's called the Imperious Curse, isn't it? Ah yes. Moody nodded. You'll be Arthur Weasley's son, eh? Your father would know that one. Gave the Ministry a lot of trouble at one time, the Imperious Curse. Moody opened his desk drawer and pulled out a glass jar with three black spiders. Ron recoiled slightly beside Harry. He hated spiders. Moody caught one of the spiders running about inside the jar and held it in his palms so they could all see it. He pointed his wand at it, and muttered, Imperio. The spider began to swing backward and forward in the air as though on a trapeze, then did a back flip, then landed on the desk before doing a series of cartwheels. Then the spider lifted six of its legs into the air, standing on two of its hind legs, and began to do what was unmistakably a tap dance. Everyone in the class started to laugh, but not moody. Think it's funny do you? He growled. You'd like it, would you, if I did it to you? The laughter died away instantly. Total control, Moody said quietly, staring at the spider with his normal eye. I could make it jump out of a window, drown itself, throw itself down one of your throats. Ron shuddered. Years back, there were a lot of witches and wizards being controlled by the Imperious Curse, Moody growled referring to the war and the height of Voldemort's power. 
some job for the ministry, trying to sort out who was being forced to act, and who was acting of their own free will. The imperious curse can be fought, and I'll be teaching you how, but it takes real strength of character, and not everyone's got it. Better avoid being hit with it if you can. Constant vigilance. He barked and everyone jumped but Harry, Ron, and Hermione, who smiled just a bit. Moody picked up the frozen spider and put it back in the jar. Anyone else know one? Another illegal curse. Hermione's hand shot up in the air again, and to Harry's slight surprise so did Neville's, although much more tentatively. Neville looked a bit surprised himself at his own daring, but then his face became more determined. Yes, Moody said, his magical and normal eye fixing on Neville. The Cruciatus Curse, Neville said. Your name's Longbottom, Moody said, his magical eye now scanning back down at the register on his desk. Neville nodded, looking a little pale but still determined. Moody turned his attention back to the jar of spiders and pulled another one out. Needs to be a bit bigger for you to get the idea, he growled thoughtfully, pointing his wand at the spider. Engorgio? The spider swelled, now larger than a tarantula. Ron pushed his chair backward as far as it would go until he bumped into Parvati and Lavender's desk behind him. Crucio. Moody muttered, pointing his wand again at the spider. The spider's legs bent into its body. It rolled over and began to twitch, rocking from side to side, and Harry knew that if it had a voice, it would be screaming. Moody's wand remained fixed on the spider and it began to shudder, to jerk more violently. Stop it, Hermione cried. Harry turned to her and saw that she was not looking at the spider, but at Neville. Neville Longbottom sat with his hands clenched on his desk, his knuckles white, his eyes wide, his face looked like a mask of horror. Moody muttered, Reducio, and then put the spider back in the jar, still twitching slightly. Pain. Moody growled in a soft voice. The torture spell was once very popular, too. Anyone know any others? Hermione's hand shook slightly as she raised her hand. Yes. Moody said, looking at her. Avada Kedavra. Hermione said softly. Several students looked uneasily at her, including Ron. Ah, yes. Moody said. The last and the worst. The killing curse. Moody pulled out the last spider and put it on his desk, raising his wand, and Harry felt a deep sense of foreboding. Avada Kedavra. Moody roared and a flash of green light shot out of his wand, along with a loud rushing sound, and then the spider rolled over, unmarked, but unmistakably dead. Moody swept the dead spider off the desk onto the floor. And there's no counter curse, Moody said calmly. There's no blocking it. Only one person known has ever survived it, and he's sitting right in front of me. Everyone, and both of Moody's eyes, turned to look at Harry. And they would have seen that he looked almost exactly like Neville had when the other spider had been under the Cruciatus curse. That was how James and Lily, Harry's parents, had died. Had they been unblemished and unmarked too? Harry thought. Had they simply seen a flash of green light, and heard the rush of speeding death, before life left their bodies, had Sirius run into the house in Godric's Hollow and seen their bodies lying on the floor, and thought, maybe for just a brief moment, that they just might be sleeping. During Harry's first week in Hope's Cottage, 
he had asked Sirius and Remus to tell him exactly how his parents had been murdered. Harry had heard their voices in their final moments while fighting Dementors last year, for that was the power of Dementors, to force their victims to relive their worst moments of their lives, and drown, powerless, in despair. Harry had heard his father shout for his mother to take Harry and run while he held Voldemort off. He had heard his mother's voice, begging Voldemort to kill her instead, refusing to step aside. But Harry needed to hear it told aloud to him. He needed to know he was not the only one who knew exactly how James and Lily Potter had died. He needed to know it was not something he was carrying alone. They had been sitting in the living room, Remus reading and Sirius and Harry playing Dobstones, and Sirius had silently collected the game and put it away before sitting on the sofa, motioning for Harry to join him. Remus had closed his book just as quietly, and came to kneel on the carpet in front of Sirius and Harry on the sofa. Once, their whereabouts were betrayed. Sirius had croaked, his dark eyes had gone a bit misted, and his already alabaster face had gone somehow even whiter, and he had looked at Harry solemnly. Voldemort went to their cottage in Godric's Hollow. Remus's hand had gone to Sirius's knee, the long, scarred fingers holding so tight that his veins showed. He killed James first, Sirius had said, and his voice cracked, his eyes had been fixed on Harry but Harry had been certain that he wasn't really seeing him anymore. Voldemort advanced on Lily, on your mother. Sirius's voice had sounded like gravel and Remus's hand had squeezed Sirius's knee somehow still tighter. And Voldemort murdered her too. Sirius had continued as tears had fallen from his eyes, streaming down his face silently. And then he turned his wand on you. Sirius raised a hand to wipe absently at his face, and his eyes seemed to focus again on Harry. I. I found them, Sirius said quietly. James's glasses were a bit askew. Lily was lying in front of your crib. And you were sitting up. You were looking down at. At your mother. Sirius faltered, and Remus had moved silently, reaching a long arm up to Sirius's face, touching his chin lightly. Sirius turned his gaze away from Harry to look at Remus, and whatever he saw there had led him to take a deep breath, look back to Harry, and say, I carried you out of that house. And I. I gave you and the motorbike to Hagrid, and I didn't think, I just went after. Sirius's eyes were burning now into Harry's. It is the second biggest regret of my life, Harry, that I left you that day. Only his experience with the mentors had prepared Harry to hear this story, and he had realized horribly that this was what the Dementors made Sirius relive, over and over, every day, for twelve years. Harry had looked at Sirius and told him, but you came back. Sirius had nodded. I came back, he said voice hoarse. Remus had used his other hand to lightly squeeze Harry's shoulder, and for a long while they had sat like that, the logs in the fire crackling. Later, after Harry had hugged his godfather and bade Remus goodnight, ascending the stairs he had turned at the last step, and had saw Sirius had not moved yet from his position on the sofa nor Remus from on his knees in front of him, and their heads had been bowed foreheads touching, and tears were once again running down Sirius's face. In Moody's classroom, Moody was speaking again, and with a massive effort, Harry pulled himself back to the present. The killing curse needs a powerful bit of magic behind it, but I'm not here to teach you how to do it. Now, if there's no counter-curse, why am I showing you? Because you've got to know. 
you've got to appreciate what the worst is. Constant vigilance, he roared, and the class jumped again, all except for Harry, who still seemed to be listening as though a little distant. Those three curses are known as the unforgivable curses, Moody said. The use of any one of them on a human being is enough to earn a life sentence in Azkaban. That's what you're up against, you need arming, and you need to practice constant, never-ceasing vigilance. Get out your quills, copy this down. They spent the rest of the class taking notes, and no one spoke until the bell rang, but as they stepped out into the corridor, people burst into talking in odd voices. Did you see it twitch? And when he killed it, just like that. Harry felt a little dizzy and nauseous. They were talking about the lesson like it was some sort of spectacular show. Hurry up, Hermione said tensely to Harry and Ron, pointing up a side passage. Neville. Neville was alone, standing halfway up the dark passage, staring at the stone wall opposite him with the same horrified wide-eyed look he had worn when Moody had demonstrated the Cruciatus curse. Neville, Hermione said gently as they approached him. Oh, hello, Neville said, looking at them, his voice much higher than usual. Interesting lesson, wasn't it? Neville, are you all right? Hermione asked him. Oh, yes, I'm fine, Neville said, again unnaturally high. Hey, we've an hour before dinner, Harry said, finding his own voice and glad that it wasn't cracking or unnaturally high like Neville's. How about we use the mirror and talk to Remus and Sirius about the lesson? Neville's eyes seemed to focus a bit, and after a frozen moment, he nodded. The mirror's in my pocket, let's just use the charms classroom, it'll be empty, Harry said, pointing up the passage where it connected with one of the larger halls, where the door to the charms room was visible. Hermione walked slowly beside Neville while Harry and Ron led the way, reaching the classroom door and stepping inside. They all sat together at one desk and Harry used a stack of your three books on charms to prop up the mirror so they could all see and he wouldn't have to hold it. Then Harry pulled out his wand, tapped the mirror, and muttered the revealing spell. Serious. Remus. Harry said as the teenager's reflected faces faded from the mirror and it became dark. Must be in his pocket. Harry explained to Neville. Ah, Harry. A voice said and then the mirror was reflecting the face of Harry's godfather, sitting on the sofa, the fireplace visible behind him. One moment, pop, Sirius said, propping up his own two-way mirror so it was on the back of the sofa. The kids could see Remus sitting on the other end of the sofa, closing his book and smiling mildly at them. How was the lesson? Remus asked them. Hermione glanced at Neville, who had gone a bit stiff his face halfway between that horrified look from earlier and a daze. Um, Harry started. Remus's brow furrowed and he glanced quickly to Sirius, who began to look worried. They both leaned closer toward the mirror. All right, Harry, Sirius asked him. Remus was noticing Neville, sitting between Ron and Hermione, and his brown eyes widened slightly. Moody showed us the unforgivable curses. Hermione said quietly. Sirius gasped loudly. Remus frowned, moving his head even closer toward the mirror. You weren't supposed to cover dark curses until your sixth year. Moody said he thought we ought to know, and that Dumbledore agreed, Harry told him. Remus looked thoughtful and concerned. Well, I suppose that now you all know what they look like, Harry, 
who had come to know a few of Remus's subtle tells, realized he was angry. His brown eyes looked sharper and his words were tight. Beside him, Sirius still looked stunned. It. Neville spoke up for the first time since the side passage. His hands were clasped in his lap, knuckles white, and he was staring wide-eyed at Remus. He swallowed and said in a small voice, It was awful. I know. Remus told him kindly, the tension fading from his face so he looked as gentle as he usually did. They are abominable. Those who face down an unforgivable curse are the bravest among us. They are our heroes. Harry felt like the fists that had been gripping his heart and stomach since Moody had shown them the killing curse had loosened, and Neville looked as if he were experiencing something similar. Do you like chocolate frogs, Neville? Remus asked him, a soft smile coming to his face. Neville nodded, his eyes had returned to their normal size, and his hands were now loose in his lap. Excellent, Remus said quietly, still smiling softly. I expect you will all find some waiting on your beds tonight after dinner. After Harry and his friends had said goodbye and closed Harry's two-way mirror, going to dinner, Sirius did the same to his mirror and stared at Remus. I'm writing to Dumbledore, Remus said immediately, standing up smoothly and going toward the writing desk in the corner, taking out a piece of parchment, quill, and ink pot. I reckon Harry and his friends should know what those curses look like but Moody should have given Neville and Harry a warning. They shouldn't have had to endure that in front of the entire class and without being properly prepared. Too right. I'll go get the chocolate frogs from Honeydukes. Sirius told him, standing as well. And I'll buy us an owl on the way back, been meaning to get one anyway. The Gryffindor table watched, stunned. As Professor Moody clumped his way into the great hall that night for dinner, heading straight for their table, and plopped a stack of books directly in front of Neville Longbottom. Heard from Professor Sprout that you're quite good at herbology, eh? He said to Neville, who was staring up at him in fright. Keep these as long as you like, Moody added before stomping away up to the high table. After dinner they climbed up the staircase to their dorm room to find handfuls of chocolate frogs on all of their beds. Neville climbed to sit on top of his blankets, opened one of Moody's books, Magical Water Plants of the Mediterranean, and a chocolate frog. He looked altogether a great deal calmer. Harry unwrapped one of his frogs and bit off its head, feeling a familiar warmth spread through his body like it always had when he had practiced his Patronus with Remus last year and had eaten chocolate to banish the last of the chill. Chocolate, it seemed, was a lot like Remus Lupin, Harry thought. Chapter 11 A week passed and the Earth rotated, and as it did so, the Earth's only natural satellite grew full. September 10th began with Remus waking up to the usual agitation of his body on the day of his transformation. He always ran hotter than the average wizard, and his heart beat a little more heartily, but on the day of a full moon he invariably shivered despite his warmth, and his heart always beat furiously, and he always woke up already pale. Remus was laying on his back, Sirius was wrapped around his body with one arm across Remus's chest with their legs intertwined. Sirius watched with sweet pleasure as Remus's eyes opened and lifted his head up to kiss Remus on the lips. Remus, one of his arms also wrapped around Sirius, pulled him closer and after their kiss, nuzzled their heads together affectionately. 
I'll go up there and ask Snivellus myself. Sirius had said at the beginning of the week and Remus had looked at him in shock. Sirius hated Severus, and Severus hated Sirius. It would cost Sirius every ounce of his considerable pride to approach Severus Snape about making Remus weekly doses of Wolf's Bane potion. It was such a testament to Sirius's love and concern for Remus, that it had almost distracted Remus from the task at hand. He had very nearly pounced on Sirius in their kitchen, plate of pork roast be damned. But once his shock and overwhelming adoration had abetted a bit, Remus had shaken his head. You know he won't, Sirius. Besides, I'm not a professor anymore so it's not anyone's concern. And regardless, the potion doesn't travel well. I would have to go into the castle to drink it. Sirius had frowned. Maybe I could learn how to brew it, he said looking thoughtful. Remus had reached his hand to Sirius's chin, getting his attention. It doesn't do anything for the pain of the transformation, Sirius. All it does is allow me to keep my mind, but in a wolf's body. Now that I have Padfoot, the wolf is almost as safe as it would be if I had the potion. I don't fancy losing my mind, of course, but the potion is extremely difficult to make and it could go horribly wrong. It's not worth it. The morning of the September full moon, Sirius bounded down the stairs and began making tea. Remus had insisted he accompany him down for breakfast, and had followed very slowly, his joints and bones cracking and protesting as the moon pulled at them, and sat gingerly down at the kitchen table. Any other time, Remus was preternaturally agile and swift, but not on the days immediately preceding and following the full moon. When he was a young boy, the transformations had barely affected him the day of, except for the rapid heartbeat, tremors and sweat right before the full moon rose, and the day after he'd only needed to sleep half the day before he could be up and about, only restricted a little by what at the time were small scars. Now, Remus was thirty-four, and the toll the transformations were taking was obvious. There was his prematurely lined face and gray-streaked hair, and the now numerous scars, which had also gotten larger. But there were also his aching muscles and bones the day of the transformation, his constant chill and shivering despite his internal warmth, and as the looming transformation seeped energy away from him, Remus grew exhausted and still more pale, his strength leaving him as intense tremors racked his body. And the entire day after the full moon night was spent recovering, with pain still lingering in every single one of his cells. Here you are, Mooney, Sirius said, placing Remus's tea in front of him, along with the teapot. Ta, Sirius. Remus said, lifting it with two hands and drinking deeply. Sirius loved the way Remus said his name. He loved the way it always sounded reverential and sincere, no matter in what tone of voice Remus said it in or who was in their company. If someone knew Remus well, the way he said Sirius's name would be a dead giveaway to the nature of their relationship. Sirius went to the stove. You'll have toast, won't you, Mooney? Remus smiled softly at him setting down his cup. I will, he answered. Sirius made them both toast, waving his wand to instantly toast the bread, and brought the jams to the table with their plates. They sat side by side, and Remus nibbled at his slowly, his elbow and wrist cracking when he had reached for the jam. Sirius had just poured him another cup of tea when a brown and black dappled owl soared through the open kitchen window and landed with a flutter of its wings on the table holding out its leg with a small letter in its claws. Thanks, Cosmos.
Sirius said, giving the owl a scratch under his beak while taking the letter from him and opening it and reading aloud. Dear Sirius and Remus, I'll be calling on the two-way mirror before dinner. Talk then. Harry. He doesn't need to do that, Remus murmured. Sirius patted his arm. Oh, Mooney, when will you learn? Anyway, he'll be telling us about Moody's lesson this week. Remus's brow furrowed slightly. He was still bothered a bit with Moody's focus on dark curses, especially the unforgivable ones, with his fourth years. Dumbledore's letter in response to Remus's had been gracious enough. The headmaster had apologized on he and Moody's behalf for not giving a proper warning to Neville and Harry, and assured Remus that there won't be any more demonstrations of the Cruciatus or the Killing Curse. However, he had not included the Imperious Curse in this, and that had made Remus uncomfortable. Sirius and Remus spent the day largely on the sofa, the teapot and a glass of milk floating in the air above them, intermittently filling their cups. Remus was wrapped up under several blankets, eyes closed and drifting in and out of sleep, while Sirius sat across from him, reading to him aloud from leaves of grass. I have heard what the talkers were talking, the talk of the beginning and the end, but I do not talk of the beginning or the end. There was never any more inception than there is now nor any more youth or age than there is now. And will never be any more perfection than there is now, nor any more heaven or hell than there is now. Urge and urge and urge, always the procreant urge of the world. Out of the dimness opposite equals advance, always substance and increase, always sex, always a knit of identity, always distinction, always a breed of life. To elaborate is no avail, learned and unlearned feel that it is so. Sure is the most certain sure, plumb in the uprights, well entitied braced in the beams. Stout as a horse, affectionate, haughty, electrical, I and this mystery here we stand. Clear and sweet is my soul, and clear and sweet is all that is not my soul. Remus awoke from his nap to the voice of Harry Potter calling through the mirror Sirius had propped up on his knee. Sirius. Remus. Harry said, his face filling the mirror. He was sitting on his bed in his Gryffindor dorm room. Higher. Pup. Sirius said, smiling and propping the mirror up on the back of the sofa so Harry could see him and Remus. How was Dada today? Harry's green eyes widened. Professor Moody demonstrated the imperious curse on each of us. He said Dumbledore wanted us to know what it feels like and practice fighting against it. Remus pushed himself to sit further upright against the sofa's pillows. His face had gone bone white, and Sirius was looking at him in alarm. I fought against it. Harry was saying excitedly. He tried to make me jump on the desk, but part of me seemed to know not to and I just kind of fell onto it. Then he made me do it for more times and by the end I could throw off the curse entirely. With effort, Sirius managed to make some of the obvious anxiety fade from his face. That's wonderful work, Harry, throwing off the imperious curse. I'm so proud of you. As am I. Remus croaked, smiling softly at Harry, but his mind was elsewhere. Dumbledore wanted the students of Hogwarts to be able to fight off the Imperious Curse, and there was a reason he had called Alastair Mad-Eye Moody out of retirement. Dumbledore thought that dark forces were stirring. It seemed Remus would have another letter to write to the headmaster, as soon as he was well. We've got loads of reading to do on the Imperious Curse by next class, Harry continued, and we have to transform a hedgehog into a proper pincushion for Professor McGonagall by next week and we've got to do another parchment of predictions for divination. 
Harry chatted to them about his classes and growing workload. I mean our owls aren't until next year. As Sirius chimed in every so often to say. Too right. Or. Ugh, I remember all those essays we had to do too on 18th century goblin rebellions. Or. Three whole books just to learn a summoning charm. After a few minutes of animated and exasperated conversing about his classes and homework, Harry leaned his head closer into the mirror, looking at Remus. All right there, Uncle Mooney, he asked a little quietly. Remus smiled back at him, fighting back a tremor. Dusk was falling behind him in the window. I'll be fine, Harry, he said gently. It happens once a month, you know. Harry's brow was furrowed, his green eyes filled with concern, and he frowned slightly. Still, he said, and then, Can we talk in the mirror tomorrow night? Remus nodded. We shall. Promise. Remus's eyes twinkled. I promise. Harry gave a little exhale and brightened. I better meet Ron and Hermione for dinner. Talk to you both tomorrow. My pup. Sirius said and Remus lifted one hand to give a weak wave to the mirror before Harry's face disappeared. Sirius set the mirror down and glanced to the window before turning back to Remus. Remus gave him a faint nod and Sirius moved closer, helping Remus unwrap the blankets and putting one arm around his waist while Remus put his arm over Sirius's shoulders. Sirius grabbed his wand, casting a warding and sealing spell over their cottage as they walked out the back door and into the spacious back garden, which led right up to the forbidden forest only a short walk away. Thought of a name yet? Remus murmured, wheezing a bit, as they walked slowly away from the cottage. He was shivering, and his teeth were clacking together, and every other step it seemed they had to pause as a tremor took over Remus's muscles. Not yet, Sirius answered. Maybe Harry'll help us come up with one, he said referring to the unnamed status of their cottage on the outskirts of Hogsmeade. Remus's legs were trembling consistently, and he was heavily short-winded by the time they reached the trees, and Sirius helped him sit gently at the base of a pine. Remus leaned against its trunk while taking deep breaths in through his nose. Shadows were elongating on the forest floor, the last rays of sunset fading as the sky went from deep blue to black. Sirius sat beside Remus and held him to his chest, running soothing feather-light hands along his trembling back and shoulders, kissing his clammy brow and lifting Remus's hair out of his eyes. Remus looked up into Sirius's eyes as his muscles seized, this time with a ferocity that signaled the transformation was starting, and hissed through gritted teeth. It's time. Sirius kissed him one last time on the cheek before moving quietly away and casting a silencing spell as Remus's back arched and his eyes closed and a scream escaped his lips. The screaming continued an endless thing. This was the hardest part of the transformation for Sirius to endure. It was selfish, Sirius knew, to acknowledge that the screams anguished him. Selfish considering what Remus was going through, that Remus was the one screaming, but he couldn't help it. Remus fell onto the forest floor, writhing, and there was a series of snaps heard through his screams as the vertebrae of his spine broke and splintered, followed by the bones of his arms and legs, and his body was shifting. Sirius changed into Padfoot with a sound like a heavy exhale and sat waiting as the screams began to morph into a howl, and then there in front of him was the panting yellow-eyed wolf. Mooney, Sirius Black murmured, and Remus opened his eyes.
He was wrapped in a blanket, lying with his head in Sirius's lap. The air was crisp and the sky was growing bright. Sirius was looking down at him and had leaves in his hair. Remus reached his hand to pluck out the leaves from Sirius's dark locks but then abruptly and instinctively rolled over, vomiting onto the pine nettles that covered the forest floor. Sirius stared in alarm. Remus only ever got sick like this when he'd spent a night alone, the wolf ravaging itself in frustration. Remus had been surrounded by his own sick when Sirius had come to get him from the cellar that July full moon. He had never reacted this badly after a night with Padfoot. Hush, it's all right, Sirius said after recovering from his surprise, taking out his wand and vanishing the sick before running his hands along Remus's back. It's all right, darling, you're all right. Remus shivered and coughed but his muscles seemed to relax and he rolled back against Sirius, curling against him, shaking. Sirius held him murmuring soothing words until the shaking seemed to ebb a bit, and he murmured. Shall I apparate us back? Remus gave a shaky nod and gripped the front of Sirius's shirt as Sirius apparated them into their upstairs bedroom. They had warded the cottage specifically so that no one but the two of them could apparate inside. Sirius carried Remus, an act that would have astounded anyone but seemed second nature to Sirius now, and lay him gently onto the bed, using his wand to light the fireplace and cast an extra warming charm. He took the glass of water that he had prepared the day before from the nightstand and lay himself beside Remus, helping Remus hold the glass with trembling hands. Remus drank deeply, his eyes closing, and after he was finished, his head sank onto the pillow, and he was asleep in seconds. Remus woke only briefly a few hours later as Sirius served him soup and more water, and then he fell asleep again wrapped snugly in Sirius's arms as the fire continued to roar in their bedroom's hearth. Just before dinner time, Remus opened his eyes again and smiled up at Sirius. Sirius's hands were massaging the knots out of his aching back, easing some of the lingering pain there. Sirius had been anxious all day. He needed to ask Mooney as soon as he was well enough about why he thought this transformation had affected him more than usual. The wolf had seemed agitated the night before, running faster than the last moon and snarling as it caught onto a smell even Padfoot couldn't sense. Fancy a cuffa? Sirius asked Remus, smiling back at him. Oh yes, Remus nodded emphatically. Sirius handed him the pile of clothes he had folded and prepared for him while Remus had slept, waited for him to dress, and then followed Remus down the stairs into the living room. Remus's joints and bones cracking all the way. They were back in their previous position from the night before, teacups in hand, with time to spare before Harry would come calling in the mirror. There was some strange smell in the forest, Remus told Sirius before he even had to ask. His voice was hoarse and he looked dreadful. There were purple shadows under his eyes despite his sleeping nearly all day, and his face was still sallow. What did you reckon it was? Sirius asked. Remus's memories of being the wolf were finicky and faint, only partial and vague recollections of smells, sights, and a few sensations, but he would remember the wolf being on edge. I don't know, Remus said, shaking his head slightly and looking thoughtful, brow furrowed. I may have to do some research. Sirius. Remus. A voice called from inside Sirius's pocket, and Sirius hurriedly pulled out the mirror. Hiya, pup. 
Sirius answered smiling at his godson, putting the mirror once again on the back of the sofa. Hiya, Harry, Remus croaked. Harry, bless him, was not as practiced with hiding his worry or shock around Remus's transformations as Sirius was, which was not much, mind you. His eyes widened in concern as he took in Remus's exhausted and wearied face. All right there, Uncle Mooney. Harry asked him the same question as the night before. I'm all right, Harry. Remus answered quietly, smiling softly at him. Stronger than I look, remember? Harry nodded, looking a little convinced, and relaxed a bit. I remember, he said, giving Remus a brave smile. Later that night, laying once again on his back with Sirius curled around him, Remus thought of the strange smell he vaguely remembered the wolf catching in the forest. Was it some new creature that had relocated there? Whatever it was, the wolf had known immediately that it was dark, and now there were two matters for Remus to write in his letter to Dumbledore. Chapter 12 Dumbledore's reply to Remus's letter included a thank you for the warning about whatever dark something it was that seemed to be roaming the forest, as well as a brief mention that Dumbledore had indeed been catching rumors and hints of dark forces stirring and felt inclined to bring Moody to Hogwarts to teach the students how to be best prepared for the worst-case scenario. I am taking the opportunity now to tell you how comforting it is to have you and Sirius in Hogsmeade this year. I trust you both are keeping a watchful eye on Harry. Perhaps I shall see you both at the upcoming Hogsmeade weekend, although I owe Professor Flitwick a game of exploding snap and if he wins, he'll get chaperone duties. Wish me luck. Kind regards. Albus Dumbledore. The rest of September passed by smoothly. Harry sent all post if he couldn't get a chance to talk to his guardians with the mirror, as his mounting schoolwork was keeping him up most nights in the common room or library with his friends. Sirius busied himself restoring an old motorbike so he could take it on joyrides and joy flights, once he charmed it, around the countryside. Remus researched potential dark creatures that might match the smell the wolf had caught and made short forays into the village to show his face to a few people and gauge reactions. Only a few villagers seemed to recognize him and know what he was. The reactions on one end of the spectrum included giving him a wide berth, paling, lips curling, and hissing, and the reactions on the other end of the spectrum included giving him a small nod and kind smile, mostly from patrons of the three broomsticks, as both Sirius and Remus could be found there on the weekends. The first Hogsmeade weekend was the first week of October, and began with the biggest news since the Quidditch World Cup final, at least the biggest news as it pertained to Harry, Sirius, and Remus. It seemed there would be political backlash in the British wizarding world against the hiring of a werewolf at Hogwarts the previous year. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Neville stepped into the three broomsticks the first weekend of October with arms weighed down by bags of goods from Honey Dukes and Zonkos. The pub was overwhelmingly crowded with students and weekend getaway visitors, and the young teenagers spotted Professor McGonagall and Professor Flitwick sitting at a corner high-top table. Sirius waved eagerly to the group from a table by the wall and Harry spotted him. Remus was sitting in a chair beside him. They were each holding a tankard of butterbeer, with four others waiting on the table for the Hogwarts students. Harry and his friends hurried over and took their chairs around the table and soon they were talking eagerly about Hogsmeade and their classes. 
They were all laughing appreciatively at Neville's story about almost summoning his entire desk instead of his charms book. Thankfully Professor Flitwick had intervened, when the door to the pub opened with a chime. The three broomsticks was loud and bustling, but the new arrival caught nearly everyone's eye. He had a bushy white mustache and was wearing emerald green robes with gold buttons and had a pompous air about him as he walked with his chest swelled out to the bar. One of the buttons on his robes clearly had an engraved M on it. Remus realized he knew of this man. He was a Ministry of Magic bureaucrat who had a holiday home in Hogsmeade. His name was Eugene Emptage. Ah, Rismurta, a glass of your finest brandy, the man cried. Slapping the wooden bar as Rosmerda fetched a bow from a high shelf and began to pour him a glass. After a summer of sweat and sweet talk, Dolores and I have finally done it. It will now be near impossible for the half-breeds to be employed in magical Britain. The umbrage and emptage decree on werewolf restrictions of employment is now law. The pub had slowly grown more and more quiet as the man had crowed out to Rosmerda his news, and by the time he had finished speaking it was nearly silent. The man raised the brandy glass that an aghast Rosmerda had put numbly down on the counter and turned to the room at large. To the safety and sanctimony of wizard kind, he crowed, may a lycanthrop never work among us again. No one raised a glass in return, and in fact Sirius Black dropped his tankard of butterbeer, which shattered on the stone floor, and which was quite unfortunate as nearly every head in the room moved to stare at him and his table, including that of Eugene Emptage. The boastful bureaucrat's small beady eyes locked on Sirius, and then almost immediately, on the man sitting beside him. His eyes did not widen, but instead they narrowed, and he smiled a malicious grin. Rismurta, Eugene Emptage said loudly. My apologies the new law does not ban werewolves from frequenting our establishments, but we'll start drawing up a more comprehensive set of restrictions in good time. Rosmerta's face had moved from stunned to outraged. She opened her mouth to throw this arsehole out of her pub, when there was another sound that caught everyone's attention. Remus Lupin had set down his butter beer and scraped back his chair. He rose to his full height, and took a moment to straighten his robes and run his long fingers through his hair so it was neatly out of his calm and measured-looking face. And then he walked coolly over to the ministry bureaucrat. Behind him, Sirius rose from his chair too, but Remus— without turning to look back at Sirius, motioned with one arm for him to stop, and Sirius stayed standing at the table. Remus couldn't see it, but his face was like thunder. Still seated, Harry's face mirrored his godfather's exactly, and Hermione, Ron, and Neville's were not far off. At their high top, Professor McGonagall and Professor Flivick looked like they considered Eugene Emptage to be a pile of dragon dumb. As Remus approached him, the man's nasty smile became a sneer and he took an enormous step back, bumping into the wooden bar. But it is not truly you and Miss Umbridge's decree, is it not? Remus Lupin said quietly to Eugene Emptage. His face was still benign, although his jaw was flexing. His restrained voice carried easily in the deadly silent pub. Would you say that it was I who inspired the legislation? Remus asked calmly. Eugene Emptage spat directly on Remus's brown loafers. Professor McGonagall gasped in affronted horror and Sirius Black growled so deeply his body seemed to vibrate, and in fact, a second later he was outwardly shaking in fury. Only his respect for Remus's wishes kept him rooted in his spot. 
Indeed, it was you, beast. Emptich said with another rotten smile. Remus merely nodded, his face remaining neutral as he said lowly. How unsurprising that you would not give credit where credit is due. Now, I've not asked for many things in my life, Eugene, but this I'd rather like you to take up to your ilk. The Lupin decree on werewolf restrictions of employment has a nice ring to it, wouldn't you say? There were a few scattered intakes of breath and surprise and confusion. Eugene Emptage's eyes narrowed further in suspicion, and he opened his mouth in outrage. But Remus continued mildly. Now, why would I want my name recorded on such a dogmatic policy? Well, Eugene. And here Remus plucked the brandy glass easily from the man's bulbous fingers and set it gently on the bar top for Rousmurda to hastily take away. As the first and only werewolf to attend and teach at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, I want it remembered what it cost me, and what it cost those of my nature. Remus paused, and smiled a sad, thoughtful smile. You see, when my story is complete, I do not want your name remotely connected to what I've faced, because, also being the only werewolf who fought at Dumbledore's side against Voldemort and his Death Eaters. And here there were collective gasps and flinches, including from Eugene Emptage. I've stared down true monsters, and you, Eugene, are, quite frankly, not worth the parchment. Eugene Emptage's face had gone red with anger as Remus had talked but then abruptly had gone white at the mention of Voldemort. Remus smiled softly at the haughty ministry man and bowed his head low so as to look him in the eye as he said in an even quieter voice that nonetheless all could hear. Run and tell your likes that Remus Lupin wants his decree rightfully sorted, and that this will not be the last time his name appears on werewolf legislation. Only the next time, it will be in reference to erasing all of your parochial policies. Hear, hear, bellowed Sirius Black slamming his fists on the wooden table in front of him, and the transfixed silence of the three broomsticks erupted. Rosmerta was yelling, Out, out this instant! As she ran around the bar and pushed Eugene Emptage so forcefully, he overbalanced and nearly toppled over. Professor Flitwick was squeaking in his high-pitched voice and Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Neville were beating their hands on the table and they were all yelling, Here, here! Along with the other students of Hogwarts as well as the patrons of the three broomsticks who had come to know Remus and Sirius over the last three weeks. Professor McGonagall had leapt from her chair and strode over to Remus, and suddenly her hands were on his face as she reached up and briskly kissed both of his cheeks. Remus Lupin blushed the color of Gryffindor Scarlet and bowed his head into her gaze, more self-conscious than he remembered being in a long while and his former head of house looked up at him through her square-shaped spectacles with proud eyes of steel. Sirius was upon Remus in the next second, a hand on his shoulder, his face looking like he was staring at the sun, and soon Harry, Ron, Neville, and Hermione were bubbling behind him. That was bloody brilliant. Eugene Emptage was finally pushed on his heels out of the three broomsticks, and Roz Murda slammed the pub door behind him and turned to the uproarious crowd with her hands on her hips. Right then, she yelled over the noise. Around on the house in the name of Remus Lupin. Everyone cheered even louder at that. Chapter 13 The October full moon preceded much the same as the previous, with the wolf leading the dog on a wild chase for whatever dark scent it had caught, although it never seemed to find the source. Remus slept the entire next day, and Sirius was almost the same 
chasing the wolf had sufficiently worn out Padfoot. But Sirius was up by mid-afternoon, and Remus slept on, buried beneath blankets. Sirius had been in the kitchen that evening when his godson had come calling in the mirror, and Sirius had greeted him warmly, propping up the mirror beside the tea kettle. Where's Remus? Harry asked immediately, his brow furrowing. Mooney and I had a tiring night, Sirius explained, running his hands through his hair. The wolf has been catching scent of something in the forest. Something we haven't encountered before, and something Padfoot can't smell. Listen, Harry. Sirius had said in a sober voice, and Harry's eyes had widened a bit at the tone shift. Whatever it is, only a werewolf seems to be able to smell it, and Mooney is certain that it is dark. We thought it might have been a traveling creature last moon, but it was here again, so it might have taken up residence in the forest. I don't want you or your friends going anywhere near the forbidden forest this year. And Sirius had smiled wryly. Consider it fully forbidden. Godfather's honor, right. Sirius had never given Harry a direct order save for one time, when he had made Harry promise not to tell Remus that he had seen him after the July full moon he spent in the cellar. So, Harry knew the weight behind Sirius's request. Yeah, Sirius. Harry had nodded earnestly. Godson's honor, we won't go near it. Sirius grinned. Good lad. Now I'm taking a couple up to Mooney, let's go say hello to him, I. Remus woke at the sound of the door opening, and smiled at the sight of Sirius holding tea and the two-way mirror. With effort that he tried to hide from Harry, although his white lips and tight jaw betrayed him, he pushed himself up by his aching elbows to prop himself up on the pillows. His face was peaky and the scars and fine lines stood out starkly as they always did around the full moons but his eyes were untroubled and warm as melted chocolate. I told him about the forest, Sirius told Remus as he handed him his teacup and sat beside him on the bed, propping the two-way mirror up with a pillow he put in the middle of the bed so Harry could see them both. Remus nodded, taking the tea gratefully. Hiya, Harry. Remus croaked, smiling softly but genuinely. Harry's green eyes were concerned, but bright. Hiya, Uncle Mooney. Harry said sincerely. Did you know that you're basically Hermione and Neville's idea of a white knight? Remus blushed shyly as Sirius Mark acted. Oi, and what am I? Harry grinned cheekily. You're a rock star, obviously. Sirius nodded, Mark acting prideful. Too right. The rest of October Remus divided his time between his research on the potential creature in the forest, which was considerably difficult and he had to admit to Sirius that he was making no headway. No books recorded how a creature might smell to a transformed werewolf, and his efforts on coming up with a way around the Lupin Decree on werewolf restrictions of employment. The law appeared with this name in the Daily Prophet the day after Eugene Emptage had shown up at the Three Broomsticks. The decree required that employers in Magical Britain run their employee applicants through the werewolf registry and disclose the findings publicly and if a werewolf was among the applicants, they were automatically to be turned away. The ministry was now to do routine checks of magical institutions to make sure no werewolves slipped through, and any offenders risked heavy fines and the werewolf employees risked a five-month stint in Azkaban. Sirius divided his time between restoring his newly purchased vintage motorbike, helping Remus come up with any potential loopholes in the law. There were only a few very particular and minuscule ones and potential means to get this information to the right sources, 
as well as his renewed plotting at how to get back at the profit for their earlier article after the Quidditch World Cup final. Sirius was convinced that the article about Remus with Harry and Sirius had helped push Umbridge and Emptage's decree through, and Remus hadn't been able to convince him otherwise, because Remus believed the same. On October 30th, the Bulbatton and Durmstrang delegations arrived at Hogwarts. During the week which preceded their arrival, it seemed all anyone at Hogwarts was talking about was the Triwizard Tournament. The Hogwarts students and staff stood in the chilly autumn air in front of the castle on the Halloween Eve, and watched as the Bulbatton delegation arrived in an enormous powder-blue horse-drawn carriage. The golden horses were each the size of an elephant. The Hogwarts students watched in awe as the carriage landed on the grass, and the largest woman any of them had ever seen disembarked from the carriage steps. She was approximately the height of Hagrid, and she had a beautiful olive-skinned face and black eyes and wore all black satin with snitch-sized opals on her necklace and many rings. The woman smiled warmly as she extended her hand to Dumbledore. My dear Madam Maxim, he said, welcome to Hogwarts. My pupils, Madam Maxim said in a deep voice, and the dozen boys and girls of Beau Battens emerged from the carriage, their robes made of fine silk and they stood staring appreciatively at Hogwarts Castle. Come, let us warm up, Madame Maxime said to her students, and the crowd parted to allow her and her students to pass up the stone steps. The Hogwarts students and staff stood waiting and shivering, and then an oddly eerie noise filled the air, a rumbling, sucking sound, as though an immense vacuum cleaner were moving along a riverbed. The lake, yelled Lee Jordan, pointing down to the Black Lake. Some disturbance was taking place deep in the center of the lake. Great bubbles were forming on the surface and waves were washing over the muddy banks. And then a whirlpool appeared and what seemed to be a long, black pole rose slowly out of its center. Slowly, magnificently, a ship rose out of the water, gleaming in the moonlight, bobbing on the turbulent water and gliding toward the bank. People disembarked and as they drew nearer, walking up the lawn toward the entrance hall, Harry saw they were all wearing fur cloaks. The man leading them was wearing a fur cloak of silver, which matched his hair. Dumbledore, he called as he approached. How are you? Blooming, thank you, Professor Karkaroff, Dumbledore replied. Karkaroff reached the light pouring from the front doors of the castle, and they saw that he was tall and thin like Dumbledore, but with white short hair and a goatee that ended in a small curl, and he was smiling, revealing yellow teeth. You don't mind if we come into the warmth, Karkaroff asked, ushering his students forward. Harry saw that one had a prominent nose and thick black eyebrows. Ron punched Harry in the arm. Harry, it's Crumb. The Hogwarts students hurried into the Great Hall and took their seats at their respective tables. The students from Bobadans took seats at the Ravenclaw table, and the Durmstrang students sat, unfortunately, at the Slytherin table. The staff of Hogwarts took their seats at the high table, with Madame Maxime on Dumbledore's left and Professor Karkaroff on Dumbledore's right. There were two extra added seats, however, which stayed empty at present. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, ghosts and guests, Dumbledore said, beaming around the Great Hall. I have great pleasure in welcoming you to Hogwarts. The tournament will be officially opened at the end of the feast. I now invite you to eat drink, and make yourselves at home. The plates and food appeared and the students all tucked in. What's that? 
Ron asked, pointing at a dish of what looked like a shellfish stew. Bouillabaisse, answered Hermione. Bless you, said Ron. It's French, Hermione huffed. It's very nice. I'll take your word for it, Ron said, turning towards the steak and kidney pudding. Excuse me, a voice said, standing behind Ron. Are you wanting the bouillabaisse? The girl was from Beau Battens and had a long sheet of silver blonde hair and large, deep blue eyes with white, even teeth. Ron went purple and stared at her with his mouth open. Yeah, have it, Harry said, handing her the plate. The girl picked it up and carried it back to the Ravenclaw table. She's a Vila, Ron said hoarsely. As the girl crossed the hall, boys' heads were turning, and some of them seemed to go as speechless as Ron had. Up at the high table, the two remaining seats were now filled. Ludo Bagman and Barty Crouch Sr. had arrived. Once the golden plates had been cleared, Dumbledore stood and a pleasant tension filled the great hall, and Harry felt a thrill of anticipation. The Triwizard Tournament is about to start, Dumbledore said, smiling. Let me introduce Mr. Bartimaeus Crouch, head of the Department of International Magical Cooperation, and Mr. Ludo Bagman, head of the Department of Magical Sports and Games. Mr. Bagman and Mr. Crouch have worked tirelessly over the last few months on the arrangements of the Triwizard Tournament, and they will be joining myself, Madame Maxim, and Professor Karkaroff on the Champions Judges panel. The casket, then, if you will, Mr. Filch. Filch approached Dumbledore, carrying a great wooden chest encrusted with jewels. There will be three tasks, Dumbledore said, and they will be spaced throughout the school year, and they will test the champions in different ways, their magical prowess, their daring, their powers of deduction, and of course, their ability to cope with danger. It seemed like no one in the Great Hall was breathing. Three champions, one from each of the participating schools. They will be marked on how well they perform each of the tournament tasks and the champion with the highest total points after task three will win the Triwizard Cup. The champions will be chosen by an impartial spectator, the Goblet of Fire. Dumbledore withdrew his wand, tapped three times on the casket, and the lids slowly opened. Dumbledore reached inside and pulled out a large, roughly hewn wooden cup filled to the brim with blue-white flames. Anybody wishing to submit themselves as champion must write their name and school on a piece of parchment and drop it into the goblet. Aspiring champions have 24 hours to put their names forward. Tomorrow night, Halloween, the goblet will return the names of the three judged most worthy to represent their schools. The goblet will be placed in the entrance hall tonight where it will be freely accessible to all those wishing to compete. I will personally be drawing an age line around the Goblet of Fire to ensure that nobody under the age of 17 will be able to cross the line. Once a champion has been selected by the Goblet of Fire, he or she is obliged to see the tournament through to the end. The placing of your name in the Goblet constitutes a binding, magical contract. There can be no change of heart once you have become a champion. Now, I think it is time for bed. Good night to you all. The next day, Harry and his friends arrived early in the entrance hall to see any potential champions put their names into the goblet. They watched as all of the Bobadon delegation put their names in, followed by all of the Durmstrang students, and when Crumb walked up and put in his piece of parchment, his fellow students stomped and roared. From Hogwarts, Angelina Johnson, a chaser on the Gryffindor Quidditch team, put her name in, along with Warrington from Slytherin and Diggory from Hufflepuff. Fred, George, and Lee entered the Great Hall shortly after, looking incredibly excited. Just taken one drop of an aging potion each, 
George said, rubbing his hands together in glee. We need only be a few months older. I'm sure Dumbledore would have thought of that. Hermione tutted. Fred, George, and Lee ignored her. Fred went first, and after a great breath and holding tightly to his roll of parchment, took a huge step over the age line around the goblet of fire. For a moment nothing happened, and George hooted in triumph, jumping over the line beside Fred. But the next second there was a loud sizzling sound and the twins were thrown out of the circle. They landed ten feet away on the stone floor, and there was a loud popping noise as they both sprouted identical long white beards. The entrance hall filled with laughter, and even Fred and George joined in. I did warn you, said an amused voice, and they all turned to see Professor Dumbledore smiling as he stepped out of the Great Hall. The Great Hall's decorations for the Halloween feast that night were brilliant. Live bats flew around the enchanted ceiling and hundreds of carved pumpkins lined every wall. The goblet of fire had been moved to the high table, directly in front of Dumbledore's seat. Fred and George, now clean-shaven after a trip to Madame Pomfrey, seemed to have gotten over their disappointment. Hope it's Angelina, Fred said as Harry, Ron, and Hermione sat down. At long last the plates from the Halloween feast were cleared, and the noise in the great hall died instantly when Dumbledore stood. When the champions' names are called, I would like them to please come up to the high table and then go through to the chamber, Dumbledore said, motioning to the door at the side of the staff table, where they will receive their first instructions. Dumbledore waved his wand, and all the candles were extinguished except for those inside the carved pumpkins. The goblet of fire sparkled bright, its blue-white flames almost painful to the eyes. The flames inside the goblet suddenly roared red and sparks began to fly from it. A tongue of flame shot into the air, and a charred piece of parchment fluttered out of it. The whole room gasped as Dumbledore caught it deftly. The champion for Durmstrang, Dumbledore called out, reading the parchment behind his half-moon spectacles, will be Victor Crumb. Applause and cheering swept the hall. Crumb stood, slouching, from the Slytherin table, and walked rather briskly and unceremoniously up to the high table and into the side chamber. The goblet turned red once more and another piece of parchment flew into the air. The champion for Bobatons, Dumbledore called, is Fleur Delica. The girl who so resembled Avila stood gracefully and swept up between the Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff tables, vanishing into the side chamber. Red flames roared once again from the goblet, and the third piece of parchment emerged from a tongue of flames. The Hogwarts champion, Dumbledore declared, is Cedric Diggory. The uproar from the Hufflepuff table was enormous. Every single Hufflepuff had jumped to their feet, screaming and stamping, and Cedric made his way past them, grinning broadly, heading into the side chamber. Harry joined in the applause. He was a bit disappointed the champion was not a Gryffindor, but he had come to really like Cedric after their brief journey together by Port Key to the Quidditch World Cup. Excellent, Dumbledore called as the tumult died down. I am sure I can count upon all of you to give your champions every ounce of support you can muster. By cheering your champion on, you will contribute in a very real. The fire in the goblet had turned red once more, and sparks flew out of it followed by a tongue of flame and another piece of parchment. Dumbledore seized the parchment and stared at it. There was a long pause as Dumbledore stared at the parchment, and everyone in the Great Hall stared at Dumbledore. 
and then Dumbledore cleared his throat and read, Harry Potter. Harry felt numb. There was a roaring in his ears. This was a dream. This was surely a dream. The Gryffindor table was all watching him with their mouths open. Harry Potter, Dumbledore called. Harry, up here if you please. Hermione gave Harry a gentle push and Harry stumbled as he got to his feet. It felt like it took him ages to walk up to the high table. Well, Dumbledore said unsmiling to Harry once he finally reached him. Through the door, Harry. Every single staff member looked astonished as Harry walked by them and into the side chamber, finding himself in a small room with a roaring fireplace. Fleur, Victor, and Cedric were grouped around the fire, silhouetted impressively by the flames. Harry just stood there, looking at the three champions. Ludo Bagman entered the room. Extraordinary, he muttered. May I introduce the fourth Triwizard Champion? Harry's name has just come out of the Goblet of Fire. The door behind them opened again, and Mr. Crouch, Professor Dumbledore, Professor McGonagall, Professor Karakoff, and Madame Maxime entered the room. Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? Dumbledore asked Harry calmly. No, Harry answered, still rather numb. Did you ask an older student to put your name in for you? No, Harry answered vehemently. We must follow the rules. Mr. Crouch spoke, eyes wide. And the rules clearly state that those people whose names come out of the Goblet of Fire are bound to compete in the tournament. How this situation arose, we do not know, Dumbledore declared. It seems to me, however, that we have no choice but to accept it. Mr. Crouch seemed to be coming out a reverie. The first task. He moved forward toward the champions. The first task is designed to test your daring, so we are not going to tell you what it is. It will take place on November 24th. The champions are not permitted to ask for or accept help from their teachers to complete the tasks in the tournament. They will receive instructions about the second task when the first is over. I think that is all. Thank you, Barty, Dumbledore said. Nightcap anyone. Mr. Crouch and Mr. Bagman shook their heads and excused themselves, saying they must get back to the ministry to share the events of the night. Madame Maxime shook her head her hand on Fleur's shoulders, sweeping her out of the room. Karkaroff beckoned Crumb and they exited in silence. Harry, Cedric, I suggest you go up to bed, Dumbledore told them. Cedric turned to Harry, smiling slightly. So, we're playing against each other again. I suppose, Harry mumbled. The inside of his head was mostly in disarray, but he knew there was something he, Dumbledore, and McGonagall needed to do right away. Cedric stepped toward the door. Coming. I, ah? Uh, I think I need to talk to Professor Dumbledore and Professor McGonagall, Harry said, finding a stronger voice. The headmaster and the head of Gryffindor House were standing by the fire, watching Harry and Cedric. Ah, okay, Cedric said. Well, see you then. See you, Harry said quietly, and Cedric left. Harry turned to face Professor McGonagall and Professor Dumbledore. Harry Potter swallowed and looked at Dumbledore. I think you'll need to send word to Sirius and Remus. And I imagine they'll be arriving here in seconds. Chapter 14 As anyone who has read Hogwarts, a history knows you cannot apparate or disapparate within Hogwarts's grounds. But that didn't seem to restrict the speed at which Harry Potter's guardians arrived at the castle that night.
Dumbledore's Phoenix Patronus arrived in their living room at their cottage in Hogsmeade while Remus and Sirius were researching on the sofa. They looked up in alarm and were on their feet before the Phoenix had even said, Harry Potter's name has just come out of the Goblet of Fire. He is now the fourth champion in the Triwizard Tournament. Sirius grabbed Remus's hand and apparated them to the boundary of Hogwarts, and they were sprinting through the gates and up the lawn. Sirius threw open the doors of the entrance hall and found Professor McGonagall, white-faced and lips pressed into a thin line, waiting for them, beckoning them towards the Great Hall. The side chamber. She called as Sirius and Remus ran past her. Harry. Sirius cried as he sprinted into the room, grabbing his godson by the shoulders. How? What? Triwizard champion. He was breathless from running. His face was bone white and his eyes were the size of an owl's. Remus stood behind Sirius, his own face pale. He stared at Harry as if he were seeing him from a great distance. Dumbledore turned to the two men. Sirius, Remus, he said. Harry tells us he did not put his name in the goblet nor ask another person to put his name in for him. Remus's eyes moved to lock onto Dumbledore's. We believe him, but someone put his name in, Remus said. His voice sounded so tight it seemed on the verge of snapping. Indeed. Dumbledore replied. Sirius tore his gaze away from Harry and released his grip on Harry's shoulders, rounding on Dumbledore. His hands were claws at his sides now. They hadn't looked like that since June. I'm afraid the contract is binding, Dumbledore was saying. Harry's name came forth. He will have to compete. Sirius made a strangled choking sound and Harry almost reached for him, but held himself back. Remus was staring at Dumbledore. Headmaster, he said quietly, his voice hoarse. Please. Remus Lupin had never asked Albus Dumbledore for anything in his entire life. He never asked to attend Hogwarts as a student, or teach as a professor. He had never asked for the Wolfsbane potion he had received the previous year or the discretion that Dumbledore had ensured around his condition when he was a student. These were things Dumbledore had approached him with, without Remus asking. But this, this was something Remus would ask for. Because it was not for him. It was for Harry. Dumbledore's eyes seemed sad. There's nothing I can do. It's just a bloody goblet. Sirius suddenly erupted. Professor McGonagall had entered the room quietly. And now she walked to stand beside Dumbledore. While he cannot accept or receive help from his teachers. She said. He will not be in mortal danger, we are assured. Sirius seemed beyond words. His mouth opened and closed, his clawed hands flexing. But it is not just the three tasks, Remus said, his voice low. Whoever put his name in, they had a reason. Remus's eyes turned to look back at Harry, and Harry's numbness seemed to fade a bit. Remus had never looked at him quite like this before. It was the way Harry had looked at him that night in July before Remus had gone down to the cellar. It was a look of overwhelming fear and concern. Harry, Remus said, it is not that serious and I do not believe that you can compete and that you will not compete well. Do you understand? Harry nodded, looking at Remus seemed to be grounding him. Beside Harry, Sirius still seemed in too much shock to speak. Someone went to great lengths to ensure Harry was made a champion, Dumbledore said, and I promise you both that we will find out who and why. It seems that there is something you must be made aware of, Remus said quickly looking between Dumbledore and McGonagall. 
It cannot be a coincidence. For the past two full moons, there has been a dark scent in the forbidden forest. One that, the wolf, has never encountered before. Sirius cannot smell it in his animagious form. Dumbledore nodded solemnly. It is highly likely that this dark entity, whatever it may be, is somehow connected to the events that transpired tonight. Thank you, Remus, for sharing this with us. Sirius seemed to finally find his voice again. Can my godson, he growled, make it one goddamn school year without finding himself in some goddamn dark plot which all seem to have culminated so far in someone attempting to murder him. Well, you weren't really attempting to murder me last year. Harry spoke up, surprising himself. McGonagall choked, Dumbledore smiled, Remus's lips twitched although his face remained pale, and Sirius stared incredulously at Harry. We don't know what they, whoever they are, want from Harry, Dumbledore said calmly. They could be merely after the Triwizard Cup winnings and saw Harry as the most likely winner. McGonagall and Sirius loudly scoffed at that. Remus's brow furrowed. He did not look convinced at all by this unlikely line of reasoning. Of course, Harry's a likely winner. Sirius growled impatiently. He made it past the obstacles to stop Quirrell getting the Philosopher's Stone at 11, he defeated a Basilisk at 12, he mastered the Patronus Charm at 13, and he can now throw off the Imperious Curse. But I don't need to remind anyone in this room that Voldemort, in some form or another, was behind two of those events and the Bloody Rat said there are other servants of his out there looking for him. There were Death Eaters seen outwardly gloating at the Quidditch World Cup and someone cast the Dark Mark two months ago. Oh, and the bloody dark entity lurking in the forbidden forest right at Hogwarts's back door. Dumbledore looked calmly at Sirius. While I did say Harry was a likely winner, I did not say it was likely that was the reason someone put his name in. That, I believe, is called wishful thinking. Bloody keep it to yourself then. Sirius snarled and Remus quietly stepped closer, putting his hand on Sirius's chest. Sirius turned to look at him. His dark eyes looked like liquid mercury. Remus didn't say anything, but Sirius's ragged breathing seemed to ease a bit. At his side, his clawed hands loosened. Something unspoken was passing between them and everyone in the room watched. After a moment, Remus stepped back, reaching now for Sirius's hand, touching Sirius's inner wrist lightly with long, deft fingers. Sirius looked up at Remus, and his face, contorted in distress and anger, relaxed a bit. Remus turned toward Dumbledore and McGonagall. The head of Gryffindor House was staring at them in confusion, her mouth open. Dumbledore was looking at them serenely. I trust you will keep us informed every step of the way, Remus said softly. We will be present at each task, and I trust that we will be told of any risks or suspicious activity as soon as you are made aware. And you can trust in return that we will investigate whatever lurks in the Forbidden Forest, and keep our focus entirely on keeping Harry safe to the best of our abilities. We are in complete agreement, Dumbledore nodded solemnly. Sirius tore his gaze from Remus to look back at Harry. I'm not angry at you, pup, he said in a hoarse voice. Harry looked at his godfather, feeling his own shock mirrored back at him. I know. Remus released his touch on Sirius's hand and Sirius stepped closer to Harry, grabbing him first by the shoulders and then pulling him into a tight hug. Harry found himself holding Sirius just as tightly in return. I think someone put my name in there to kill me, Harry whispered against Sirius's broad chest. Sirius exhaled shakily and stepped back a bit out of their embrace to look Harry in the eye. 
Remus had appeared to stand directly next to him, crouching so as to be level with Harry. His werewolf sense of hearing had allowed him to hear Harry's nervous whisper. You're a likely winner, Harry. Sirius growled, his face softening into an expression of overwhelming pride. You're more than capable of competing. I don't think the risk is the tasks themselves, you must understand. Sirius sighed heavily and his proud face became remorseful. You know that I say things I shouldn't when I'm upset, Harry. Whoever is behind this, whatever they want, they will under no circumstances get anywhere near attempting to hurt you. We believe in you, Remus told him, his brown eyes molten. And we promise no one is going to touch you, Harry. But Sirius and Remus did not say aloud all that they were thinking, which was, If someone tries to kill you, Harry, they will be stepping over our dead bodies first. Sirius gave Harry one more brief reassuring hug before stepping back, not wanting to overwhelm the young teenager. With effort, he managed a tight smile. It's late, Hup. I'm sure your fellow Gryffindors are up waiting to greet their champion. Harry nodded, although the last place he wanted to be was a crowded, loud room full of pestering students. As ever, we will be in touch, Remus told Harry quietly, also trying for a reassuring smile, and since Remus was basically an expert in reassuring smiles, his was much more believable and sincere. Harry took a deep breath and nodded. Okay, he said. Talk soon. His guardians nodded and watched as Harry Potter gave them a sheepish look and retreated out of the side chamber, heading for Gryffindor Tower. Professor McGonagall cleared her throat in the silence between the four adults, and Sirius heaved a great sigh. I know, I know, Sirius Black said, hanging his head. I scared him, shouting about all that. I'll make it up to him, I swear. Well, yes, Professor McGonagall conceded, rather surprised at this. But what I was going to say is would you and Remus like to join Madame Hooch and I sometime for dinner this week? Chapter 15 Sirius's head snapped up and he stared at his former head of house a moment before stammering. Yeah, yeah. Dinner this week. We can. Professor McGonagall nodded. I will be in touch by our post. Now, this has been a tiring turn of events, and I have much to see to. Good night to you both. The deputy headmistress of Hogwarts said and briskly swept out of the room. Dumbledore looked mildly at the two men. His hands tapered in a triangle in front of him. His blue eyes looked bright, but Remus knew the headmaster well enough to know that he was hiding his own qualms for their benefit. Nightcap! The headmaster of Hogwarts asked them. Sirius shook his head and Remus spoke for them both. I believe we have much to think about, headmaster. You will excuse us, please. Of course, Dumbledore said kindly. Perhaps I will see you both in Hogsmeade soon. But if not, until the first task on November 24th. Good night, Headmaster, Remus replied quietly, putting his hand lightly on Sirius's back and leading them out of the side chamber. Sirius and Remus walked silently through the great hall, out of the entrance doors, down the front lawn, and to Hogwarts's gates. There they disapparated and appeared a second later in their bedroom at the cottage in Hogsmeade. Remus collapsed on the edge of their bed, his hands on his knees, and watched as Sirius began shaking with passion. Sirius's face was no longer a mask of anger, but anxiety. He was staring at Remus, and Remus looked right back at him, his own eyes wide and face pale. What could they want? 
Sirius croaked, his hands morphing into claws once more at his side. Remus lifted his hands from his knees and extended them toward Sirius. Sirius took a shaking step closer and Remus clasped his fingers around Sirius's own and began massaging them like he had done all those months ago, the night Sirius had been returned to him. I don't know, Remus whispered, but Harry will be featured in the papers as a champion now. His fame and scrutiny will be more intense this year, even within the castle. We mustn't make a side spectacle of ourselves and make it worse of Harry. We'll have to be discreet, and I mean with our protection of him and our relationship, Sirius. And whoever it is, they have a strategy, which I believe is two options, either Harry as champion or Harry in the line of great danger. We both know he's an exceptional wizard, Sirius, but we know, whoever it is, that they tampered with the Goblet of Fire, right underneath Dumbledore's nose, and that they may very well tamper with other aspects of the tournament. Sirius shuddered. His anguished face locked on Remus's and Remus continued to stare back at him, his deft fingers working the sharp bones in Sirius's clawed hands. It has to be connected to Voldemort. Sirius growled. It has to be. Remus nodded his face becoming sapped of all remaining energy. Yes. Sirius made a strangled noise and Remus lifted his hands from Sirius's and reached for him, pulling him into his lap as he scooted further back on the bed. Sirius let himself be held by the taller, skinnier man, and buried his face in Remus's chest as Remus returned to methodically massaging his hands. It was a comfort for both of them. Oh, James and Lily. Sirius croaked. Imagine if they knew what Harry has gone through. What he will likely continue to face. Remus pressed his lips to Sirius's temple. They do know, Sirius, I believe that. And they are so proud of his courage. They stayed like that. Sirius curled into Remus's lap, his head pressed against Remus's chest, listening to his strong and steady heartbeat, grounding him, while Remus smoothed Sirius's hands back into their usual beauty, and they both thought of one particular memory of James and Lily in the living room of their cottage, before they had gone into hiding in Godric's hollow, playing with Harry on the carpet while Sirius and Remus had sat watching. They had all been twenty-one years old. James and Lily had looked at their toddler, with no worry or fear, despite the war waging around them. They only looked at their child and saw all of his beauty, and dreamed only of what beauty he may soon see in his life. At last, Sirius spoke again. This is going to give me gray hairs to match yours, Mooney. Remus's lips went to Sirius's forehead. Never, you'll be raven-haired until you're ninety. Remus moved them, and soon they were laying with Sirius curled against Remus's chest, Remus's arms around him, and they lay facing one another and did not sleep. Dawn broke the sky into colors of peach and pink and they watched the colors sparkle in the other's eyes, and all night they had thought of all that Harry may soon have to face and what they may do to keep him safe, and all of the unknowns and potentials. But now the sun was shining clearly beyond the windows, and they were confronted with all the beauty directly in front of them, and they both marveled internally that despite everything, that despite all that they had endured, that they had something worth fighting for. And then Sirius thought of how beautiful it was when his Mooney smiled, how his own heart trilled at being able to bring it forth upon Mooney's face and how that would be the one phrase he'd want associated with his love more than any other. Remus Lupin smiled. Sirius and Remus did not yet know this, 
but in a decade, there would be a muggle man who possessed his own breed of magic, and he would appear in a muggle film for the last time, and say a final line that would soothe a multitude of souls. They did not know, that as the dawn lit their eyes like the sweetest of fires, and Sirius reached his now smooth hands to Remus's cheeks, that he spoke words much in the same vein as that famous muggle. Come now, Sirius whispered. Smile, Mooney, it's sunrise. And Remus Lupin smiled softly down at Sirius Black. That week at Hogwarts, Ron was not speaking to Harry, and the entire school thought that Harry had entered himself for the tournament. But while the Gryffindors were impressed, the other houses certainly weren't. The next few days were some of Harry's worst at Hogwarts, and even talking to Remus and Sirius every night in the mirror did not completely lift his spirits. That Friday night Harry talked to his guardians about his upcoming detention with Professor Snape. Malfoy jinxed Hermione's teeth and she had to go to Madame Pomfrey and still it was Ron and I who got detentions. Well, at least you'll be serving detention with Ron. Remus had told him kindly and then turned to Sirius. I know for a fact how much a detention together can solve a squabble between two people who care about one another. Sirius barked a laugh. Too right. We'll be eager to hear tomorrow how you and Ron made up. Harry frowned and grumbled. Doubt it. But secretly this reassured him slightly and made him hopeful. Talk tomorrow, pup, Sirius said and Harry bade them goodbye before the mirror faded. They had been talking in the kitchen, Sirius doing most of the chatting while Remus had been preparing dinner. What they had not shared with Harry, however, was that it was dinner for four. Sirius had uncorked the red wine and set four glasses and Remus had set the pork roast, potatoes, and Brussels sprouts on the table when the doorbell rang. Sirius straightened. This is about to be the most curious dinner I've had in a while. Remus smiled at him. After you, he said, gesturing to the entrance hall. Sirius opened the door and there on the threshold stood Professor McGonagall and Madame Hooch in their traveling cloaks. Professor McGonagall was wearing velvet olive green robes beneath her cloak. Madame Hooch, the Hogwarts, flying instructor and Quidditch coach and referee, was rarely seen outside of the Quidditch pitch and her sports robes. She was a sporty, yellow-eyed witch with a spiky gray-haired pixie cut, and now she wore a set of deep blue robes. She had been a Ravenclaw during her time as a student at Hogwarts. Professor McGonagall carried a wicker basket of biscuits, bread, and port, and after she and Madame Hooch had shed their cloaks, Remus took the gifts from her and set them also on the table. Welcome, Sirius was saying as they sat. Haven't seen you since I was a Vita, he said to Madame Hooch. She smiled hugely at him, her yellow eyes sparkling. You still look almost the same. And you? Sirius grinned. They served themselves the spread in front of them, and Sirius poured their wine, and then they began to eat. You never told us in the class. Sirius turned to Professor McGonagall. When you became an Animagius. Well, I can assure you that I was of legal age. Professor McGonagall said, and although she wasn't smiling, her eyes were twinkling. It is an ability that has served me well, but I never told you, Sirius, how impressed I am with how you have used it. No witch or wizard in history, I am sure, has used enemy in the way you have. Sirius blushed, a rare thing indeed, and Remus smiled fondly at him. It was mostly James's idea. 
Sirius muttered, still pink-cheeked and taking a hearty sip of his wine. Seems it was no luck that the animal which suited you best was a dog, Madame Hooch said, her sharp eyes flitting between Sirius and Remus. Seems you were a predestined pair. Remus fought back a choke on the bite of roast he was chewing. Of course, he knew what this dinner was, but it was still a shock to have it said aloud. And what would you be? Sirius asked her brightly. Seeing as Professor McGonagall is a cat. My Patronus, before Minerva, was a caracal. Madame Hooch answered, smiling and sipping her wine. I can assume my animagius would be the same. The rest of dinner continued with Sirius, Professor McGonagall and Madame Hooch exchanging memories of Hogwarts's Quidditch matches from 1971 to 1978, and then of Harry's last three years playing for Gryffindor. Remus listened and asked questions, but mostly he sat and smiled fondly at the three of them, finding that he hoped there could be many more dinners like this ahead of them. Remus found himself wholly inspired by the two witches he had known during his youth, and Professor McGonagall who he thought he knew quite well. Minerva McGonagall and Rolanda Hooch's private relationship was a reminder that we are each the hero of our own story, and that everyone is full of surprises. Ron and Harry, unfortunately, had not made up in Snape's detentions, which they spent pickling rats' brains. Sirius and Remus were clearly disappointed by this, but nonetheless had assured Harry that the time would come soon. The full moon on November 11th occurred during a Hogsmeade weekend. The third year and above students of Hogwarts descended on the village on the Saturday that the full moon was due. But there was now a new face who had taken up residence in Hogsmeade village. She had arrived in time to do profiles on the Triwizard Champions before covering the first task and her presence essentially signaled the end of Remus's appearances in the village. Sirius, as much as we both know how I love your plotting, our focus must now entirely be on protecting Harry, the Triwizard Tournament, and the Forbidden Forest, not the Daily Prophet. Remus had told him when Sirius had returned from shopping in the village red with rage and ranting about Rita Skeeter staying in Hogsmeade. Vile prejudicial insectal woman, Sirius growled. Her article about Harry was atrocious and now she's here. Right down the lane practically. He seemed riled beyond words and was pacing in the living room. I think we've done well with influencing attitudes about werewolves in Hogsmeade, wouldn't you say? Remus asked him from the sofa. Sirius rounded on him, and his agitated eyes became instantly flirtatious, and a grin spread on his face. I'd say you've done well, and I have said it, many times, and I will say it again. He growled striding over and crawling over Remus's long legs on the sofa, his eyes burning as he straddled Remus's hips. Remus cupped Sirius's cheek and smiled wryly. So the best I can do now is avoid her. It will only feed her insatiable appetitive for gossip and stir up even more trouble for Harry. Sirius had agreed, although it greatly agitated him that Remus was being coerced into remaining unseen, glamoured or staying within their cottage despite all the new friends they had made in the three broomsticks as of late, but he knew that it was what was best for Harry's safety. Sirius and Remus needed to be focused on the true enemy, and Rita Skeeter was a sideshow. So, such as it was with the full moon and Rita Skeeter, Harry, Hermione, and Neville arrived at Sirius and Remus's cottage for tea that November Hogsmeade weekend. Ron told me to apologize to you both for not coming. 
Hermione said, rolling her eyes as she took a seat in an armchair in the living room. Remus was on the sofa, wrapped in blankets and sitting closest to the fire. Neville stood in the threshold of the living room for a moment, his eyes on Remus. Harry hurried over to sit on the sofa across from Remus, and gave him a relieved-looking smile. Remus knew why. Harry had been woefully uncomfortable within Hogwarts the last few days after the events which made him the fourth champion. Being here in the cottage, in the presence of his guardians, he felt like he could finally breathe again, and let go of some of the hanging dread about the upcoming first task that the other students would not stop talking about. Of course, Harry talked about the potential tasks with Sirius and Remus, but they didn't have to now. Today was for pleasant company and conversation, despite the looming full moon. Because, of course, that was Remus Lupin's way and he guided how everyone should act on the day before his dreadful transformation, both subliminally and consciously. Sirius patted Neville on the shoulder. How you been, lad? Neville had a bit of an uncertain look on his round face. He had stood up boldly for his former professor when he had been outed as a werewolf last year, and he clearly revered and respected him, but still, his nerves felt a bit uneasy. He had never been, knowingly, this close to Remus before he became a fully-fledged feral wolf. All right, Neville answered and squared his shoulders, walking forward and taking a seat at the armchair closest to Remus. After tea was drank and pleasantries about classes exchanged, Sirius engaged the students in a game of exploding snap while Remus watched. He had been napping before they arrived, and the tea kept him from drowsing, but he was quite evidently bone-weary. When Remus had reached upward toward the floating teapot to refill his cup, all of the young teenagers looked up in brief alarm when his shoulder joint cracked loudly. Remus winced but grabbed the teapot and filled his cup before lowering his arm, using his free hand to massage his shoulder. Sirius had fought back his urge to jump up and help. It would be the opposite of what Remus would want in front of the others. After the game, the students said their goodbyes with Harry quietly making Remus promise he would talk to him with the mirror tomorrow night, and departed. As Hermione, Harry, and Neville walked down the lane towards the high street and back to Hogwarts, Neville spoke up in a determined voice. So, there's really nothing for the pain? No, Harry sighed. Pain potions don't work on werewolf transformations. Harry briefly explained the wolf's pain potion, and what purpose it served but how it was out of Remus's reach at the moment, and how Padfoot made the knights safe. That explains the Bogart. Neville breathed in wonder after Harry finished. They were walking up toward the gates of Hogwarts now. Hermione looked at him, impressed. That's what I thought, she said. But what Harry, Hermione, and Neville did not know, that Sirius and Remus both did without needing proof, was that Remus's Bogart had since changed shape. He still dreaded the pain and toll of the transformations each month, but now there was something far worse to fear. If Remus Lupin faced a Balgart since the events of that fateful night in June when Peter Pettigrew had been discovered and Remus and Sirius had been reunited, Remus's Balgart would no longer be a full moon. It would be the prone figures of Sirius Black and Harry Potter, laying in front of him with lifeless eyes. Chapter 16 it was November 21st and Harry and Ron had still not made up. Harry had been up late in the library with Hermione, 
pretending to read up on the theory behind a summoning charm when really all he could think about was what the first task in three days could be. Finally, Harry gave up the act, said a good night to Hermione, and went up to Gryffindor Tower. As he stepped in through the portrait hole, Neville jumped up from the sofa by the fireplace and hurried over, looking a bit nervous. Hiya, Harry, Neville whispered, looking furtively around as he handed Harry a crumpled piece of parchment. Hagrid caught me on my way out of the greenhouses and asked me to give this to you. He was walking with Professor Moody, Neville said, fighting back a shudder. Neville still found Professor Moody particularly trying on his nerves, despite the gifted herbology books. Harry read the unmistakable handwriting on the parchment. Harry, meet me tonight at midnight at my cabin. Bring your cloak, Hagrid. Harry stayed in his dorm room until half past eleven before putting on the cloak and sneaking down the spiral staircase. The common room was still crowded but the students were so busy chatting excitedly they didn't notice the portrait door open and close on its own. The grounds were pitch dark as Harry walked down toward Hagrid's cabin. The Bow Batten's carriage was parked nearby. Harry knocked and Hagrid opened his cabin door. You there, Harry? Yeah. Harry answered, still invisible beneath the cloak. What's up? Got some to show you. Hagrid answered excitedly. He had, surprisingly, clearly attempted to comb his hair. Harry could see the comb's broken teeth tangled in his bushy beard. Come with me, keep quiet, and keep yourself covered with that cloak, Hagrid said, stepping fully out of the cabin, shutting his door, and setting off into the night as Harry hurried to follow. Hagrid strode up to the Bobatton's enormous carriage and knocked three times on the door. Madame Maxime opened the door and smiled at Hagrid. Oh, Hagrid, is it time? Hagrid beamed at her and held out a hand to help her down the golden steps of the carriage, and Madame Maxime took his arm as they set off walking around the paddock that kept the gigantic winged horses. Harry was essentially jogging to keep up with their long strides. They walked along the perimeter of the Forbidden Forest so that the castle and the lake were out of sight. Harry was preparing to have to stop and turn around if they entered the forest. He had made a promise to Sirius, and Harry was not about to break it, no matter what Hagrid was going to show him. But then Harry heard something. Men shouting and an ear-splitting roar filled the night. Hagrid led Madame Maxime around a clump of trees and stopped, and Harry hurried to stand beside them. Harry's mouth fell open. Four enormous dragons were rearing on their hind legs inside an enclosure, roaring and snorting with flames shooting into the dark sky from their fanged mouths at the end of the fifty-foot necks. There was a silvery-blue one with pointed horns, a smooth green-scaled one stamping and writhing mightily, a red one with gold spikes around its face, and lastly a black lizard-like one. Thirty-odd wizards were attempting to control the dragons, pulling on chains connected to their legs and necks. Keep back, Hagrid. A wizard near the fence yelled. They can shoot fire at a range of twenty feet and I've seen this horntail do forty. Stunning spells on three. Another wizard cried and each of the dragon keepers pulled out their wands as they shouted in unison. Stupefy. The dragons landed with a thud that made the trees around them quake, and the dragon keepers rushed forward to tighten the chains and fasten them to iron pegs forced deep into the ground by their wands. All right, Hagrid. The wizard who had warned Hagrid to stand back called as he walked closer, and Harry smiled underneath the invisibility cloak. It was Charlie Weasley. 
What breeds you got here, Charlie? Hagrid asked him eagerly. This is a Hungarian horntail, Charlie said, pointing to the black lizard-like dragon. There's a common Welsh green, a Swedish short snout, the blue-gray, and a Chinese fireball, the red one, of course. So, it's one there each of the champions, is it? What have they got to do, fight, M? Hagrid asked Charlie. Just get past them, I think, Charlie answered. We'll be on hand if it gets nasty. They wanted nesting mothers, I don't know why. As Charlie spoke, five of his fellow dragon handlers walked up carrying armfuls of huge gray eggs and placed them carefully by the horntail's side. But I don't envy the one that gets the horntail, Charlie continued. Vicious thing. Anyway, how's Harry? Fine, Hagrid said, still staring enraptured at the dragons. Harry turned away, stunned and in desperate need to talk to his guardians. He was so lost in his own thoughts he almost bumped directly into Professor Karkaroff, who was almost invisible in his black robes. Harry caught sight of him slinking into the trees, heading in the direction of the dragons. Harry practically ran the rest of the way back to the castle. The common room was empty now when he entered, and he flung himself on the sofa, pulling out the two-way mirror. Sirius. Remus. He whispered urgently. Their faces filled the mirror after a heartbeat. They were sitting up against the headboard of their bed, their faces lit by lamplight on Remus's bedside table. Both of their hair was sleep-tousled and Remus was blinking slowly. He was always a bit gradual on waking up, while Sirius was looking at Harry with wide eyes full of concern. Harry, are you all right? Sirius asked him breathlessly. Hagrid just showed me the first task. Harry rushed. It's dragons. I'm a goner. Sirius's and Remus's faces immediately became thoughtful, and they exchanged a quick glance before Remus spoke in a calming voice. Tell us exactly what you saw and what Hagrid told you. Harry went into detail about seeing the dragons with Hagrid and once he finished, Remus nodded. His face looked less troubled. Nesting mothers, you say. And they don't expect you to be fighting them. I think you're meant to be fetching an egg, Harry. Harry's green eyes shot wide in alarm and he slapped his forehead. Oh no, he moaned. There's hardly a spell strong enough to get through a dragon's hide. Sirius mused, a finger on his chin, and looking roused. It'll come down to agility, Sirius said quickly. Dodging around them. Oh, if only you could have your firebolt on you. He's allowed a wand, Remus said and his brown eyes flashed in triumph. The summoning charm. Sirius crowed and he looked at Harry smugly. Harry's face split into a huge grin, before he faltered. He had not yet perfected the Akio spell. I'll have to practice, Harry said hurriedly. I've only got two and a half days. We know you can master it by then, Remus told him reassuringly. And Hermione can help you. The next morning, Harry and Hermione raced into the Great Hall gulped down a glass of pumpkin juice each and stuffed toast into the pockets of their robes, preparing to run off to find an empty classroom to practice in. On their way out of the Great Hall, Harry saw Cedric leaving from the Hufflepuff table and stopped dead in his tracks. Cedric didn't know about the dragons, and Madame Maxime and Professor Karkaroff would have surely told Fleur and Victor. Wait here, just a second, Harry told Hermione and she nodded watching him as he began to follow Cedric up the marble staircase and down the right corridor on the first landing, and graciously, 
since it was still so early, they were now alone in the corridor. Cedric! Harry whisper shouted as he approached, and Cedric turned around. Hi, Cedric said. The first task is dragons, Harry told him. What? Cedric stared at him in shock. For dragons. One for each of us, and we've got to get past them. I think to an egg. Are you sure? Cedric said in a hushed voice. I saw them. But how did you find out? We're not supposed to know. Never mind that, Harry said quickly. But I'm not the only one who knows. I think Fleur and Victor know by now, Madame Maxim and Professor Karkaroff saw the dragons too. Cedric still stared at Harry, but now a puzzled look came into his eyes. Why are you telling me? Harry blinked at him. It's fair, isn't it? We all know now, so we're all on even footing. Cedric slowly nodded and then the weight of the first task seemed to hit him. Right. He murmured, almost to himself. Thanks, Harry. He said and began walking down the corridor, looking both stunned and contemplative. Harry and Hermione stayed up to midnight each night, practicing between lessons and skipping lunches, until the day before the first task, Harry successfully summoned a dictionary. The day of the first task Harry felt so nervous he wondered if he'd simply go into a trance at the sight of the dragon. At the end of lunch, Professor McGonagall strode over to Harry in the Great Hall. Potter, the champions have to come down to the grounds now. You have to get ready for your first task, she said. Good luck, Harry, Hermione called. You'll be fine. Harry exited the Great Hall with Professor McGonagall, and as they walked out into the cold November afternoon, she put her hand on his shoulder. Sirius and Remus are already here in the stands. Trust that they are there, even if you haven't the time to see them. You must keep a cool head. The main thing is to do your best. Are you all right? Yes, Harry said, although it seemed to be coming from a great distance. Yes, I'm fine. She led him beside the dragon's enclosure, to a small tent. You're to go in here with the other champions, she said in a shaky voice. And wait your turn, Potter. Good luck. She patted him once on the shoulder and left him at the tent's entrance. Inside, Fleur was sitting on a stool looking rather pale and clammy. Victor looked surlier than usual, and Cedric was pacing up and down, but he gave Harry a small smile as he entered. Mr. Ludo Bagman bounced up excitedly at Harry's entrance. Right, time to fill you in. When the audience is fully assembled, you will each select a small model from this bag and your task is to collect the golden egg. Soon, the sounds of hundreds of students and spectators could be heard on the grass, laughing, cheering, joking as they climbed what sounded like wooden stairs and took their seats. Ladies first, Bagman said and extended the bag to Fleur. She reached in and withdrew a tiny model of the Welsh green. She showed no sign of surprise. Victor was next and did not even blink when he pulled out the Chinese fireball. Cedric withdrew the Swedish short snout. Harry felt his stomach drop before he had even pulled out the Hungarian horntail. Mr. Diggy, you're first, Bagman declared. Just go out into the enclosure when you hear the whistle. And immediately after he said this, the whistle blew. Got to run, Bagman cried as he sprinted out. Cedric looked green as he followed Bagman out past the tent flaps. A second later they heard the roar of the crowd. Harry and the other three champions listened to the noise of the spectators the screaming and yelling and gasping. Finally, 
After about fifteen minutes, they heard the roar from the crowd that signaled Cedric had gotten past his dragon and gotten the golden egg. Very good, Bagman was announcing from the enclosure. And now the marks from the judges. The whistle blew again. Miss Delica, if you please. Fleur was trembling as she left the tent with her head high and her hand clutching her wand, and the same process repeated itself. Ten minutes later the crowd cheered and Fleur's marks were shown. Mr. Crumb! Bagman cried and Victor slouched out of the tent, leaving Harry feeling quite alone. But Sirius and Remus are in the crowd too. Harry told himself. They are just right there watching. Nothing can happen while they're here. I'll be able to see them if I get the chance. A few minutes later applause erupted and Harry stood up and waited. And then he heard the whistle blow. Harry walked out of the tent and across the grass toward the enclosure. Hundreds of faces looked down at him from the stands, but he couldn't see his guardians. There were too many people, and his eyes seemed unable to focus on them, for at the far end of the enclosure was the horntail, crouched around her clutch of eggs. Harry took an unsteady breath, raised his wand and shouted, Accio Firebolt! He waited, hoping, praying that it was coming. And then he heard it, speeding through the air behind him, and saw his firebolt hurtling toward him, stopping dead in midair beside him. The crowd erupted as Harry swung his leg over the broom and kicked off the ground. And then something miraculous happened. Harry felt as if he had left his fear behind him and he was back on the Quidditch pitch, or the practice fields at the burrow and Hope's cottage. Harry dove towards the eggs, the horntail's eyes following him, and he swerved expertly to avoid the jet of flame it shot out of its mouth just as if he were dodging a bludger. Great Scott, he can fly, Bagman yelled. Harry zoomed around the horntail, circling it, missing the flames as the tail spikes grazed his shoulder, ripping his robes. He felt the stinging, but the cut wasn't too deep, and he zoomed around the dragon again, taunting her, rising just out of her reach, her neck extending higher and higher until she reared up on her back legs, spreading her black leathery wings to shoot fire at him just as Harry dove. Before the dragon knew what had happened, Harry was speeding toward the unprotected eggs, seized the golden egg, and was soaring over the stands. Look at that, Bagman was shouting. Our youngest champion was the quickest to get his egg. But Harry wasn't listening. He was looking through the crowd with the sharp eyes of a seeker, and he spotted them by the announcer's stand. Harry slowed and floated in midair directly in front of Sirius Black and Remus Lupin, who were on their feet, cheering. Sirius was hooting and clapping uproariously. That's my godson. Remus was smiling the biggest smile Harry had ever seen on his face, his brown eyes shimmering with pride. That was quite some flying, Harry, Remus said as Harry floated just in front of them. Thanks, Uncle Mooney. Harry beamed back at him as he handed his godfather his golden egg. Hold on to this for me, for just a minute. Harry grinned at Sirius. Sirius took the golden egg from Harry, his face shining as brightly as the gilded oval, and raised it high above his head as the crowd erupted into tumultuous applause. Chapter 17 Harry soared back toward the champion's tent where Professor McGonagall, Professor Moody, and Hagrid were waiting, all smiling. That was excellent, Potter. Professor McGonagall cried as Harry dismounted from his firebolt. 
you'll need to see Madame Pomfrey before the judges give out your score, over there, she's just had to mop up diggory already. Harry walked into the tent and saw that walled cubicles had been added. Harry could see Cedric's silhouette against the canvas. He was sitting up. Madame Pomfrey examined his shoulder. You're very lucky. This is quite shallow. It'll need cleaning before I heal it up, though. There's our champion. A voice called into the tent, and Harry turned his head to see Sirius and Remus stepping through the canvas flap. They walked right up to Harry. Sirius still beaming and holding the golden egg aloft with one of his strong arms while Remus looked at Harry with a soft, proud smile. Both of their eyes were shining equally bright. How is the wound, Poppy? Remus asked pleasantly. Shallow. She told Remus as she poured a purple liquid on Harry's cut and tapped it lightly with her wand, healing it instantly before looking up to smile at him. How are you, Remus? Remus inclined his head. Quite well at the moment. He'll be able to get his score in just a minute. Madame Pomfrey said. If you'll excuse me. She hurried around the other side of the canvas. How does it feel now, Diggory? She was saying to Cedric. A second later two other people came through the tent flap. Hermione and Ron. Harry, you were brilliant. Hermione exclaimed. You were amazing. You really were. He really was. Sirius agreed in an odd voice, looking at Harry as if he were about to burst. But Harry was looking at Ron, who was white as a ghost and staring wide-eyed at Harry. Harry, Ron said in a very low and grave tone. Whoever put your name in that goblet? Ron suddenly stopped himself, looking towards Sirius and Remus whose faces had fallen a bit. We know, Remus said, smiling gently at him. But we'll all be supporting Harry every step of the way. Ron nodded, taking a deep breath and squaring his shoulders, turning to Harry and Harry knew that Ron was about to apologize but Harry didn't need to hear. It's all right, mate, Harry said, his adrenaline and thrill at surviving the first task washing away any residual disappointment or anger at his best friend's behavior since Halloween. No, I shouldn't have, Ron insisted. Sirius threw his arm over Ron's shoulders, ruffling his hair so that Ron grinned sheepishly. Well, what are best mates for, I? Sirius crowed, his own energy quite matching Harry's. Come on, lads, our champion's about to get his scores. Sirius handed Harry back his golden egg with a sweeping bow that made everyone chuckle, and then put his other arm over Harry's shoulder as he towed the two 14-year-old boys out of the tent flap on either side of him. Remus and Hermione followed directly behind them. Both of them seemed to be walking like they were weightless. The group stood lined up in front of the enclosure, looking up at the judges' stand, watching as Madame Maxime raised her wand and shot a large ribbon into the air that arranged itself into a figure eight. Not bad, Ron said over the cheering of the crowd, leaning around Sirius to grin at Harry. Mr. Crouch was next, giving Harry a nine. Too right. Sirius crowed, ruffling Harry's already tousled hair again. Dumbledore gave Harry another nine, and the crowd roared. Next was Bagman, and his was a solid ten. Blimey! Ron exclaimed and Sirius released the boy's shoulders as he pumped his fists in the air. Last was Professor Karkaroff, and he shot out a number four into the air. Four! Ron and Sirius bellowed furiously at the same time. But Harry didn't care. He looked to his righteously angry best mate and godfather, and then to Remus, 
who was standing on his other side, and clapping politely while looking at Harry with a twinkle in his brown eyes, and Hermione who looked as bouncing and eager as she did when she received full marks on an assignment, which was basically as enthusiastic as Hermione could be. Charlie Weasley soon came running up to the group. You're tied for first place, Harry. He cried, slapping Harry on the back. You and Crumb. Listen, I've got to run. I told mum I'd send her an owl and tell her what happened, but that was unbelievable. Oh yeah, and they told me to tell you that Bagman wants a word back in the champion's tent. Ron, Sirius, Remus, and Hermione all said they'd wait for Harry as he re-entered the tent, and stood in a tight circle talking excitedly about Harry's feet and the other champions. Harry joined the huddle of champions back in the tent. One side of Cedric's face was covered in an orange paste that seemed to be healing a burn. Cedric smiled at him. Good one, Harry. And you? Harry grinned back. Well done all of you, Ludo Bagman said as he bounced into the tent. Now, you've got a long break before the second task, which will take place at 9.30 on February 24th, but we've given you something to think about in the meantime. If you look at those golden eggs, you'll see that they open. You need to solve the clue inside the egg, because it will tell you what the second task is, and enable you to prepare. Well, off you go then. Harry rejoined Ron, Hermione, Sirius, and Remus and they all began walking toward the castle, and Harry asked them about what the other champions had done against the dragons. As they were about to round the last clump of trees on the perimeter of the forest, heading toward the front lawn, a witch jumped out from the trees in front of them. It was none other than Rita Skeeter. Congratulations, Harry, she said, beaming at him, and then glancing towards Sirius and Remus with eyes that looked like a crocodile's before it pounced on its prey. I wonder if you could give me a quick word. How do you feel about facing that dragon? Or are you quite used to magical beasts? Harry opened his mouth. He had a pretty good response lined up. Yeah, you can have a word. Goodbye. But he hadn't seen that beside him. Sirius had snapped his head to Remus, who had given him a small nod, and Sirius lunged forward. Sirius grabbed the floating notepad and quilled directly beside Rita's head, tore them into shreds faster than anyone could blink and threw it back up into the air before yanking out his wand and lighting the floating torn pieces into a ball of flames. The fire burned quickly and the ash fell directly down on top of Rita's tight blonde curls. Sirius loomed over her and the infamous journalist took an uncertain step back. You can have my word, Sirius growled, his body shaking with barely tempered fury. That if you ever write another blasphemous word about my godson or my... Sirius growled, choking back his words with all of his remaining restraint before continuing. Or Remus again, I will use all of my considerable resources to make you wish you'd never crawled out from under the pile of rat droppings I'm certain you came from. Remus had apparently decided that was enough, and had come to stand at Sirius's side, putting a hand on the small of his back and steering him away from the witch, who was staring at them open-mouthed and clearly wishing her quill hadn't been destroyed. Harry and his friends followed after the two men, with Hermione sticking her tongue out at Rita Skeeter for good measure. That night in the Gryffindor common room there was a boisterous party. Fred and George had brought food from the kitchens, along with their charmed and jinxed candies for the other students to try. Blimey, this is heavy, Lee Jordan said as he picked up the golden egg Harry had left on the table. Open it, Harry. Go on. 
Yeah, go on, open it. The other Gryffindors cheered. Harry dug his nails into the groove around the egg and pried it open. It was hollow and completely empty, but the next second the most horrible screeching sound anyone had ever heard erupted out of the egg, filling the room. Shut it! Fred yelled, covering his ears along with everyone else. What was that? Seamus Finnegan said, staring at the egg as Harry closed it. Sounded like a banshee. Maybe you've got to get past one of them next, Harry. Harry didn't even mind the thought of that. After dragons, a banshee seemed rather friendly. Besides, he had Remus to give him pointers. December passed by quickly, the first task done and the second task months away. Harry felt like he could actually focus on his classes and his friends once more. Sirius and Remus continued their work on finding loopholes and contacts concerning the Lupin decree on werewolf restrictions of employment, and they had Professor McGonagall and Madame Hooch over for another dinner. Harry had come calling on the two-way mirror as they were eating and Sirius had to duck out of the room to tell him he'd call back in a few hours, before returning to sheepishly explain the mirror to McGonagall. But to their mild surprise, she had merely said she was glad that Sirius was keeping a watchful eye on Harry, and took a bite of her lamb chop. The December 12th full moon was no different than the previous ones in Hogsmeade, but still the wolf did not find the source of the scent, and Remus grew frustrated. It's the one thing we can do for Dumbledore and I've got nothing to show after three months. Remus sighed, shaking his head. It was the night of December 14th and he was recovered from the transformation, sitting up against the headboard and reading a book by lamplight, Dark Dwellers of Albania. Sirius had his hand on Remus's thigh, and was trying his very best to focus on the fact that this entity, whatever it was, was very likely connected to Harry being a Triwizard champion, and therefore, most likely connected to Voldemort. But oh, how Sirius had always liked the sight of his Mooney deep in concentration, the way his deft hands held books, turned pages, how he could spin a quill between those long fingers, how his intelligent brown eyes flitted over the words, and how Sirius could see him thinking. But what, exactly, Remus was thinking was Sirius's favorite mystery. Sirius had always found the mystery that was Remus Lupin to be the most fascinating thing in the entire universe. And though he ached to know every thought, every secret, every feeling that transpired in Remus, the mystery itself was oh, so enchanting too. Mooney, Sirius said, his voice trying to be light but Remus looked up from the page and turned to meet his gaze. Clearly Sirius's voice was huskier than he had meant for it to be. You'll figure it out. I know you will. Remus smiled wryly. I won't if I keep getting distracted. Sirius's eyes glinted and he let his hand move higher up Remus's thigh. He heard Remus's breath come unevenly and saw his fingers had tightened on the book's cover. It's called balance, Mooney, Sirius murmured. You've been at it all day and it was just the full moon. I thought, you might need a bit of a release. Remus dropped the book to the side as Sirius's hand reached under his trousers, and a sigh of pleasure escaped from him. Sirius's lips went to Remus's jaw as he felt Remus harden beneath his stroking touch, and soon Remus's hands were on his neck pulling Sirius closer until he was straddling Remus, his hand stroking him, his lips searching over Remus's face until Remus moaned, Kiss me, and he pulled Sirius's lips to his. Afterward, Sirius lay with his head on Remus's chest, 
looking up at him, tracing along the long slashes of scars on Remus's ribs and chest, and Remus was running his long fingers in Sirius's black hair. I like balance, Remus murmured, smiling wryly with a twinkle in his eye. Sirius barked a laugh, wrapping his large hand around Remus's ribs, his eyes still burning. Oh, I know you do. It's just how we were studying for newts, don't you remember? Remus moved one hand from Sirius's hair to cup his face. I haven't forgotten a moment. Sirius lifted himself closer and kissed Remus deeply on the lips. To many more. Till the end, Mooney, you and I. Of course, Sirius. Remus told him once Sirius had ended their kiss, coming now to curl himself against Remus's body as Remus wrapped his arms around him and kissed his forehead. Till the end. Sirius smiled sleepily and snuggled closer into Remus's warmth. Love you. I love you, Sirius. Chapter 18 Potter, Weasley, will you pay attention? Professor McGonagall barked from the front of the Transfiguration classroom. Harry and Ron looked up from their sword fight with Fred and George's fake wands in the back of the class. Now that Potter and Weasley have been kind enough to act their age, I have something to say to you all. The Yule Ball is approaching, a traditional part of the Triwizard Tournament, and the ball will only be open to fourth years and above, although you may invite a younger student if you wish. Harry's heart fluttered for a moment, and he was stunned at his bodily reaction to the face which filled his thoughts. Dress robes will be worn, Professor McGonagall continued, and the ball will start at 8 o'clock on December 23rd, finishing at midnight in the Great Hall. The bell rang and students began packing their things. Potter, a word please. Professor McGonagall called above the noise. Harry came over to her desk, expecting to be chastised for he and Ron's sword fight. Potter, the champions and their partners. She started. What partners? Harry asked, confused. Your dance partners for the Yule Ball. Professor McGonagall said sharply. Harry's insides felt like they had curled up and shriveled, and his cheeks turned beetroot red. I don't dance, he said quickly. Oh, yes you do, Professor McGonagall said irritably. Traditionally, the champions and their partners open the ball. I don't dance, Harry repeated. It is tradition, Professor McGonagall said firmly. You are a Hogwarts champion and you will do what is expected of you as a representative of the school. I know for a fact that your godfather would have jumped at the chance, and I also know he will be a perfectly adequate dance teacher. Harry blinked at her, and she waved a hand irritably. I know about the two-way mirror. Now, make sure you get yourself a partner, and get yourself some proper dance lessons from Sirius. She said in a very final sort of way. Ready. And one, two, three. Sirius black intoned as he waltzed partnerless across the living room of the cottage in Hogsmeade. He was wearing slim-fit black jeans and a loose white evening shirt with the top unbuttoned. His long black hair, reaching to his shoulders, was lit by the bright flames of the fireplace as he spun gracefully on the carpet. In the empty history of magic classroom at midnight, Harry Potter copied him, focusing on not tripping on his own feet, his green eyes tight in concentration. Very good, Harry. Remus Lupin said from the armchair he was watching both Sirius and Harry from. The two-way mirror was floating in midair at chest level with Sirius in the living room. Remus was wearing one of his usual jumpers, a faded red wool number, with the sleeves rolled up to his elbows. 
It was the most skin he ever showed in front of Harry, and still the scars slashing across his forearms had been a bit jarring at first. But now Harry barely registered the scars, and just saw Remus, comfort, and kindness, and subtle love that reflected Remus's own subtle strength, and which both ran bone deep and revealed themselves in small moments. Harry groaned. I'd rather face the dragon again than do this in front of the entire school and the Durmstrang and Bobatton students. Sirius grinned, spinning out the last of his waltz. At least you never had to do this in front of the gathered guests at ye old ancient house of black, he said briskly, turning on his heels to face his godson in the mirror. Harry Potter mumbled something about how that was still better than dancing beside the tall and impressive and seventeen-year-old other champions which included a Partvila girl and the world's most famous Quidditch seeker, and Sirius barked in laughter. It's only one dance, pup. Surely there's a witch or wizard who's caught your eye and who you'd like to woo off their feet at the ball. He added with an arched brow and a wink. Harry's cheeks turned, somehow, deeper red. Oh, who is it, Harry? Sirius stepped closer to the mirror with a mischievous grin. Do tell. Harry shook his head. I can't he insisted. Sirius waggled his eyebrows and locked eyes with Remus. Oh, a secret crush. Must be a close friend. Or... Can you do the steps again? Harry called loudly through the mirror and Remus smiled as Sirius laughed. He could really use a partner demonstration, Mooney. Sirius repeated what he had said earlier in the evening, looking at Remus with a pining expression. Remus looked at Harry in the floating mirror. Would that really help, Harry? Harry nodded. There was indeed a particular which he had in mind for asking to the ball, but it would never, in no conceivable way, happen, and especially not since he and Ron had just made up. But if he could impress her, show her that he could, in fact, waltz, who Harry Potter would actually be able to ask as his partner was secondary, since he knew that the person he would most like to dance with was a pipe dream, but making himself look less like a fool in front of her would still mean a great deal. Remus sighed, his lips twitching as he fought back a smile, and rose agilely to standing from the armchair. He used one hand to sweep the strands of brown and gray streaked hair out of his eyes as he took a few long-legged steps onto the carpet. Sirius waited, his right arm extended, and the pure blood's elegant alabaster fingers met the scarred nimble ones of the half-blood werewolf. In the firelight, their eyes burned like embers as their hands met. And one, two, three. Sirius Black murmured as he pulled Remus the rest of the way into his hold, his left hand on Remus's waist as Remus's left hand went to his shoulder. Remus Lupin was taller than Sirius, and while Sirius was an exquisite and expert dancer, leading the way through the steps of the waltz as if he owned it, Remus was arguably more alive, flowing as if he were made of water as Sirius led him, his head bowed to meet Sirius's gaze, and Harry Potter found himself not copying but staring. It was as if he were finally seeing to the heart of the matter, one that he had already known was there, but was at last fully revealed for him to witness. It was like he was not even there, and that was all the better. Sirius and Remus danced like it was second nature, because it was. They knew the other's pace. Remus knew where Sirius would lead him, and Sirius knew where Remus would follow. When the waltz ended, Sirius and Remus were looking at one another, as if they were seventeen again. It was not a look that Harry knew from experience, but rather from the nature of it, the way their faces looked younger, 
even with the sharp contrasting light of the fire, the way their steps had been light as if hardly no burdens weighed upon them, the way their eyes ate at one another, burning and adoring like none Harry had ever seen. It made Harry Potter think that his own qualms for who he would like to ask to the Yule Ball were ridiculous, because directly in front of him were two men who would never, in the rule books of blood purity and heteronormativity and anti-werewolf wizarding society, be together, dancing in such a way. Did that help, Harry? Remus asked him. Yes, Harry replied easily, because it had. So, Harry could not ask the girl he really wanted to the Yule Ball, but the idea of asking any girl still made him want to crawl under the invisibility cloak forever. Ron was having a hard time of it too. Harry stepped through the portrait hole after walking through the castle one night, hoping a girl he recognized would pass and he could ask her, and saw Ron sitting with Ginny in the common room looking ashen-faced. What's up, Ron? Harry asked him. He asked Fleur to go to the ball with him. Ginny answered, fighting back a grin. I don't know what made me do it. Ron groaned. I was just walking past her in the entrance hall, she was standing there talking to Diggory, and it sort of came over me and I asked her. She's part Vila, Harry said, sharing what he had overheard Fleur saying within the champion's tent after the first task. I bet you just walked past when she was turning the charm on for Diggory and got a blast of it. Just then Hermione climbed in through the portrait hole. Why aren't you two at dinner? She asked them as she came over. Because they still haven't got dates for the ball. Ginny answered brightly. That made Harry feel funny. He wanted Ginny to look at him so he could convey with his eyes. I want to ask you, but I can't because you're my best mate sister, but I also need a partner because I'm a champion so I'll have to ask someone. But they won't be who I want to be dancing with. That would be you. And also please don't say yes if anyone asks you that isn't me. While Harry was mentally begging Ginny to look him in the eyes so he could convey this very sensible message, Ron was suddenly staring at Hermione like he was seeing her for the first time. Hermione, you're a girl, Ron said. Oh well spotted. Hermione snapped. Well, you could come to the ball with me. I can't. Oh, come on Hermione, I need a partner, I'm going to look really stupid if I haven't got one. I can't come with you. Hermione blushed. Because I'm already going with someone. No, you're not. Just because it's taken you three years to notice, Ron, doesn't mean that no one else has spotted I'm a girl. And she stormed off towards the girls' dormitories. She's lying, Ron said flatly, watching her go. She's not, Ginny said. Who is it then? Ron snapped. I'm not telling you, it's her business, Ginny answered, fighting a smile once more. Right, Ron grunted. This is getting stupid. Ginny, you can go with Harry and I'll just... Harry's heart fluttered excitedly. Ron was saying he could go with Ginny. I can't, said Ginny and she blushed a deep scarlet. I'm going with Neville. He asked me and I thought, well, I'm not going to go otherwise, I'm not in fourth year. Harry sighed inwardly, before taking a moment to realize that if Ginny was going to the ball with anyone that wasn't him, the best person he could have hoped for was Neville. Harry's spirits lifted a bit, and were so lifted in fact, that as Parvati and Lavender stepped through the portrait hole, Harry rushed over to them. Parvati, will you go to the ball with me? Harry asked. Yes, all right then. She answered, blushing furiously. Lavender, will you go with Ron? I'm going with Seamus, she said, giggling.
Can't you think of anyone who'd go with Ron? Well, Parvati looked thoughtful. I suppose my sister, Padma, might. She's in Ravenclaw. I'll ask her if you'd like. Great. Let me know, will you? Harry said, grinning. The decorations for the Yule Ball were the best Hogwarts had ever done for an occasion. Icicles had been attached to the banisters of the marble staircase in the entrance hall. The great hall boasted twelve Christmas trees covered in holly, sparkling tinsel, and golden owls, and was bedecked in frost, garlands of mistletoe, and ivy. All along the corridors, the suits of armor had been bewitched to sing carols. Snow was falling thickly over the castle and the village of Hogsmeade. On December 23rd, Harry and the Weasleys had an excellent snowball fight as Hermione watched. At five o'clock, however, Hermione excused herself to get ready for the ball. What? You need three hours? Ron asked her incredulously. Who are you going with? He asked her for the umpteenth time, but she just waved and went into the castle. Harry, Ron, Seamus, Dean, and Neville changed into their dress robes at seven o'clock. They all felt self-conscious, but Molly had used Sirius's galleons to buy Harry and Ron dress robes that did in fact look quite nice, they even had to admit. Harry's were the exact shade of green as his eyes, and Ron's matched his ginger head. They came down the stairs and Harry saw Parvati waiting for him in the common room wearing pink robes and gold bracelets with her dark hair and a long plate braided with gold. You look nice, Harry told her. Thanks. She said. Padma's going to meet you in the entrance hall. She told Ron. Right, Ron said, looking around. Where's Hermione? Parvati shrugged. Shall we go down then, Harry? Okay, Harry said, looking around for Ginny but not having spotted her. The entrance hall was packed with students all waiting for eight o'clock. Parvati found her sister Padma and led her over to Ron and Harry. Hi, Padma said looking just as pretty as Parvati in robes of turquoise. Hi, Ron said before continuing to look around as he had been doing the whole way to the entrance hall. Where is Hermione? Just then Professor McGonagall called. Champions over here, please. Professor McGonagall was standing by the marble staircase in red tartan robes, a thistle wreath around the brim of her hat. Harry and Parvati came to line up with Cedric and Cho Chan, and a minute later Fleur and Roger Davies arrived. Suddenly, gasps filled the entrance hall. Stepping through the oak front doors were the Durmstrang students, and leading in the front was Victor Crumb and Hermione Granger. Hermione's hair was sleek and shiny, twisted into an elegant knot that fell over one shoulder. She was wearing a flowing dress of lilac, and she walked with her back straight and head high at Crumb's arm, and she was smiling. Hi, Harry. Hi, Parvati she said as she and Crum lined up with the other champions and their partners. Once everyone else was in the Great Hall, Professor McGonagall told them to follow her through the doors. The Great Hall broke into applause as they entered. The champions and their partners stepped onto the dance floor. Harry took a deep breath and offered Parvati his hand like Sirius had bade him to do. She took it and stepped closer, and Harry put his other hand on her waist. The champions did not have to dance alone on the dance floor for long, but Harry found that he didn't mind it too much. He smiled at Parvati and kept his eyes away from the crowd and concentrated on the steps and rhythm of the waltz. Part of him found, now that he realized he knew how, 
and it wasn't as bad as he thought, that he wouldn't have batted an eye at dancing in front of the entire school with Ginny Weasley. After the waltzing music had faded and the weird sisters had taken the stage to uproarious cheers, Harry told Parvati he needed a break, and she grinned as a boy from Bo Battens asked her to dance with him. Harry found Ron sitting at a table watching Crumb and Hermione dance. Harry joined him, and since Ron was so distracted, it seemed all right for Harry to watch Neville and Ginny dance. She was wearing a beautiful dress of mint green, and they were both grinning at one another and doing a sort of silly jig. After a few minutes, Hermione came over and sat beside Ron. It's hot, isn't it? She said. Victor's just gone to get us drinks. Ron gave her a writhing look. What's up with you? She said, looking at him in surprise. He's from Durmstrang. He's competing against Harry, against Hogwarts. Fraternizing with the enemy, that's what you're doing. Hermione stared at him with her mouth open before stammering. The enemy. Honestly, who was the one who was so excited when he saw him arrive? I suppose he asked you to come with him while you were both in the library. Ron huffed. Yes, he did. Hermione snapped. And if you really want to know, he said he'd been coming up to the library every day to try and talk to me, but he hadn't been able to pluck up the courage. And besides, this whole tournament is about getting to know foreign wizards and make friends with them. No, it isn't. It's about winning. Ron shouted. Ron, I haven't got a problem with Hermione going with Crumb. Harry insisted quietly. And a second later, Crumb was standing in front of them, holding two butterbeers. Yeah, Hermione, he said, handing her a butterbeer. Hermione jumped to her feet. Let's go sit somewhere else. She told him and Victor Crumb looked more enthusiastic than Harry had ever seen, even after winning the Quidditch World Cup or being named a Triwizard Champion. Let's go for a walk, Ron muttered to Harry. They walked out of the front doors and found themselves surrounded by bushes, winding ornamental paths and large stone statues that had been erected for the Yule Ball. Here and there people were sitting on carved benches. As they stepped along one of the winding paths of rose bushes, Harry and Ron suddenly heard an unpleasant and familiar voice. Don't see that there is anything to fuss about, Igor. Severus, you cannot pretend this isn't happening. Karkaroff's voice sounded anxious. It's been getting clearer and clearer for months. I am seriously concerned, I can't deny it. Then flee. Snape's voice was curt. Flee, and I will make your excuses. I, however, am remaining at Hogwarts. His voice was coming closer and Ron and Harry turned on their heels and ran back into the castle. What did y'all reckon that was about? Ron asked once they were back in the Great Hall. Don't know, Harry said. But I'll ask Sirius and Remus tomorrow. At midnight the weird sisters stopped playing and everyone gave them a last round of applause and started to wind their way into the entrance hall. Halfway up the marble staircase, Harry heard a voice calling his name. Hey, Harry. It was Cedric hurrying up the stairs toward him, looking a little secretive, and Ron gave Harry a nod before continuing up the stairs. Cedric lowered his head. Listen, I owe you one for telling me about the dragons. You know the golden egg. Does yours wail when you open it? Harry nodded. Well, take a bath, okay? Take a bath, and take the egg with you, and just, um, mull things over in the hot water. It'll help you think, trust me. Harry stared at Cedric. Tell you what, Cedric said. 
Use the prefect's bathroom. Fourth door on the left by the statue of Boris on the fifth floor. Passwords pine fresh. Gotta go. A few minutes later Harry stepped into the Gryffindor common room to find one of the mightiest rows he had ever seen. Well if you don't like it, you know what the solution is, don't you? Hermione shouted. Oh yeah. Ron yelled. What's that? Next time there's a ball, ask me before someone else does, and not as a last resort. Ron mouthed soundlessly as Hermione stormed up the girl's staircase to bed. Well, Ron sputtered. That just completely missed the point. Harry didn't say anything, but he knew without a doubt that when he would tell Remus and Sirius about Ron and Hermione's behavior at the Yule Ball, they'd say that Hermione had gotten the point much better than Ron had. Chapter 19 Once more, we mustn't forget Sirius Black's predilection on throwing a bloody good party, and this was the biggest party he'd thrown since his last day at Hogwarts at the end of his seventh year. And it was also Christmas Day. Happy Christmas, Harry. Sirius crowed as he and Remus strode into Harry's bedroom on Christmas morning. Just as he had done on his fourteenth birthday, Harry Potter shot awake as if by cannon blast, his hair sticking up in spikes, reaching immediately for his glasses before grinning a little sleepily at his guardians. Come, come. It's present time. Sirius grabbed his godson by his wrist and pulled him out of bed, towing him down the stairs and into the living room where the Christmas tree sat surrounded by wrapped gifts. Remus followed, smiling indulgently with the teacup already in his hand. Remus sat on the sofa while Sirius and Harry knelt in front of the piles of gifts. Harry grinned, pulling out a gift covered in red and gold wrapping paper and handing it to Sirius. Sirius ruffled Harry's hair before tearing into the wrapping paper and unearthing a small wooden box, and inside were three golden whistles. Hermione helped me charm them, Harry said excitedly, so only we can hear them when one of us blows into one of them. You both can use them at the next task, so I can hear you, and Remus can use it to call us down from Quidditch practice next summer, or you can both use it here in Hogsmeade if you've lost each other for some reason. Harry broke off as his godfather wrapped him in a bear hug. When Sirius pulled back, his eyes were a little wet, and he was beaming from ear to ear. Harry, he breathed. This is the best gift we've ever received, Remus finished for him. Harry looked up at him and found Remus had one hand over his heart as he smiled softly at Harry. Harry blushed, bowing his head. And now you. Sirius said, handing him a wrapped present. Harry received a penknife with attachments that could unlock any lock or undo any knot from Sirius, and his own wizard's chess board, as well as a few more adventure novels, from Remus, and he had gifts from Hagrid, an enormous box of sweets which included Birdie Bot's Every Flavor Beans, Dribble's Best Chewing Gum, and Fizzing Whizbees. And Molly Weasley had sent him a number of mince pies along with a green sweater with a dragon stitched on it. Hermione had given him a new broomstick servicing kit, and Ron had given him a bag of dung bombs. Harry watched as Sirius unwrapped a new leather jacket and a vinyl record of Lola vs. Power Man and the Money Go Round, part one from Remus, and Remus unwrapped a brand new set of brown wizard's robes, complete with first-hand brown loafers, and a shiny black new quill and ink pot from Sirius. Harry insisted Remus play one game of wizard's chess with him as they ate breakfast and Remus obliged, 
So they sat at the huge kitchen table and had a few of Molly's mince pies, ham, eggs, and toast with tea. Harry wasn't disappointed at all when he lost. When Harry had put on his sweater from Molly, Sirius had went running quickly up to he and Remus's bedroom before returning later with frumpy Father Christmas sweaters for he and Remus, as well as a pair of sparkling red and gold gag eyeglasses with enchanted bushy white eyebrows which Remus had taken solemnly and placed on his nose before telling his pawn to move forward. Harry did not expect to ever beat Remus in a game of chess in his life, but his tendency to burst out into laughter as Remus's glasses raised a bushy white eyebrow while he winked at Harry certainly did not help Harry's chances. The rest of the day was spent much the same as Harry's birthday party preparations, but this time amplified. All three of them helped rearrange the living room. Harry cleared away the presents and wrapping paper, taking them upstairs to either his room or his guardians, while Remus and Sirius strung up garlands of holly and mistletoe along the ceiling's rafters and enchanted the flames in the fireplace to glow blue and white. Remus brought down his record player, setting it on the writing desk, and put on a record of Christmas carols. Sirius and Harry went into the front garden next, and Sirius used his wand to erect a series of white-painted wooden garden arches bedecked in string lights of red and gold, while Harry cleared away the snow. The back garden was next, and Sirius cast a warming charm that quickly melted a large patch of snow by the back door. He and Harry then erected the marquee with a mix of magic and labor, and underneath the canvas Sirius cast string after string of sparkling snowflakes. Remus worked in the kitchen, and as Sirius and Harry came in for lunch, they were greeted with the sweetly strong scent of an enormous vat of steaming mulled wine and an equally huge bowl of freshly sliced oranges. Remus had spread a huge velvet red tablecloth over the table, peppered with mounds of permanently chilled snow and miniature pine trees, complete with tiny animated figurines of Father Christmas and his reindeer on their sleigh moving in figure eights between the trees on the little snowy track. By early evening, they all changed into their attire for the party. Harry wore smart black trousers but kept on Molly's sweater. Sirius wore black trousers and a smart white button-down that he rolled up his forearms, his black hair gelled into its most luminous wavy locks, and Remus wore his new brown loafers with trousers of a matching shade and a deep red sweater. The guests made their way up the footpath stepping through the wards that Remus had amended to include only the true bodies of those of whom Remus and Sirius had extended an invitation, under the red and gold glowing white arches and up the front door. Harry and Sirius greeted them, taking their cloaks and offering them glasses of mulled wine or cider while Remus remained busy in the kitchen preparing the turkey. He liked it that way, Sirius had told Harry at the front door in a whisper, although all of the guests, save for two, knew of Remus's condition it was also his shy nature. He liked to enter a party that was already in full swing, if he could help it. The guests stood in clumps in the living room or sat on the sofa in armchairs, or wandered out into the back garden below the marquee. The guests included, all nine of the Weasleys, the children of Arthur and Molly all dressed in their new sweaters, and Molly came bearing yet even more mince pies, Hagrid, who came with a tankard of fire whiskey and more sweets for Sirius and Remus, and who stood under the marquee with his head barely touching the canvas. Hermione and her parents, the only two who did not know one of their hosts was a werewolf, and who shook hands all around with their eyes the size of dates and sat at the kitchen table, 
talking cheerily to Remus and Molly, who had joined Remus. In the kitchen, and staring open-mouthed at the animated figures moving through the miniature forest on the table, Neville and Augusta Longbottom, the latter of which chatted up Arthur about the ministry, Professor Dumbledore, Professor McGonagall and Madame Hooch, who stood under the marquee with Hagrid and talked with Sirius about the tragedy that was having no Quidditch season that year that Hogwarts could show off to the Durmstrang and Bow Batten students. Professor Dumbledore had shaken. Hands was serious and conveyed the message from Professor Moody that he was so sorry to have to miss the party and guard the castle, constant vigilance, but that he would still like to see Sirius and Remus soon, and to Harry's surprise Amos and Cedric Diggory arrived. Cedric in his yellow Hufflepuff robes with his father talking animatedly to anyone who would listen about his champion of a son while Cedric blushed and hurried over to talk to Fred and George. When Remus set the meal on the table, Sirius called out for all the guests, and they sat at the long kitchen table, Hagrid standing in the threshold of the back door, and ate turkey, potatoes, green onions, and Yorkshire pudding with gravy, before pouncing on the numerous puddings of mince pies, Terry's chocolate oranges, brought by Mr. and Mrs. Granger, and lemon sherbets brought by Dumbledore. After the meal was finished and cleared, Harry and his friends took turns on Harry's firebolt in the back garden and thanked each other for their gifts, and Remus finally emerged from the kitchen to properly socialize, talking with Bill and Charlie most of all. By midnight the guests were staggering home. Hermione's parents were pink-cheeked with drink and overwhelming wonder at the evening, and gave Hermione hugs and kisses before waving goodbye so that Professor McGonagall could arrange their porky back to their house, Madame Hooch leaving with McGonagall and Mr. and Mrs. Granger. Neville and Augusta Longbottom left next, as Neville's grandmother loudly told everyone about how her feet hurt, and were followed by Amos and Cedric Diggory, the latter of whom waved cheerily and received thumps on the back from Sirius and Remus. Then the last guests who weren't staying the night left, Professor Dumbledore and Hagrid, singing Christmas carols in warbly voices as they walked back toward the castle. Molly and Arthur insisted on helping Sirius and Remus do some tidying up before going up to their guest bedroom, both pink-cheeked and singing along to a Celestina Warbeck carol that the record was playing. As they plucked up the last of the lingering glasses in the living room, Arthur pulled Molly into a dance, and they swept across the room, singing off-key and grinning. Fred and George made silent gagging faces and Harry, Ron, Hermione, Ginny, and Charlie laughed while Percy looked imperious and Bill rolled his eyes, smiling at his parents. Bill, Charlie, and Percy waved their goodbyes and shook hands with Remus and Sirius before apparating beyond the wards. Finally, Molly ushered the rest of the kids up to bed, Harry, Ron, Fred and George in one room, with Hermione and Ginny in another, and she and Arthur went into their guest bedroom. Harry was almost asleep, listening to Ron snoring and watching the twins twitch eagerly with whatever cheeky dreams they were having, when he realized he'd forgotten his firebolt by the back door. Harry debated a moment on whether it would be all right a night out in the snow, as he was sleepy and content in his bed, but finally his worry for the freshly polished broom brought him to action. Quietly, Harry climbed out of bed and cracked open his door, walking silently down the stairs before stopping in his tracks. Sirius and Remus were standing in the living room, the record player singing out. He appeared, and the soul felt its worth. 
a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn fall on your knees oh here the angel voices oh night divine they were dancing they moved slowly in a tight circle turning now so that Harry could see their bodies were pressed against one another, one hand on each other's lower back, and the other hand clasped, fingers interlaced and resting against their chests. Remus was running his thumb along the back of Sirius's hand, and his head was bowed against Sirius's, the sides of their faces touching. Their eyes were closed. This was different from the elegant waltz they had demonstrated to Harry. It was simple, and sweet, and somehow even more beautiful. The carol faded as the song ended, and Remus moved his head as Sirius lifted his, and their lips met. Harry Potter had never seen them kiss before, and though he was fourteen years old, and the sight of any adult's kissing might have made him blush bright red, this did not. In fact, it made his eyes feel rather watery. Sirius and Remus kissed until the next song started and then they were staring into each other's eyes as the words filled the room. Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and days of old land sign? For old land As they moved again in their circle, their faces revealed to Harry, he saw that there were silent tears streaming down their cheeks. But still, they were smiling, and looking at one another like the other was the only thing in the world. And Harry felt his own tears fall as he realized what his guardians were thinking. They were thinking of old friends, now long gone. Of his parents, and many more whom Harry did not know, but who had been near and dear to Sirius's and Remus's hearts, and who had passed on. They were thinking of how time was such a swindler, and of the beauty and the sorrow of its passage. And Harry found himself praying, thanking whatever it was and however it came to be, that Remus Lupin and Sirius Black still had each other, and that Harry Potter had them. Chapter 20 It was a sleepy, lion of a boxing day. Harry, Ron, Fred, and George came down the stairs in the late morning to find Molly, Arthur, Sirius, and Remus at the kitchen table with breakfast spread out on plates in front of them. Sausage, eggs, toast, porridge, leftover sliced oranges and mince pies, with the teapot transfigured to twice its normal size. Ginny and Hermione arrived shortly after, and they spent a relaxing morning before the kids hurried outside to build snow forts and prepare for the upcoming snowball fight that Sirius 
and Remus promised they'd soon join in on. With the Bow Battens and the Durmstrang students staying at Hogwarts over the holidays, and the majority of Hogwarts students having stayed at the castle over the break in order to attend the Yule Ball, Harry, Hermione, Ron, Ginny, Fred and George were eager to return to Hogwarts the next day for the rest of the break. But Harry felt conflicted. Molly and Arthur had gone into Hogsmeade for a bit of exploring, and Sirius and Remus had retreated into the living room before the snowball fight. As Harry's friends dashed out into the snow in the back garden, Harry called out to them, Join you in a mo. He stepped into the living room, finding Sirius and Remus on the sofa. Remus was sitting upright, and Sirius was laying in his lap, his head against the arm of the sofa, knees bent with one of Remus's hands resting on top. Sirius was whispering up at Remus with soft eyes. Remus blushed slightly when Harry entered. He had not expected for he and Sirius to be caught so close together. All right, Harry, Sirius asked, perking up. Harry nodded, smiling. Yeah, I just, I just wanted to tell you this was the best holiday I've ever had. And, Harry fidgeted, feeling shy. Thank you, for everything. Sirius smiled at Harry, but turned his head slightly to the side, as if in confusion. Oh, Harry, Sirius breathed. We're happy it was such a lovely Christmas. Remus said quietly, his face so very kind. Sirius sat up and beckoned Harry over to sit beside them on the sofa. Harry sat cross-legged, looking at the two men sitting together in front of him. You needn't say thank you for anything, of course, pup. Sirius's voice was a little gruff with his having stayed up so late the night before, but his eyes were shining brightly. You see, Mooney and I, we do anything for you. That's what you do, Harry. For the people you love. Harry thought of Sirius and his father, working tirelessly at fifteen to become anime guy, so that Remus's transformations would no longer end in savage self-mutilation, and so that he would have company, so that he would know that even in the worst of times, that he would never be alone. And Harry thought of Sirius's tender care of Remus with each full moon. Harry thought of Sirius summoning all of his remaining will and strength to escape Azkaban once he realized Harry was in close proximity with Peter. How Sirius had snuck into Hogwarts Castle, at the risk of the Dementor's kiss, to protect him. Harry thought of Remus's undying love for Sirius that had persisted even despite believing that Sirius had betrayed James and Lily, evident in the instant forgiveness that Harry himself had witnessed that fateful night in the Shrieking Shack when— as soon as Remus realized the truth, he had embraced Sirius and stood beside him. Harry thought of Remus teaching him the Patronus charm when Harry had asked him, and listening quietly when Harry had told him of how the Dementors made him hear his parents' last words, and how Remus had composed himself and remained his Professor Lupin, because that was what Harry needed then. Harry thought of how the only time Remus and Sirius had been separated since their reunion was the July full moon and the night of the Quidditch World Cup, and both times it was to protect Harry. I'd do anything for you both, too, Harry told them. The snowball fight later that afternoon was epic. Arthur and Molly served as referees, and Sirius joined a team with Harry, Ron, and Fred while Remus joined a team with Hermione, Ginny, and George. The twins and Sirius, and Remus being on opposing teams, made the game quite competitive and hilarious. 
Sirius and Remus charmed swirls of snow to blind the other team while they were pelted with snowballs by Fred and George, and Hermione seemed to be aiming quite a lot at Ron rather than any other members of Ron's team. Blimey, who knew she had such good aim? Ron huffed as he was hit in the chest with a snowball. Why'd she sit out the game before the Yule Ball? Harry thought about saying, Why do you think she's not sitting out this game after the Yule Ball? But wisely said instead, Come on, mate, George is open. Dinner that night was leftovers from the Christmas party, and Arthur and Molly began pestering Fred and George on their marks while Ron engaged Hermione in suspiciously genial conversation to such an extent that Ginny snorted into her glass. They were all very tuckered out from the previous late night and the exuberant snowball fight, and so most were yawning by the end of the meal. Sirius kept pinching Remus's thigh under the table when his head began to nod forward and Harry snickered at Remus's head snapping up with a blush each time. Soon, they all climbed into their various beds for an early night of well-rest. Reckon we could visit you and Padfoot and Mooney next summer, Fred said as he lay down in one of the cots in Harry's room. Harry smiled. Fred and George now exclusively used the Marauders' nicknames when referring to Harry's guardians. Of course. Harry said. Thought it'd be a bit. Ron looked thoughtful, trying to find the right word. Different, you know, with all of us knowing about them, um, being together, but they really are a subtle pair, aren't they? George scoffed. Blimey, Ron. No wonder you have no idea what's going on with you and Granger. What's that supposed to mean? Ron demanded. You'll understand when you're older. Fred grinned and Ron lobbed a pair of his socks at his older brother's head. The next morning, Molly, Arthur, Sirius, and Remus walked the kids back up to Hogwarts's gates. Remus did not bother with a glamour charm this time. Ever since Sirius had had words with Rita Skeeter, she'd made herself scarce and neither one of them had caught a glimpse of her. As they neared the entrance, Harry hung back from the group with his guardians. I had a question, I guess, Harry said slowly. At the Yule Ball, Ron and I overheard Snape and Karkaroff talking. And Harry relayed what he had heard at the Yule Ball. Sirius abruptly stopped walking, and Harry and Remus stopped with him. Karkaroff said, It's been getting clearer and clearer for months. Sirius asked Harry, his voice taut and his face set as stone. Yeah, Harry answered. What do you reckon that was about? Remus shook his head gently. We don't know, Harry but it certainly has to do with Voldemort or his supporters. You see, Karkaroff and Snape, they used to be Death Eaters. Harry's mouth fell open. What? Sirius nodded gravely. Snape turned spy for us apparently in the last few weeks of the war. Dumbledore swears upon his allegiance, although I'd love to know what convinced him. Karkaroff surrendered after. You know. He gave the Ministry loads of names, other Death Eaters, supporters, of Voldemort, in exchange for his freedom. Whatever Karkaroff was talking about. It must be some kind of sign that former Death Eaters know. The dark stirrings Dumbledore's been catching on to. Sirius shivered involuntarily, his eyes now burning into Harry. Don't be left alone with Snape or Karkaroff, please, pup. Sirius almost whispered. No detentions. No getting caught alone in a corridor with them. And you have your mirror. You didn't forget it, I. Harry nodded and pulled out the two-way mirror from his back pocket, his mind reeling. Snape and Karkaroff had been Death Eaters, and were now allowed to teach impressionable young minds. 
How had they shown their remorse? That reminds me. Sirius perked up a bit out of his sober mood and pulled out the small wooden box pulling the three whistles. Let's give them all a blow so we know what to listen for. Harry grinned and reached into the box. They're unique, see. Harry said this part of the gift he hadn't needed Hermione's help for. He'd been able to engrave the whistles on his own. Harry took his own H-engraved whistle, and Remus took the one with R and Sirius the one with S. You first, Sirius said, smiling now with excitement. Harry gave his whistle a light blow, and the sound of the roaring Gryffindor lion filled the air, but only two sets of ears could hear the sound. It was the exact roar Harry's poster in his bedroom in Hope's cottage made, which had been a fourteenth birthday gift from Sirius. Excellent. Sirius beamed and blew into his whistle. To either his nor Remus's surprise, the barking sound of Padfoot came out. Sirius turned and looked expectantly now at Remus. Harry caught the subtle weariness that was evident in Remus's eyes as he brought the whistle to his lips, and Harry knew why but also that he needn't worry. Harry had come to understand his Uncle Mooney well enough to know that despite his nickname, and despite he and Sirius's marauder sense of humor, and even despite Remus's bold declarations in the face of those who spoke against his lycanthropy, that the last thing Remus would want as his sound would be the howling of a wolf. Remus lightly pushed air into the whistle, and out of it came. Chapter 21 The new term was passing quickly and Harry felt the metaphorical weight of the unsolved golden egg problem weighing on his shoulders. He decided he must take all of Cedric's advice if he could, and so late one night he snuck out of the Gryffindor common room under the cloak, egg and marauder's map in hand, toward the prefect's bathroom. Pine fresh, Harry said to the closed door by the statue of Boris the Bewildered on the fifth floor. The door cracked open and Harry slipped inside, looking around to realize that he may now have a motivation to become a prefect after all. The bathroom was lit by a candle-filled golden chandelier and everything else was made of white marble, including an enormous rectangular swimming pool-sized bath in the middle of the floor, surrounded by about a hundred different golden taps, each with a different colored jewel on the handle. Long white linen curtains framed the windows. A towering pile of fluffy white towels sat in a corner, and there was a golden-framed painting on the wall featuring a blonde mermaid sleeping on a rock. Harry stripped down, put on one of the white towels, and set the egg on the side of the bath as he turned on a few of the taps. Once the deep pool was filled with hot foam and bubbles, Harry turned off the taps and slid into the water, swimming a few laps before coming back to stare at the egg. Well, better mull things over, shall I? Harry thought wryly, staring at the egg and doing a few strokes. No burst of understanding. No brilliant ideas. Harry reached for the egg with his wet hands and opened it, and the horrible wailing filled the room. Harry snapped it shut again. I'd try putting it in the water, if I were you, a voice said and Harry yelped. Moaning Myrtle was sitting cross-legged on the top of the taps. Myrtle, Harry gasped. I'm and I'm not wearing anything. I'd try the egg in the water. That's what Cedric Diggory did, Myrtle said, blinking through her thick spectacles. Harry reached for the egg on the side of the bath, 
then lowering it beneath the foamy surface, opened it. And this time a gurgling song came out of it. You need to put your head under too, Myrtle said a little bossily. Harry took a deep breath and slid under the surface, and heard a chorus of eerie voices singing from the open egg. Come seek us where our voices sound, we cannot sing above the ground, and now along you'll have to look, to recover what we took. Hear it. Myrtle asked when Harry floated back to the surface. Yeah, hang on, I need to listen again, he said, and Harry took three more underwater renditions before he had it memorized. I've got to go and look for people who can't use their voices above the ground, underwater, then, hmm. Myrtle, what lives in the lake, apart from the giant squid? Oh, all sorts, Myrtle said. I sometimes go down there. Well, does anything in there have a human voice? Hang on and Harry turned to look at the picture of the mermaid on the wall. Myrtle, there aren't merpeople in the lake, are there? Oh, very good. Myrtle clapped. It took Diggo much longer than that. And that was with Hal Wake too, giggling and showing off and flashing our fins. An hour long, how am I supposed to breathe? Harry sputtered. In the dark corridor once more, Harry checked the map before heading back to Gryffindor Tower and found the dots of Filch and Mrs. Norris in Filch's office. But something else on the map caught Harry's eye. A dot was flitting around a room in the bottom left-hand corner, Snape's office, and it was labeled. Bartimius Crouch. Harry stared at it. What was Mr. Crouch doing at Hogwarts at one o'clock in the morning in Snape's office? Harry began moving in the opposite direction, focusing on the map as he walked, and didn't see the trick step as he was taking the staircase. So, of course, he tripped, and the egg, still slightly wet from the bath, tumbled out from under his arm, rolling down the long staircase with a bang as loud as a gong as it hit each step. Harry stood, holding his breath, and waited. Nothing happened, and Harry heaved a sigh of relief, hurrying down the stairs. He was almost at the egg when a noise came down the corridor. Clunk, clunk, clunk. Professor Moody stepped around the corner wearing a traveling cloak over his nightclothes and leaning on his staff. His magical blue eye swiveled and fixed on Harry. Watcher, Potter. Can see through invisibility cloaks, it can. Moody growled, giving Harry a grizzled grin. Harry's heart thudded unevenly as he shed the cloak. Nothing for it now. Um, hi, Professor Moody. This your egg? Professor Moody said, leaning heavily on his staff as he picked up the egg and handed it to Harry. Thanks, Harry said, taking it with one hand. What is this thing? Moody suddenly asked, pointing at the Marauder's map. Map of Hogwarts, Harry answered, showing it to Moody. Merlin's beard, Moody whispered, staring at the map, his magical eye going haywire. This. This is some map, Potter. Um. Professor Moody, this map shows people in Hogwarts. A few minutes ago, it was showing Mr. Crouch in Snape's office. Why do you reckon Mr. Crouch was there? Moody's magical eye left the map and fixed on Harry. I'll put it this way, Potter. They say old Mad-Eye's obsessed with catching dark wizards, but I'm nothing, nothing, compared to Barty Crouch. Now, Potter, can I borrow this? 
Harry's heart sank a bit. Remus and Sirius had entrusted Harry with the map after the events at the end of his third year. It was there and his father's map. But at least Professor Moody wasn't going to confiscate it or give him detention, it seemed. Yeah, okay, Harry said, hiding his reluctance. Good boy, I can make good use of this, Moody said, taking the map. This might be exactly what I've been looking for. Right, bed, Potter, come on, now. Dear Sirius and Remus, I cracked the egg clue. Get it. Anyway, did you two know that there are more people living in the Black Lake? Well, Moaning Myrtle told me there are, and the egg sings a song when you put it under water that says I'll have an hour to find something the mer people took in the lake. It'll be something I'm surely going to miss, what do you reckon it could be? And how am I going to breathe underwater for an hour? Any ideas? Also, I used the prefect's bathroom last night to solve the egg, Cedric gave me the password. I went at night, I had the cloak and the map, and on my way back from solving the egg, I saw something strange on the map. Barty Crouch was in Snape's office last night. Weird, right? Then I ran into Professor Moody and he asked me to borrow the map. I said he could, and I know he'll give it back, right? Let's talk on the two-way mirror tomorrow night at ten o'clock. Talk soon. Harry. Hmm, you could use transfiguration, Sirius said, hand on his chin, his eyes thoughtful. But you don't start human transfiguration until sixth year and it could be quite risky. Maybe Harry could just go down to the lake, stick his head in, yell at the merpeople to give back whatever they've nicked, and see if they chuck it out, Ron said yawning. Remus smiled. Merpeople are notoriously defensive. I reckon they'll be holding on tight to their loot, just as they do with sunken treasure around shipwrecks. Perhaps you could use a bubble charm, Harry. A bubble charm, Harry said, perking up, leaning closer to look at his guardians in the mirror. Remus nodded. You would have to amend it so that you could step inside the bubble and breathe. Although it's tricky, you'd have to find a way to recycle the carbon dioxide. Now Remus looked thoughtful, his brow furrowing. The portrait door swung open, and they all turned to see who may catch them using the two-way mirror in the common room. Hermione looked up from her book, Weird Wizarding Dilemmas. It was Neville, looking bedraggled and carrying rolls of parchment under one arm and a heavy stack of books in the other. All right, he asked them, falling into an armchair. Hiya, Neville. Sirius chirped from the mirror. We're just trying to help Harry come up with a solution to the second task. Neville's eyes widened. So you know what it is then? Harry briefly explained the task and the problem of breathing underwater for an hour that they were trying to solve. Neville looked thoughtful for a moment, and then abruptly leapt up from his chair, dropping his parchment and books. Wait! He cried and ran from the room, up the staircase to the boys' dormitory. Oh, Sirius said in the mirror, looking a little surprised. Has he got something then? Neville came dashing in a moment later, holding a book aloft in his two hands. Magical water plants of the Mediterranean. Gillyweed, Neville cried. It should last an hour. In the mirror, Remus and Sirius smiled identical grins. Oh, well done, Neville. Remus said. Where can we find it? Hermione asked, looking concerned. Professor Sprouts got it in a tank in her office. Neville said excitedly. I asked her about it once I read up on it and she showed me. The morning of the second task, 
Harry awoke and found Ron's bed empty. Harry and Neville hurried down to breakfast, but Ron wasn't seated on the bench, scarfing down sausages as he usually was. And Hermione wasn't there either. Harry felt ill, his appetite totally gone. Neville urged him to swallow a few bites of toast. You shouldn't eat gillyweed on an empty stomach, Neville whispered, looking a little antsy. Maybe Ron and Hermione joined Sirius and Remus early at the stands by the lake. Harry and Neville stepped out on the lawn, heading down to the lake. Swallow it right before you jump in, Neville was telling Harry, and Harry almost felt like he was going to heave up his toast as Neville handed him a green slimy blob that wiggled in Harry's palm. The shore of the black lake that was closest to the castle was now surrounded by seats, and Neville gave Harry an awkward thump on the back, and said, Good luck, before heading to take a seat. Harry craned his neck at the crowd but couldn't see Sirius and Remus. I'll just have to listen for the whistles. Harry reminded himself before hurrying over to the judges' table where Fleur, Victor, and Cedric stood. Mr. Bagman stood up from the table at Harry's arrival and amplified his voice as he had done for the Quidditch World Cup. Well, all our champions are ready for the second task, which will start on my whistle. They have precisely one hour to recover what has been taken from them. On the count of three. One, two, three. Mr. Bagman's whistle echoed shrilly through the air and the stands erupted. But Harry could hear the unmistakable sounds of Padfoot's exuberant bark and the chorus of the whole of the moon over the uproar. Harry threw off his shoes and socks, stripped off his robes so he was just in his shorts and t-shirt, stuffed the gilly weed into his mouth, and waded into the lake. Chapter 22 the water was so cold that Harry felt as if his legs were burning from an icy fire, and then, all at once, Harry felt as if he couldn't breathe, accompanied by a piercing pain in the side of his neck. Harry clapped his hands on the side of his throat and felt two large slits just below his ears, flapping in the cold air. He had gills. Harry flung himself fully into the water. The first gulps of the lake water felt as if he had just finished a dive in Quidditch and was taking a huge inhale of exuberant relief. Harry stroked forward and saw that his hands were now webbed. He twisted and saw that his bare feet had become elongated, his toes now webbed too so that he looked like he had grown flippers. And the water didn't feel so icy either, it felt cool and light. Harry stroked forward again and found that he moved quickly through the water, and he could see clearly without needing to blink. Within moments, Harry had swum out so far that he could no longer see the pebbly bottom of the lake. He flipped and dove down into its depths. Though he could see well, the lake was inky and Harry could only see about ten feet around him, so that as he moved forward new scenes revealed themselves. Forests of rippling black weed, wide plains of mud littered with dull stones, and small fish flitted past him. And Harry swam deeper and deeper, out toward what must be the center of the lake. There was no sign of any of the other champions or merpeople, or thankfully, the giant squid. And then, out of the opaque water, came a light green field, at least two feet deep, of weed. As Harry swam over it, something grabbed hold of his ankle. Relatio! Harry pulled his ankle out of the Grindelow's grip and swam as fast as he could over the weed until, at last, he was passing over great expanses of black mud, and then he heard. Up above the ground.
Harry swam faster and soon saw a cluster of stone dwellings stained with algae emerge from the gloom, and beings swam in and among the dwellings. They bore no resemblance at all to the painting in the prefect's bathroom. The mer people had gray skin and long, wild, green hair with yellow, pointed teeth. Their powerful, silver tails beat the water like sharks and they clutched spears in their webbed hands. Mer people soon emerged on all sides as Harry swam on and when he turned the corner he was greeted with a very strange sight. A crowd of people were gathered in what looked like their village square, a choir in the middle singing the song which lured the champions, and four people were tied in the middle of the square. To Harry's shock, Ron Weasley was tied between Hermione and Cho Chang. There was also a girl who looked to be about eight years old with silvery blonde hair that made Harry positive that she was Fleur's sister. All four of them appeared to be in deep sleep. Harry sped toward the hostages. The ropes of weed that held the hostages were thick and slimy and very strong and as Harry fumbled with Ron's rope, he thought of Sirius's Christmas knife, back in his trunk in Gryffindor Tower. Harry whirled around, there were rocks littering the bottom, and he dived and snatched a jagged one and returned to Ron, beginning to hack at Ron's ropes, and after a few minutes, they began to break apart. Ron floated freely now, still unconscious. Harry looked around. There was still no sign of the other champions. Why didn't they hurry up? Harry looked at Hermione and raised the jagged rock. At once, the mer people rounded on him, seizing his arm and the rock. You take your own. One of them croaked to him. Leave the others. No way. She's my friend too, Harry said furiously, but only bubbles came out. But then the mer people started pointing and Harry looked up and saw Cedric swimming toward them. He had figured out the mechanics of the bubble charm, which was enchanted just around his head, and made his features look oddly distorted. Cedric pulled a knife out of his pocket and cut Cho free, pulling her upward and out of sight. Harry looked around. Where were Fleur and Victor? The mer people started screeching and Harry turned again. A human body in swimming trunks with the head of a shark. Victor had used transfiguration, albeit badly. Harry rushed forward, handing Victor the jagged rock so that he could cut Hermione free. Victor grabbed Hermione around the waist and rose rapidly with her toward the surface. If Harry could just be sure that Fleur was coming. But still, no sign. There was nothing to be done except. Harry pulled out his wand and bellowed at the defensive mer people around the young girl with silvery blonde hair. Get out of my way. Even though only bubbles came out, Harry knew they understood him as they backed away, looking almost scared. Harry shouted, Relatio! at the ropes around the young girl and she floated free. Harry seized the girl around the waist and grabbed the neck of Ron's robes and kicked upward. It was slow work. It felt like Harry was pulling up two boulders. Harry's legs were seizing up with the effort to keep swimming, his shoulders aching with the weight. As the water above him began to lighten only slightly, Harry felt pain in his neck again. Oh no. Harry kicked so hard his muscles screamed in protest as his brain itself felt waterlogged, and then he felt his face break the surface of the lake and cold, clear air hit his wet face and he gulped, panting 
pulling Ron and the little girl with him, and all around him mer people were breaking the surface, smiling now. The crowd in the stands was roaring, and Harry heard the bark of Patfoot and the chorus of the whole of the moon once more. Ron and the little girl had opened their eyes now, the little girl looked scared and confused while Ron blinked in the bright light and turned to Harry. Wet, this, isn't it? He said and then turned to Fleur's sister. What did you bring her for? Fleur didn't turn up, I couldn't leave her. Harry wheezed. You prat. Ron laughed. You didn't take that song seriously, did you? Dumbledore wouldn't have let any of us drown. Harry felt both stupid and annoyed. Come on. Harry quipped. Help me with her, I don't think she can swim very well. They reached the bank where the judges stood watching, the mer people accompanying them like a guard. Gabrielle. Fleur was shouting from the bank. Is she hot? Dumbledore and Mr. Bagman pulled them up onto the shore and Fleur lunged, grabbing her sister. It was the Grindelow, they attacked me. Oh, Gabrielle. I thought. Come here, you. Madame Pomfrey said grabbing Harry and Ron and covering them in thick blankets. Harry, well done, Hermione said, also wrapped in a blanket as she came forward. Dumbledore was now deep in conversation with the mer people at the water's edge before the judges retreated into a huddle. And suddenly three figures appeared at the huddle of champions and their retrieved hostages. Amos Diggory, who went straight to Cedric with his chest puffed out proudly, and Sirius and Remus. Well done, Harry, Remus said with a huge smile. Sirius enveloped Harry in a tight hug. Excellent, pup, excellent. You heard our whistles. Yeah, yeah, Harry stammered, teeth clacking, and Remus clasped Harry's frigid hands so that Harry immediately felt Remus's internal warmth spread throughout his limbs. Sirius quickly cast a warming charm over Ron and Hermione as Mr. Bagman's voice boomed. Ladies and gentlemen, we have our decision. The Mer people have told us exactly what happened at the bottom of the lake and we have therefore decided to award marks out of 50 for each of the champions as follows. Remus squeezed Harry's hands tighter as Sirius came to grip his shoulder, his other arms slung over Ron's shoulders. Fleur Delica demonstrated excellent use of the bubble charm over her head, but was attacked by Grindillos as she approached her goal and failed to retrieve her hostage. She is awarded 25 points. As the applause sounded from the stands beside them, Fleur declared throatily, I deserve zero. Mr. Bagman continued, Cedric Diggay, who also used a modified bubble charm, was first to return his hostage, though he returned one minute over the time limit, we therefore give him 47 points. Victor Crumb used an incomplete form of transfiguration, that was nonetheless effective, and was second to return with his hostage. So, we award him 40 points. Harry Potter used Gillyweed to great effect. Mr. Bagman called out. He returned last, and well outside the time limit, however the Mer people inform us that Mr. Potter was in fact the first to reach the hostages and that his delay was due to his determination to return all hostages to safety, not merely his own. Sirius squeezed Harry's shoulder tighter, and Remus moved to Harry's other side, a warm hand on his other shoulder. Most of the judges feel that this shows moral fiber and merits full marks. However, Mr. Potter's score is 45 points. Harry's stomach flipped. You're tied for first place with Cedric. Ron cheered. Our champion. Sirius roared over the applause. As we are, James and Lily would be so proud. Remus said quietly by Harry's ear. 
especially of your moral fiber. Harry's eyes pricked quite strongly at that. Chapter 23 The 1995 March full moon fell on March 15th, a solid five days after Remus Lupin's 35th birthday. The birthday in question, March 10th, fell on a Saturday, and also a Hogsmeade weekend. All of these facts considered, Sirius Black was in a right mind to take advantage. Now, his own birthday on November 3rd had been quite overshadowed by the events of Halloween, but Sirius didn't mind this. In fact, it had been ideal. You see, Sirius didn't want to have to explain to Harry that he had never liked celebrating his own birthday. As a student at Hogwarts, Sirius and his friends had always celebrated Remus's and James's birthdays, we don't acknowledge the rat, and Sirius had always let his slip by unmentioned, save for perhaps a small but meaningful gift given quietly by James, and pile of chocolate frogs left on his bed by Mooney, and a special treat later in bed from him once they had gotten together. Why didn't Sirius Black like celebrating his birthday? Let's just say that growing up in the house of Black, birthdays were something of a presentation of the child to the rest of the extended family and Sirius had come to dread his. Even from within the walls of Hogwarts, Sirius would rather avoid the reminders of those childhood birthdays that had usually ended in monstrous rows and punishment. But Sirius loved celebrating other people's birthdays. And this was Remus's first birthday reunited with Sirius. And damn it, Sirius was going to make it one to remember. First and foremost, it wasn't going to be a party per se as Mooney had never been one for a huge party focused entirely on himself, but Harry and his friends would be coming over in the afternoon. And then at night, Sirius had plans. But now, he had to get his Mooney's gift, and there was no point in coming up with an excuse to go into the village. Sirius had not even opened his mouth to say that he was planning on going to have a look at a new owl cage for Cosmas when Remus spoke. I quite liked my Christmas gifts, Sirius, Remus said the morning of March 9th at the breakfast table as he worked on the Friday crossword in the Daily Prophet. I don't fancy anything else. Sirius set down his fork and gave Remus his best long-suffering look that was entirely wasted as Remus was still looking down at the crossword. Remus's eyes brightened and he murmured, Ah, Doxy, as he picked up his new quill and filled in the spaces on the column. Mooney. Sirius started. Pensive, Remus said, shaking his head as he wrote in the letters. Really, who writes these clues? It was, thoughtful, a place to watch memories. I mean surely they don't reckon all their subscribers are twelve years old, do they? Sirius fought back a smile and with effort, maintained his mock look of exasperation as he said. I don't reckon they do, but one of them is about to turn thirty-five and I reckon that it deserves a wee bit of reward. Remus had grimaced at the words 35 and looked up from the crossword. Oh, Sirius. He sighed. Perhaps you're right. Sirius's eyebrows shot up in surprise. It was never this easy to get Remus to accept recognition or gifts. It really is a miracle I've made it this far. Remus said, looking soberly at Sirius and for a moment. Sirius felt his stomach lurch horribly. But then Remus continued. I mean, considering all the times I almost fell down a moving staircase at Hogwarts after a full moon, or all the flying motorcycle rides I let you take me on, what was I thinking? 
Oh, and there was the day that James convinced me it would be a good idea to try flying a broomstick for the first time while you were right there wearing those ridiculously tight jeans, very distracting it was, I'm telling you now. And we mustn't forget that we used to chain smoke cigarettes. Sirius jumped up from his chair and was sitting in Remus's lap the next moment, his hands on his face, kissing his cheeks and then his lips as he barked with laughter. Mooney, Mooney, Mooney. Sirius said after leaning back, beaming at Remus as Remus tucked a strand of hair behind Sirius's ear, smiling and looking well pleased with himself. I have you, Remus told him. I have you, and Harry, and this cottage. I have everything I could ever want or dream of. Waking up tomorrow, spending it with you and Harry and his friends, that's the gift, Sirius. Sirius kissed Remus's lips again and then leaned back looking into the earnest brown eyes with his own dark eyes soft. Just one material souvenir, he said, tracing a finger down Remus's throat. To remember the day by. Remus smiled, tilting his neck upward under Sirius's touch, his arms tightening around Sirius's waist. I told you, I haven't forgotten a moment, and I never will. I'll remember it, Sirius, always. Sirius growled, his dark eyes burning brightly now. It's not fair when you use your way with words against me. He huffed, leaning forward and nipping Remus's jaw. Now I'm going into Hogsmeade and getting your birthday gift and that's that. Harry, Ron, Hermione, Neville, Ginny, Fred, and George arrived the next day at one o'clock in the afternoon. Happy birthday, Moody! They chorused as they stepped into the back garden. The weather was mild and sunny and Remus was out by the back door plucking weeds as Patfoot ran around the edge of the property sniffing at the wards, and also rabbit holes. At the sight of the kids, Padfoot raced forward, abruptly turning into Sirius as he reached them. Wicked! Fred and George breathed in awe. Remus dusted off the soil from his hands and stood, smiling at them. Ta, you all, he said, cheeks slightly pink. Tea! Sirius insisted on preparing the tea as Remus and the kids sat at the outdoor table set up in the back garden, and Remus listened to them talk animatedly about their coursework, commenting wryly or thoughtfully when necessary. As Sirius came to join them, the teapot and teacups floating beside him before setting themselves lightly down in front of each person, Remus blushed and started shaking his head. Oh no, Sirius. We won't sing, I promise. Sirius grinned as he set down the cake in front of Remus, as well as a huge cutting knife and a stack of plates. And you may do the honor of serving us. Remus smiled softly, picking up the knife and beginning to cut the chocolate cake into triangles, putting them each on a plate and passing them on until everyone was served. Sirius raised his teacup. To Remus Lupin, the mastermind of the Marauders, one of the best Dada professors Hogwarts has had in years, connoisseur of 1970s British rock and roll, pain in the ass of certain ministry bureaucrats who shall not be named, and the Casanova of Gryffindor Tower. And here Remus blushed beetroot red as the kids grinned at him while Sirius crowed. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. The kids cheered and everyone clinked their teacups against one another and tucked into the luscious chocolate cake. Voila. Sirius said that night waving his wand so that the roast and sides set themselves on the kitchen table. Remus watched him from the kitchen doorway, leaning with one hip on the door frame, smiling softly. The table was set for two, one at the head of the table and one on the right-hand side, with two plates atop red placemats embroidered with gold detailing and two tall red candles burning brightly in golden candlesticks set beside them. 
It's lovely, Sirius, Remus said as he took his seat, Sirius sitting beside him and pouring them each a glass of red wine. Sirius raised his wine glass. Oh, another toast, Remus said wryly, lifting his own glass and looking indulgently at Sirius. Just something I didn't say in front of our guests, Sirius said, his voice low and a little hoarse. To the love of my life, on his first birthday returned to me, and to many more. Remus clinked his glass with Sirius, leaning forward to kiss him deeply. I'll say cheers to that, Padfoot. That night Remus's record player exclusively played David Bowie, and Remus was presented with Sirius's one allowed gift for him, the magical album Heroes purchased from Dominic Maestros. After the passion, Remus and Sirius lay facing each other, hands interlaced, and Remus whispered, You, Sirius, you. Sirius kissed him, curling closer and murmuring against Remus's lips, Us. Chapter 24 Mooney, Mooney, please. Remus opened his eyes on April 17th with a violent tremor, and instantly, he clamped his jaw shut to fight back a scream. This pain was different from the searing, all-consuming torture of the transformation. It was a dull, sour thing, which shot flames of white-hot fire down his arm and spine when he moved, when he breathed. I think it's dislocated. Sirius's voice was tight as a bowstring, and Remus looked through the black spots in his vision to see his face. Oh, so beautiful. There it was. Sirius's eyes were wide and a little mad-looking, focusing on Remus's right shoulder. Yes, Remus breathed, his body shivered fiercely and a groan of pain escaped his lips. Sirius's hands floated anxiously over him, afraid to touch him. How do I write it? Sirius said, urgency making his voice come out like a growl. Remus's jaw ached from clenching it shut as another shiver sent the pain of his dislocated shoulder throughout his body. Take my right hand, he whispered. Bend the elbow at a 90-degree angle. Gently, Remus felt Sirius's light fingers take his hand, and then Sirius had his other hand under Remus's elbow, and slowly, he bent it. Remus couldn't clamp down the groan that escaped him. You'll have to push upward from the elbow, Remus gasped. Then rotate it, sharply, into the socket. Remus's eyes sought out Sirius's face again and found Sirius looking in deep concentration, his long white fingers steady. With an exhale, he pushed Remus's arm upward, and here Remus let out a scream, then to the side, and with a crack, the shoulder was back into its socket. Remus gasped, the pain in his shoulder ebbing away almost instantly, so that now he could feel the rest of his aching body, and with the gasp, he noticed the pain in his ribs, there was definitely a large bruise there on his right side. Sirius's arms wrapped under his torso, pulling him into his lap, and they apparated with a pop back to the cottage. Remus awoke later that day to the logs cracking in the fireplace, and moved his head to see Sirius sitting against the headboard beside him, holding his left hand in his, Sirius's thumb rubbing rhythmically over his knuckles. Sirius! Remus croaked, and Sirius's head snapped away from studying the fireplace and focused on him. In the next second he was handing Remus a glass of water. I'm so sorry, Mooney, 
Sirius's voice was hoarse. There were black shadows under his eyes that must nearly match Remus's own. The wolf kept trying to leave the forest. I had to tackle you, pin you down. It was me. Sirius's voice cracked. I did it to you. Remus squeezed Sirius's hand. Come here, he whispered. Sirius lowered himself, keeping his head propped by his arm as he lay on his side. His face looked so tired and so worried. Remus wanted to reach for his cheek, to cup it in his hand, but as he tried to move his right hand, he found he couldn't. He looked down. His right arm was bent at a ninety-degree angle and wrapped tight to his chest with a makeshift sling which appeared to be made of ripped cloth. Remus looked back up at Sirius and released their intertwined fingers so that he could touch Sirius's cheek with his left hand. You promised me, Sirius, all those years ago, that you would keep me and others safe on the full moon. This is you fulfilling that promise. It was the right thing. Sirius bent his head into Remus's hand, kissing Remus's palm. Did you see them? Remus murmured and Sirius's eyes focused sharply on his. Yes. His words were softer now, and his face was too. So many. All over the forest. Remus let his hand drop and reached for Sirius's hand again, interlacing their fingers. I think I know what the dark creature is, Sirius. Sirius stared at him, his eyes burning. A great snake, Remus sighed. It led him to come out from their burrows tonight. No, not another basilisk. Sirius's voice was raw once more with urgency, as it had been earlier that morning in the forest. Not a basilisk, I don't think. Remus assured him quickly. It's not quite that large. And there was no sign of spiders. But I believe it must be a very large, very dark snake. Sirius swallowed, his eyes wide, staring at Remus, and they both were thinking the same thing. They were thinking about Voldemort's predilection for serpents. I have to tell Harry, Sirius said quietly. Remus nodded. Yes, he sighed, his exhaustion coming for him like waves. The pain in his ribs was a throbbing sensation, but already he could feel his body healing the bruises. Sleep, Mooney, Sirius whispered, leaning forward and kissing Remus's forehead. That evening, Remus sat propped up on pillows as Sirius sat beside him, writing down what Remus was saying on a piece of parchment as Remus spoke. His right arm would need to be tied down to his chest until at least the next day. Headmaster Last night, as I am sure you're aware, Padfoot and the wolf were in the Forbidden Forest. There were two strange occurrences which I believe you must be made aware of. The forest seemed to be covered in thousands of snakes, which had come out of their burrows, and the wolf caught the dark scent again, and tried to chase its trail out of the forest this time. Padfoot kept the wolf within the forest, but it leads us to believe that the dark creature that has been dwelling in the forest must be a great snake, and that it comes and goes as it pleases. It must be a snake surrounded with dark magic. We all know what this may be likely associated with. Harry and his friends have been informed. Please let Sirius and I know if there is anything you need from us in learning more about this dark creature or in terms of the Forbidden Forest. Kind regards. Remus Lupin. Unfortunately, discovering the nature of the dark creature that was roaming the Forbidden Forest did not signify progress in understanding its purpose. Without a doubt, the mysterious dark snake was connected to the murmurs of Voldemort's return, 
but Sirius and Remus still did not catch proper sight of it on the May or on the June full moons and the wolf seemed to lose interest both nights when the trail led it and Padfoot to a waterfall on May 17th and an intriguing but empty cave on June 18th. Sirius and Remus cast numerous wards at various entry points to the forest, but it was simply too large and too magical in nature to be sealed completely. And Sirius himself was growing highly restless. As the third task came closer, he voiced his frustration that Dumbledore had promised them he would uncover who made Harry a champion but had so far given no indication that he had made any progress himself on that front, although he had told Harry's guardians what the third task would be. The third task is less than two weeks away, he growled, pacing in the living room and running his hands through his black hair one evening. You said that whoever did this would likely tamper with the tasks, and this would be the one to do it. Remus nodded, his elbows were clasped on his knees, and he was watching Sirius soberly. I'm afraid so. We'll make him carry the mirror, and his whistle into the maze. Sirius was saying as he paced. And we'll tell him to keep his focus on getting through, not on winning. Remus smiled softly. I think he showed us all in the second task that his mind has never been on winning. Sirius paused, looking tiredly at Remus. Mooney. I know. Remus assured him, beckoning Sirius to come sit beside him on the sofa. Sirius did, sighing heavily and hanging his head in his hands. Remus placed a soft hand on Sirius's back. They stayed like that a long while, not speaking, and thought of all that they were prepared to do if Harry seemed within a mile of any danger, but also of how they would know if he was from within the maze. Sirius and Remus insisted on Harry using the two-way mirror every night from then onward. Harry and the other champions were soon also told about the maze, and so Harry, Ron, and Hermione would use the cloak and sneak into an empty classroom and Harry would show Sirius and Remus his advancing skills at stunning and disarming, as well as a few hexes Moody had taught the fourth years that year. Sirius and Remus also came up with new spells and showed Harry the methods. Soon, Harry had mastered the shield charm, the impediment curse, a spell to slow down and obstruct attackers, the reductor curse, which enabled him to blast solid objects out of his way, and the four-point spell that made his wand point due north. A week before the final task, Harry staggered sleepily up the stairs to Professor Trelawney's trap door and found a seat in one of the plush armchairs. Professor Trelawney dimmed the lights as she began showing a miniature model of the solar system. The heavy perfumed fumes of the fireplace washed over Harry and he felt his eyelids droop. Harry was riding on an eagle owl, soaring through the sky toward an old, ivy-covered house set high on a hillside. Harry and the owl flew through a dark broken window into the upper story of the house, then flew through a gloomy passageway, to a room at the very end with boarded-up windows. Harry had left the owl's back now, and watched as it fluttered across the room to a chair with its back to Harry. There were two dark shapes on the floor, both of them stirring. One was a huge snake, and the other was a man. He was wearing black robes and a black hood, his face seemed to be wearing a permanent sneer. You are in luck, McNair, a cold high-pitched voice from the chair said. Mr. Crouch is dead. My lord, the man on the floor growled. I am so sorry. Nagini, said the cold voice, you are out of luck. I will not be feeding McNair to you, after all, but there is still Harry Potter. 
Now, McNair, perhaps one little reminder why I will not tolerate another blunder from you. The tip of a wand emerged from the back of the chair, pointing at Walden McNair. Crucio, said the cold voice and McNair screamed. The screaming filled Harry's ears as the scar on his forehead seared with pain. He was yelling too. Harry, Harry. Harry opened his eyes. He was lying on the floor in Professor Trelawney's room with hands over his face. His scar was burning so badly that his eyes were watering. The whole class was standing around him. Are you all right? Ron said, kneeling beside Harry and looking terrified. Harry sat up. He could feel himself shaking. I need to go to the hospital wing. Bad headache. Harry stood up. The whole class backed away, looking unnerved. See you later. Harry muttered to Ron and picked up his bag. But he had no intention of going to the hospital wing. He was going to Dumbledore's office. Harry reached the stone gargoyle and said every magical candy he could think of until the gargoyle jumped aside at Sugar Quill. Harry climbed the stairs upward, stopping when he reached the oak door with the brass door knocker. There were voices inside. And what do you think happened to Barty Crouch, Minister? came Professor Moody's growling voice. I believe that Crouch has finally cracked, very likely, you will agree given his personal history, said Cornelius Fudge. Can we wrap up this discussion? said Moody. Potter wants a word with you, Dumbledore. He's just outside the door. Harry, cried Fudge as Harry entered Dumbledore's office. How are you? Fine, Harry lied. I wanted to talk to you, Professor, Harry said quickly to Dumbledore. Dumbledore inclined his head and Moody and Fudge dismissed themselves, Fudge looking quite put out by this. What is it, Harry? Dumbledore asked him. I? I better tell Sirius and Remus too, Harry said and Dumbledore nodded as Harry pulled out the two-way mirror and propped it up on Dumbledore's desk with a stack of books. Sirius! Remus! Harry called into the mirror. For a moment, the mirror merely reflected Harry's face back at him but soon it started to ripple and the faces of Harry's guardians appeared, sitting side by side on the sofa in their living room. Harry, Sirius said. You all right? Harry quickly moved the mirror so that his guardians could see Dumbledore. Immediately their jaws went tight and their eyes sharp with worry. I thought I should tell you all something, Harry explained quickly. I was in divination, just now, Harry started, and I fell asleep. Quite understandable, Dumbledore said lightly. Continue, please, Harry. And I had a dream. A dream about Voldemort, Harry said. In the mirror, Remus's and Sirius's faces had gone pale. He was torturing a man. Walden McNair. I believe I know him. Yes, Dumbledore nodded. I believe you do. He was the executioner who came to Hogwarts last year. Harry swallowed. Well, Voldemort got a letter from an owl, and he said something like McNair's mistake had been repaired, and that Mr. Crouch was dead. And here, Harry turned to look at his guardian's faces in the mirror. There was a snake beside his chair. He said he wouldn't feed McNair to it, he called it Nagini, but that he would feed me to it soon instead. Then he did the Cruciatus curse on McNair and, and my scar hurt. It hurt so badly it woke me up. Remus's and Sirius's mouths were open in shock, their faces masks of worry. I see, Dumbledore said. Now has your scar hurt at any other time this year? No. Do you know why my scar's hurting me? 
Dumbledore looked intently at Harry for a moment, and then said, I have a theory. It is my belief that your scar hurts both when Voldemort is near you, and when he is experiencing a particularly strong surge of hatred. But, why? Because you and he are connected by the curse that failed. Dumbledore explained. That is no ordinary scar. Did Harry's dream? Sirius spoke up hoarsely in the mirror. Did it really happen, then? It is possible, Dumbledore said. I would say, probable. Harry, did you see Voldemort? No, Harry said quickly. Just the back of his chair. But I mean, he can't have a body, can he? But then, how could he have held a wand? How indeed, murmured Dumbledore. Within the mirror, Remus said quietly. He's getting stronger. Dumbledore looked into the mirror. I suspect so, he sighed, looking older and wearier than ever. Mr. Crouch has disappeared, and if Harry's dream is reality, then he may have been killed. And he's planning on killing Harry next, Sirius said. His voice came out strangled and Harry noticed that Remus had moved his arms. Below the view of the mirror, Remus seemed to be holding Sirius's hands. The snake, Nagini, Remus said quietly. It's been traveling to and from Hogwarts all this time. But it's been waiting, waiting for what? Dumbledore looked down at his desk. I do not know. Your theories then? Sirius growled. His eyes looked lit from within by black flames. Dumbledore's gaze rose once more to the mirror. Voldemort has a plan. Harry seems to be a central part of it, and with Mr. Crouch as his last target. The third task. Harry had only ever heard Remus Lupin's voice so steely cold one other time. That night in the clearing under the dark mark when Mr. Crouch had doubted Sirius. Headmaster, Remus began. I am afraid he must compete, Dumbledore said calmly, his bright blue eyes focused on Remus's. The task is secure, I can assure you. Sirius's growl vibrated deeply in his chest. Like you can assure us that you know who put Harry's name in. You promised. Dumbledore nodded looking grave. I did, Sirius. I gave you my word, and still I have no suspicions, no theories, on that matter. And for that, I am deeply sorry. You can take your apology and shove it up your... Sirius was nearly shouting now. We'll see you at the third task in five days, Headmaster. Remus said quickly, below the mirror. Harry knew he was tightly gripping Sirius's hands, and then his brown eyes flashed to Harry. Please, Harry. He said, his soft voice was earnest and sincere as ever. Concentrate on getting through the maze safely. Trust that Dumbledore, Sirius, and I will have our attention on any other matters. Your priority shall be the maze. Ours is your safety. Do you understand? Harry nodded. His heart seemed to be beating more evenly as Remus spoke and he let out an exhale. You're very well prepared, Harry, Remus told him. And as ever, we believe in you. Chapter 25 The day of the third task. Within their cottage in Hogsmeade, Remus and Sirius stood and dressed. They had not slept a moment. Remus came to stand behind Sirius as he half-heartedly swept his hair out of his eyes, looking at himself in the mirror beside their wardrobe. Sirius caught Remus's eye in the mirror and reached for his hand. Within his dorm room in Hogwarts, Harry had fared slightly better. He felt prepared for the maze, but couldn't shake the nagging, icy fear that his dream had given him. Harry was almost finished with breakfast when Professor McGonagall approached the Gryffindor table. 
Potter, the champions are congregating in the chamber off the hall after breakfast, she said briskly. But the task's not until tonight, Harry cried, accidentally spilling pumpkin juice in sudden alarm. I'm aware of that, Potter, Professor McGonagall said. The champions' families are all invited to watch the final task, you know, this is simply a chance for you to greet them. She moved away, and Harry smiled. His chest felt suddenly quite light. Harry joined Fleur, Cedric, and Victor as they went into the side chamber. Cedric went to his father, Amos Diggory, and beside him stood Mrs. Diggory whom Harry had not yet met. Victor slouched over to his mother and father, speaking together in rapid Bulgarian. Fleur was speaking in French to her mother, her younger sister Gabrielle, holding their mother's hand, waved at Harry, who waved back, grinning. Then Harry turned and saw Sirius, Remus, Molly Weasley, and Bill Weasley standing by the fireplace. Our champion, Sirius cried, rushing forward to envelop his godson in a hug. Harry hugged him back tightly, blushing a bit, as relief overwhelmed him. Sirius towed him over to the others by the fireplace, and Remus put a hand on his shoulder, and Molly kissed his cheek. All right, said Bill, shaking his hand. Harry's other hand had started scrubbing at his face, a little embarrassed at his own raw emotions. Harry beamed at them all a little watery-eyed. Yeah, Harry managed. Harry, his guardians, Molly, and Bill had a wonderful morning exploring Hogwarts. Harry showed them all the Bobatton carriage and the Durmstrang ship. Sirius looked in wide-eyed amazement at the three-masted old ship and Remus smiled. Reckon Sirius would have made a good pirate in another life, eh? Harry and Bill grinned and nodded, while Molly turned to eye her eldest son's long hair and earring. Well, Bill's certainly trying to bring the look back. They all chuckled at that. Ooh, what's that, Harry? Molly said a little while later as they walked near Hagrid's hut. She was pointing down to the Whomping Willow. Um. Harry glanced up at Remus, who stood staring at the tree with his hands in his pockets, a faraway look in his brown eyes. It's called the Whomping Willow, Remus said calmly, still staring at the gnarled tree. It was planted in 1971. It guards the tunnel that leads to the Shrieking Shack in Hogsmeade. A tunnel to the Shrieking Shack? Molly exclaimed. Why on earth would Hogwarts even have such a tunnel? And to the most haunted house in Britain, of all places. Harry saw Sirius's eyes flash a little dangerously. He had come to stand beside Remus, and turned away from Molly to look up at Remus's face. Remus reached and held Sirius's hand. His lips were frowning slightly, and his brown eyes seemed to be feasting on that tree, but seeing beyond it, into the tunnel, and into the shack. Molly turned away from the Whomping Willow for a moment, her shocked and incredulous expression fading into one of confusion as she caught on to Sirius and Remus's held hands, and the looks on their faces. The Shrieking Shack was never haunted by malevolent spirits, Remus said quietly, but rather just by one werewolf. Molly gaped for a moment, and then snapped her mouth shut audibly. I see, she squeaked. Bill stared at Remus as if seeing him for the first time. Harry reached for Remus's other hand and gave it a quick squeeze. Remus seemed to come out of his reverie, looking down at Harry and smiling softly. Come, Sirius said gently. It's almost lunchtime. Mum, Bill, you're here. 
Ron said as he joined them all at the Gryffindor table for lunch. Padfoot, Mooney, Fred and George cried as they clambered into the benches across from Sirius and Remus. Hiya, Ginny said, taking a seat next to Fred. Hello, Remus, Hermione said, blushing as she sat next to Ginny. The other champions' families certainly did not get as much attention as Harry's that lunch. Every five seconds, it seemed, a student approached the table, saying, Hi, Professor Lupin, or shyly holding out a piece of parchment, or the inside cover of a book and asking Sirius if he could sign it. Blimey, you must be the first escaped prisoner to ever get asked for his autograph, George said. George. Molly chastised but Sirius just barked a laugh and winked. They spent the rest of the afternoon walking leisurely around the castle. Molly and Bill were both happy to be back at Hogwarts. For Molly it had been the longest since she had been back. And Sirius and Remus were happy to be walking the halls together, this time without Sirius having to be disguised as Padfoot and Remus without having to recover from a full moon. Harry saw them whispering to one another and pointing out statues and paintings and passageways, and caught their shared expressions of bittersweet nostalgia. Often, they would turn and look for him, Sirius putting his arm over Harry's shoulders and sharing with him what they had just been telling each other. This was our favorite tapestry to hide out behind after pranking the Slytherin's dungeons, Sirius would say, or, This is where I hosted my study group, Remus said, looking into the spare classroom between charms and history of magic. They returned to the Great Hall for the evening feast, and now Ludo Bagman and Cornelius Fudge sat at the high table. Harry noticed Fudge narrow his eyes and frown at the sight of Sirius and Remus, and Harry gave him the worst glare he could muster. He hadn't forgotten that Fudge had allowed the werewolf decree to pass under his watch. Sirius didn't seem to have forgotten either, for as he sat down at the bench, he ran a hand through his hair while letting his middle finger remain upright, pointed directly towards Fudge. Fudge went red with anger, and then abruptly white. Remus was looking at him, and had raised his eyebrows behind his glass of pumpkin juice as if in a toast that said, You'll be hearing from us soon. As the enchanted ceiling began to fade from blue to dusky purple, Dumbledore rose and silence fell. Ladies and gentlemen, in five minutes' time I will be asking you to make your way down to the Quidditch field for the third and final task of the Triwizard Tournament. Will the champions please follow Mr. Bagman down to the stadium now? Sirius wrapped Harry into a tight hug. You'll do wonderful, pup. You've got the mirror and the whistle, he said gruffly. Harry nodded into Sirius's chest and Sirius leaned back, ruffling his hair. Remus put his hand on Harry's shoulder. Just focus on the maze, Harry, Sirius and I will handle anything else. Remus assured him. Good luck, Harry. Molly, Bill, Fred, George, Ginny, Ron, and Hermione chorused as Harry stood, waving at them. As he walked down toward the Quidditch field with Cedric, Fleur, and Victor, Harry kept running over the hexes and spells in his mind. The field was now covered in a twenty-foot-high hedge with a gap right in front of where they now stood. The entrance to the vast maze looked dark and creepy. Five minutes later, the stands began to fill and Harry heard the barking whistle of Patfoot and the chorus of the Hole of the Moon. Harry brought his own whistle to his lips, ducking his head so no one could see as he blew gently and knew his guardians had heard the roar of his Gryffindor lion. The sky was now a deep, clear blue with the first stars starting to appear. 
Hagrid, Professor McGonagall, Professor Moody, and Professor Flitwick approached the champions. We will be patrolling the outside of the maze, Professor McGonagall said. If you get into any difficulty and wish to be rescued, send up red sparks with your wand and one of us will come and get you, understood. The champions nodded. Ladies and gentlemen, called Ludo Bagman's amplified voice. The third and final task of the Triwizard Tournament is about to begin. Tied in first place with 85 points each Mr. Cedric Diggay and Mr. Harry Potter, both of Hogwarts School. The cheers and applause were punctuated, for Harry, by the sounds of Sirius's and Remus's whistles. In second place, with 80 points, Mr. Victor Crumb of the Durmstrang Institute. And in third place, Miss Fleur Delica of Bobatton's Academy. So, on my whistle, Harry and Cedric. Three, two, one. He gave a short blast with his whistle and Harry and Cedric hurried into the maze. The noise of the crowd was silenced the moment Harry and Cedric entered the maze. The towering hedges cast black shadows across the path and Harry pulled out his wand, muttering, Lumos! Behind him, Cedric did the same. After about fifty yards, they reached a fork and looked at one another. See you, Harry said, taking the left one as Cedric took the right. Harry sped up, turning corners, but his path seemed deserted, and he had the odd feeling as if he were being watched. Harry used the four-point spell and his wand pointed to his right, straight into solid hedge. The best Harry could do was take the left fork and go right as soon as possible. Harry came to a right turn and took it, hearing movement behind him. He held out his wand, ready to attack, when Cedric hurried out of a path on the right-hand side. Looking shaken and panting, the left sleeve of his robes was smoking. Hagrid's blast ended Scrooge's. Cedric hissed. They're enormous. I only just got away. He shook his head and dove out of sight, along another path. Harry hurried onward, turning a corner, and then he saw it, a Dementor, twelve feet tall, gliding toward him. Harry could hear its rattling breath. He felt clammy coldness stealing over him, but knew what to do. He summoned the first happy thought that came to him. It was of Sirius and Remus standing in the doorway of the Dursley's house, and Remus was saying, We're here to bring Harry Potter home. Expecto Patronum! Harry cried and the silver stag shot out of his wand, galloping toward the Dementor, which fell back and tripped on its robes. Hang on! Harry shouted. You're a Bogart! Ridiculous! There was a loud crack and the shapeshifter disappeared in a wisp of smoke. Harry continued on, listening hard, his wand held high as possible. And then a scream shattered the silence. Fla! Harry yelled. There were no more sounds. What had happened to her? Harry hurried forward and then heard something running parallel to his own. What are you doing? yelled Cedric's voice. What the hell do you think you're doing? And then Harry heard Crumb's voice. Crucio! Cedric was screaming and Harry pointed his wand at the hedge, using the reductor spell to burn a hole through it, he struggled through, tearing his robes, and saw Cedric jerking and twitching on the ground to his right, Victor standing over him. Stupefy! Harry yelled. The spell hit Victor in the back and he fell forward, motionless. Harry ran to Cedric, who was now lying panting on the ground. Are you all right? Harry asked. Yeah. Cedric panted. Yeah, I don't believe it. He crept up behind me. 
I heard him, I turned around, and he had his wand on me. Cedric shakily got to his feet, breathing hard. He and Harry looked down at Victor. I can't believe this, Harry murmured. I thought he was all right. So did I. Did you hear Fleur scream earlier? Harry asked him. Yeah, you don't think Victor got her too? I don't know. Harry shook his head, worried. He thought about pulling out the mirror to tell Sirius and Remus what had happened, but he supposed he could just as well tell them after the task. Victor was now clearly no threat. Reckon we should send up Red Sparks, Cedric said. Someone'll come and collect him. Otherwise, he'll probably get eaten by a scrooge. Harry nodded in agreement, and Cedric pointed his wand toward the night sky, shooting up red sparks into the air. Cedric and Harry stood there a moment, and then Cedric said, Well, I suppose we'd better go on then. What? Oh, yeah right, Harry stammered. They proceeded up the path again, and Cedric went left and Harry to the right. Harry could barely believe what Victor had done. An unforgivable curse usually warranted a life sentence in Azkaban. Victor hadn't wanted the cup that badly, had he? Every so often Harry hit dead ends and had to turn around, but the increasing darkness made him feel sure that he was getting near to the heart of the maze. And then Harry came to a choice of paths, using the four-point spell again, and turned right, he dashed up ahead and saw light. The Triwizard Cup was gleaming on a plinth a hundred yards away, and suddenly a figure hurtled out onto the path in front of him. Cedric was getting there first, he was sprinting as fast as he could to the cup, and Harry knew he would never catch up, and then Harry saw something huge over the hedge to his left, moving quickly along the path that intersected with his own. Cedric! Harry yelled. On your left! Cedric looked around just in time to hurl himself past the thing and avoid colliding with it, but in his haste he tripped, his wand flying out of his hand. A gigantic spider stepped onto the path and began to bear down upon Cedric. Stupefy! Harry yelled. Impedimenta! But the spider was either too large or so magical that the spells did nothing. Harry was lifted into the air in its front legs, struggling madly. He tried to kick it, his leg connected with pincers and the next moment he was in excruciating pain. Expelliarmus! Harry cried and the disarming spell made the spider drop him. Harry fell twelve feet onto his already injured leg and without pausing to think, aimed high at the spider's underbelly, shouting, Stupefy! at the same time as Cedric. The two spells combined did what one could not. The spider keeled over sideways. Harry! Cedric shouted. You all right. Did it fall on you? No. Harry called back, gasping and looking down at his bleeding leg. He struggled onto his good leg, leaning against the hedge. Cedric was standing feet from the Triwizard Cup. Go on, take it then, you're there. Harry panted. But Cedric didn't move. He merely stood there, looking at Harry, and then he turned and looked at the cup. Cedric turned back again to look at Harry and took a deep breath. You take it. You should win. That's twice you saved my neck in here. That's not how it's supposed to work, Harry said. The one who reaches the cup first gets the points. That's you. I'm telling you, I'm not going to win any races on this leg. Cedric stepped closer towards Harry, away from the cup. No, he said. Stop being noble, 
Harry urged. Just take it and we can get out of here. You told me about the dragons, Cedric said. I would have gone down in the first task if I hadn't known what was coming. I had help on that too, Harry said, trying to mop up his bloody leg with his robes. You helped me with the egg, we're square. I had help on the egg in the first place, Cedric said. We're still square, Harry insisted. You should have gotten more points on the second task, Cedric said with a determined expression. Just take the cup, Harry said. No, Cedric said quite firmly. Harry stared at him. Cedric was serious. He was walking away from the sword of glory Hufflepuff house hadn't had in centuries. Go on, Cedric said. His face was set, his arms were folded, and he seemed decided. Both of us, Harry said. What? We'll take it at the same time. It's still a Hogwarts victory. We'll tie for it. Cedric unfolded his arms. You sure? Yeah, Harry said. We've helped each other out, haven't we? We both got here. Let's take it together. Cedric's face split into a grin. You're on, he said. Come here. He grabbed Harry's arm below the shoulder and helped Harry limp toward the plinth. When they reached it, they both held out a hand over one of its gleaming handles. On three right, said Harry. One, two, three. He and Cedric each grasped a handle. Instantly Harry felt himself jerked off the ground. The Triwizard Cup was pulling he and Cedric through space in a howl of wind and color. In the stands, staring at the darkened hedge rows, Remus Lupin gripped Sirius' black shoulder. Mooney, what is it? Sirius said immediately, dropping his omnioculars from his face, turning to Remus, eyes wide. I can't smell Harry anymore. Remus's voice was a taut whisper. His hand on Sirius's shoulder was almost painful. Slowly he turned to look at Sirius. Harry's not in the maze. Chapter 26 Harry's feet slammed into the ground, his injured leg giving way as he fell forward. Where are we? He croaked as he caught his breath. Cedric shook his head, standing and helping Harry to his feet. They were standing in a dark and overgrown graveyard, the black outline of a small church visible from beyond a large yew tree to their right. A hill rose to their left, and Harry could just make out the outline of a fine old house on the hillside. Cedric looked down at the cup and then back up at Harry. Did anyone tell you that the cup was a port key? Nope, Harry said, looking at the silent graveyard. Is this supposed to be part of the task? I don't know. Cedric said, sounding nervous. Wands out, do you reckon? Yeah, Harry agreed. They pulled out their wands and Harry had the strange feeling again that they were being watched. He thought of the mirror and the whistle in his robes. Should he use one of them? Would Sirius and Remus even be able to hear it? How far away were they from Hogwarts? Someone's coming, Harry said, squinting into the darkness as they watched a figure draw nearer walking toward them between the graves. Harry could tell it was holding a bundle in its arms, and had a hooded cloak over his head. The figure stopped beside a towering marble headstone, only six feet from them. And then, without warning, Harry's scar exploded with pain. It was agony such as he had never felt in his life. His wand slipped from his fingers and his knees buckled. He was on the ground, 
His head was about to split open. This must be how Remus feels. Some part of Harry's brain managed to think. From far away, above Harry's head, he heard a cold high voice say, Kill the spare. A swishing noise and then a second voice howled into the night. Avada Kedavra. A blast of green light shot through Harry's eyelids and he heard something heavy fall to the ground beside him. The pain reached such a point that Harry vomited, and then it diminished, and Harry opened his stinging eyes. Cedric was laying spread-eagled on the ground beside him. Cedric was dead. Harry stared into Cedric's face, at his open gray eyes, at his half-open mouth, which looked slightly surprised. And then, before Harry's mind accepted what he was seeing, he felt himself being pulled to his feet. The man in the cloak had put down the bundle, lit his wand, and was dragging Harry toward the marble headstone, and Harry saw a name flicking in the wand light. Tom Riddle. Numb and automatically, Harry dove his hand into his robes and grabbed for the whistle, bringing it to his lips and blowing with all the strength he could muster. He'd never tested out how far the range could go. It may be no use. The cloaked man grabbed Harry's arm, yanking the whistle from his hand and throwing it over his shoulder before conjuring cords around Harry, tying him from neck and ankles to the headstone. The man's hooded face came into his wand light and Harry gasped. You! It was the executioner, McNair. The one in Harry's dream. Please have heard the roar. Harry's mind begged. Please? And then McNair stuffed a black material roughly into Harry's mouth, and without a word, hurried away. Harry couldn't make a sound or move a muscle. He could only see what was right in front of him. He could feel the weight of the mirror in his pocket, taunting him. Cedric's body was laying in front of him, twenty feet away, and beyond, glinting in the starlight, was the Triwizard Cup. Harry's wand was on the ground by Harry's feet. He could hear noises at his feet and looked down, and there it was, what had been so close to Hogwarts all year. The gigantic snake, Nagini, circled the headstone where Harry was tied. McNair came back into Harry's vision, lugging a gigantic stone cauldron to the foot of the grave. Harry could hear liquid slopping around within it. The bundle on the ground was stirring, as though whatever was inside was trying to free itself. McNair lit a crackling fire underneath the cauldron, and the liquid inside seemed to heat very fast. The surface bubbled and fiery sparks shot out of it, as though it were on fire. Steam was thickening, Blurring McNair's outline as the movements in the bundle became more agitated and Harry heard the cold, high voice say, Hurry! It is ready, master! Came McNair's gruff voice. Now! Said the cold voice. McNair pulled open the robes on the ground, revealing what was inside them, and Harry's yell was muffled by the wad of cloth in his mouth. It was the shape of a crouched human child, except it was hairless and scaly-looking, Dark, raw, reddish-black, with thin, feeble arms and legs, and its face, flat and snake-like, with gleaming red eyes. McNair lifted the thing into his arms and as he did so, his hood fell back and Harry saw the look of revulsion on McNair's sneering, dark face as he carried the creature to the rim of the cauldron. And then McNair lowered the creature into the liquid, and there was a hiss as it vanished below the surface. Harry's scar was burning with blinding pain. If Remus can do it, I can do it, Harry thought helplessly. McNair was speaking, 
his voice gravelly and harsh, raising his wand. Bone of the father, unknowingly given you will renew your son. The surface of the grave at Harry's feet cracked, and Harry watched in horror as a gray, thin bone rose into the air and fell softly into the cauldron. The sparkling surface of the cauldron hissed, and it turned a vivid blue. McNair was scowling, his mouth contorted as he pulled a long, thin shining silver dagger from inside his cloak. Flesh of the servant, willingly given, you will revive your master. Harry closed his eyes as tightly as he could but he could not block out the grunt of pain and the sound of something falling to the ground, and heard McNair's anguished panting, followed by a splash as something dropped into the cauldron. Harry suddenly heard McNair's wheezing breath in front of him. Blood of the enemy, forcibly taken, you will resurrect your foe. Harry struggled helplessly against the cords binding him and finally opened his eyes to see the dagger penetrate the crook of his right arm. McNair fumbled in his pocket and withdrew a glass vial and held it to Harry's cut so that a stream of blood fell into it from the dagger. McNair staggered to the cauldron with Harry's blood and poured it inside. Instantly, the liquid turned a blinding white. His job done, McNair fell to his knees, cradling the stump of his arm to his chest, staring hungrily at the cauldron. And then the sparks emanating from the cauldron were extinguished. A surge of white steam billowed thickly from it instead, obscuring everything in front of Harry so he couldn't see McNair or Cedric, or anything but vapor. Please, Harry thought. Please, please? And then, through the mist in front of him, Harry saw, with an icy surge of terror, the dark outline of a man, tall and skeletally thin, rising slowly from within the cauldron. Rogue me, said the high cold voice behind the steam and McNair rose unsteadily to his feet, his black eyes searching the vapor as he picked up the black robes on the ground and reached up, pulling them one-handed over his master's head. The thin man stepped out of the cauldron, staring at Harry and Harry stared at the face that haunted his nightmares for three years. Wider than a skull, with wide vivid red scarlet eyes with slitted pupils, and a nose as flat as a snake's, Lord Voldemort had risen again. Voldemort looked away from Harry and began examining his body. His hands were spidery, large and pale. His long white fingers caressed his chest, and his arms, his face, gleamed brightly through the darkness. Voldemort withdrew a wand from the depths of those black robes and pulled McNair to his feet, forcing McNair's sleeves past his elbow, and Harry saw a red tattoo, a skull with a snake protruding from its mouth, the dark mark. It is back he said softly. They will all have noticed it. Now we shall see. Now we shall know. He pressed a long white forefinger to the brand on McNair's arm. Harry's scar burned with sharp pain and McNair himself grunted, and as Voldemort removed his finger, Harry saw that it had turned jet black. Voldemort straightened up and stared around the dark graveyard. How many will be brave enough to return when they feel it? And how many will be foolish enough to stay away? Voldemort began to pace, his red eyes darting from grave to grave, and suddenly the air was full of swishing cloaks. Between graves, behind the yew tree, wizards were apparating, hooded and masked. Death Eaters. One of them fell to their knees, kissing the hem of Voldemort's black robes. Master! Master! Each of the Death Eaters did the same, before backing away and standing up, forming a silent circle. They left gaps as though waiting for more people. 
Welcome, Death Eaters, Voldemort said quietly. Thirteen years since we last met, and yet you answer my call as though it were yesterday. We are still united under the dark mark then. Or are we? I ask myself, how could they have believed that I would not rise again? They, who knew the steps I had taken, long ago, to guard myself against mortal death. It is a disappointment to me, I confess myself disappointed. Master, forgive me. Forgive us all. One of the Death Eaters cried, collapsing at Voldemort's feet. Voldemort raised his wand. Crucio. The Death Eater withered and shrieked. Please. Harry thought. Let someone hear, please. Voldemort lowered his wand and the tortured Death Eater lay panting. Get up, Avery. Voldemort said quietly. I want repayment before I forgive you. McNair here has paid some of his debt already, have you not, McNair? He looked to McNair. His face was pale and contorted with pain, but he squared his shoulders. You came when my most faithful servant found you, and you helped return me to my body. And Voldemort rewards his helpers. Voldemort raised his wand so that a streak of molten silver appeared in the wand's wake, molding itself into a human hand as it soared through the air and fixed itself upon McNair's bleeding wrist. Voldemort smiled a soft, cruel smile. Silver, he said quietly. We'll do well against one of those who once guarded Harry Potter. Harry's heart stuttered and there were murmurings in the circle, but Voldemort was approaching one of the Death Eaters. Lucius, my slippery friend, he whispered. I am told that you have not renounced the old ways, yet you never tried to find me. Your exploits at the Quidditch World Cup were fun, I dare say, but might your exploits have been better directed toward finding and aiding your master? My lord, came Lucius Malfoy's voice underneath the hood. Had there been any sign of your whereabouts, I would have been at your side immediately. There were signs, Voldemort hissed. And yet you ran from my mark when my most faithful servant sent it into the sky last summer. Yes, I know all about that, Lucius. Voldemort moved on and stopped at a space large enough for two people in the circle. The Lestranges should stand here, he murmured. But they are entombed in Azkaban. When Azkaban is broken open, the Lestranges will be rewarded beyond their dreams. He walked on. Some of the Death Eaters he passed in silence, but he paused before others and spoke to them, mentioning surnames. Not, crap, Goyle. He reached the largest gap of all and stood surveying it with blank, red eyes. And here we have six missing Death Eaters. Three dead in my service, one too cowardly to return, he will pay. And one, who I believe has left me forever, and one, my most faithful servant, and who has already re-entered my service. He is at Hogwarts and it is through his efforts that our young friend arrived here tonight. He's at Hogwarts, Harry thought. Oh no. Harry Potter has kindly joined us for my rebirthing party. Voldemort hissed as the eyes and the circle flashed in Harry's direction. You know that they call this boy my downfall. Voldemort said softly, his red eyes upon Harry. The night I lost my powers and my body, I tried to kill him. His mother died in the attempt to save him and unwittingly provided him with a protection I admit I had not foreseen, I could not touch the boy. Voldemort raised one of his long white fingers close to Harry's cheek. His mother left upon him traces of her sacrifice, but no matter. I can touch him now. Harry felt the cold tip of the long white finger touch him and thought his head would burst with pain. Serious, Remus. Please? My curse was deflected by the woman's foolish sacrifice and it rebounded upon myself. I was ripped from my body. 
I was less than spirit, less than the meanest ghost, but still, I was alive, what I was, even I do not know, I, who have gone further than anybody along the path that leads to immortality. You know my goal, to conquer death. And now, I was tested, and it appeared that one or more of my experiments had worked, for I had not been killed. Voldemort told his Death Eaters his tale of his less than half-life in a forest, possessing the bodies of snakes and eventually quarrel, trying to gain the means back to his body. Harry listened with half an ear, his whole body numb and begging. And Voldemort told of how McNair and his most faithful servant found him in the forest of Albania, and knew of the Triwizard Tournament. Voldemort explained the potion to his Death Eaters that had revived him, the bone of his father, and McNair's flesh, but how to get to Harry Potter. Yes, how to get to Harry Potter, Voldemort mused, for he had been better protected than I think even he knows, by blood magic and bonds which ensure the boy's protection as long as he is in his godfather's care. Not even I can touch him when they are together, and at Hogwarts, he is always under the care of Dumbledore. Well, I used my most faithful Death Eater, stationed at Hogwarts, to ensure the boy's name entered the Goblet of Fire and that he touched the Triwizard Cup first, for it was a port key which brought him here. And here he is, the boy you all believed has been my downfall. Voldemort raised his wand. Crucio. It was pain beyond Harry's scar. His bones felt like they were on fire. His eyes were rolling madly in his head but still he clung to one thought. If Remus can do it, I can do it. Now, untie him, McNair. Voldemort whispered. And give him back his wand. McNair approached Harry and with one swipe of his new silver hand, cut through the bonds tying Harry to the gravestone and Harry fell forward, pulling the material blocking his mouth free, gasping and heaving. Harry's injured leg shook as he stood at the overgrown grave and McNair returned from where Cedric's body lay with Harry's wand, thrusting it into his hand. You have been taught to duel Harry Potter, Voldemort said softly. Harry knew he was about to face the unblockable the killing curse. We bow to each other, Voldemort hissed. Bow to death, Harry. Voldemort raised his wand and Harry felt as if a huge invisible hand were pressing his spine ruthlessly forward and the Death Eaters laughed as Harry Potter bowed. Very good, Voldemort said and as he raised his wand the pressure bearing upon Harry lifted. And now you face me, like a man, straight-backed and proud, the way your father died. Too right. A gruff voice said behind Harry. Prongs did not fear death, and certainly not for a worthy cause. He was a Gryffindor, after all. Voldemort's snake-like nostrils flared and he raised his wand in an arch over his head, casting the shield charm over himself wordlessly just as red sparks bounced off the invisible barrier surrounding his moonlit skin. The circle behind him had broken as Death Eaters engaged, battling against two continuously casting wands to Harry's sides. Some of the hooded figures were falling flat, stunned, but Voldemort did not hesitate. And Harry knew this was his only chance. Avada Kedavra! Voldemort shouted as Harry cried. Expelliarmus! A jet of green light met a jet of red light in midair and Harry's wand was vibrating as though an electric current was surging through it. His hand seized up around it, and he couldn't have released it if he wanted to and a narrow beam of light connected the two wands, not green or red, but gold. And then, the golden light arched over their heads, sealing Harry and Voldemort in a web-like dome of radiant light. 
The remaining standing Death Eaters were battling the two recently apparated duelists, ducking and dodging behind graves, caught off guard by the new threats and the strange sights surrounding their newly resurrected master. The beam of light connecting Voldemort's and Harry's wand started to emit echoing screams of pain and Voldemort's eyes widened in shock as the ghost of the hand he had made for McNair flew out of the tip of Voldemort's wand and vanished, and then, something much larger began to emerge from the wand tip as though it were made of the densest smoke. It was a head, and then chest and arms, and then the body of Cedric Diggory emerged. This shade of Cedric stood up and looked up and down at the golden web and turned to Harry. Hold on, Harry, it said. Very dimly, Harry heard the last calls of the Death Eaters outside of the dome, and then a silence, muffled by shouts, someone, two voices, were calling his name, but Harry stayed staring at the shade of Cedric. And now another head was emerging from the tip of Voldemort's wand, and the smoky shadow of a young woman with long hair looked up and Harry's arm was shaking madly as he looked into the ghostly face of his mother. Lily, a voice outside of the dome cried hoarsely. Your father's coming, Lily Potter said to her son quietly. Hold on, it will be all right, hold on. And then he came, first his head, and then his body, tall and untidy hair like Harry, the smoky form of James Potter blossomed from the end of Voldemort's wand. He walked close to Harry, looking down at him, and he spoke in that same distant voice. When the connection is broken, we will linger only moments, but we will give you time. Padfoot and Mooney are waiting for you, just outside the dome. They will apparate you back to Hogwarts. Harry, whispered the figure of Cedric. Take my body back, will you? Take my body back to my parents. I will, Harry promised. Do it now, James whispered. They are waiting for you. Now, Harry yelled and he pulled his wand upward with a wrench and the golden thread broke. The cage of light vanished but the shadowy figures of Voldemort's victims did not disappear. They closed in on Voldemort, shielding Harry from his gaze. And Harry was enveloped in two arms, but he was shouting already, Accio Cedric! It was horrible, but Harry did not have to look. One of the arms around him released him and Harry heard the exhale of breath that signaled that they had caught the boy's body. And then Harry heard Voldemort scream of fury the same moment he heard two pops of apparition, and Harry was yanked in a dizzying spin, wrapped in the strong familiar arms of his godfather. Chapter 27 It wasn't the whistle, they had not heard it, for the range was too far. Remus had leapt from his seat in the stands, dragging Sirius by the wrist down the rows, his long strides matching Sirius's running pace. Their hearts were in their throats, but as they neared the judge's stand, Sirius cried out, It's Harry. The judges turned to look at the two men running toward them in mild confusion, but Albus Dumbledore had risen from his seat, his blue eyes sharp and waiting. Harry's gone, Remus Lupin breathed as he arrived in front of Dumbledore. His scent, it's gone. Dumbledore didn't hesitate or question as he wordlessly cast a series of rapid Patronus charms, his phoenixes flying off over the hedge rows. It was as if Remus had delivered news that the headmaster had been expecting, and really, hadn't they all. Sirius's hands were claws, his face flitting between Remus's and Dumbledore's, his eyes wide, still in shock. Where'd he go? Did he get to the cup? 
Is that where he is? No one answered him. Remus was staring at the entrance to the dark maze with a face as pale as those around a full moon, but hard as stone. Sirius saw that Remus's chest was rising and falling just as rapidly as his own. Behind them, Ludo Bagman was speaking to Fudge. The winner will be announced soon. That's surely what's going on, Minister. It seemed to take ages, but it was really only moments before the figures of Professor McGonagall and Professor Moody came running from their stations surrounding the maze. Moody's wooden leg didn't seem to be slowing him down, and his electric eye was whirring in all directions. Sirius felt a surge of relief. Mad-Eye was here. He was the best of them. He would help them. Mad-Eye. Sirius shouted. But as Mad-Eye approached, Remus's nostrils flared and he suddenly lunged forward. His long fingers hooked on the front of Mad-Eye's robes and he spun them, slamming Mad-Eye's back into the judge's stand, leaning him over the table, leaving him prone as Remus towered over him, the veins and muscles in his hands flexing with uncontrolled strength. Madame Maxime cried in outrage. What is the meaning of this? But Sirius was watching Remus's wide nostrils, his brown eyes that were suddenly glinting almost yellow, his face that looked wild and wolfish. And Sirius suddenly felt it, something he had not felt since the war, something he could usually only sense as padfoot. It was electric and sharp like lightning bolts in a summer storm, but musky and laden with the scent of canine and pine, it called and summoned like the tide, celestial and primordial as the moon. It was Remus Lupin's untampered power, his magical essence, interwoven with the wolf within. Dumbledore sensed it too, Sirius knew, for suddenly Sirius felt another power growing, this time emanating from the older man. Polyjuice, Remus Lupin growled, his voice sounded deeper than Sirius had ever heard it and he moved one arm to press sideways across Mad-Eye's neck so he could free his other hand, reaching into Mad-Eye's robes and withdrawing a gnarled weather-beaten wooden hip flask. Without looking away from Mad-Eye, Remus handed the flask to Dumbledore. The judges were silent now and along with Sirius and Professor McGonagall, they all watched as Dumbledore popped the flask's lid open and took a sniff. Within a moment he had dropped it to the ground and withdrawn his wand, pointing it at Mad-Eye and it became abundantly clear to every single person within the vicinity why Albus Dumbledore was the only wizard Voldemort ever feared. Cold fury seemed to emanate from every pore of the ancient face, power radiating off of him like burning heat. Who are you? Dumbledore asked a man, who looked for all appearances, to be a Laster Moody. The man's normal eye was bulging almost as wide as his magical one, which was still spinning madly in its socket, and then he smiled and it was the most insane smile any of them had ever seen. It worked. The man croaked against Remus's arm pushing against his throat. Minerva, fetch Professor Snape, Dumbledore said curtly, his eyes and wand never leaving the exposed man still bent with his back over the judge's table, struggling helplessly against Remus's raw strength. Tell him to bring the strongest truth serum he possesses. Professor McGonagall turned and ran as Dumbledore wordlessly conjured cords that snaked their way over the would-be Mad-Eye's body. Remus stepped back as the binding cords replaced his grip on the man's neck, the man still smiling more madly than ever, his normal eye bulging and his twisted lips contorted. Remus turned to Dumbledore, seizing Sirius's hand as he did so. I just went into his mind, 
Remus's voice scraped like the hull of a ship against jagged rocks, his brown eyes still glinting yellow in the dark night. The werewolves, in the war, they taught me some of such power. I think I know where he sent Harry. Go, Dumbledore said, his own voice like thunder. And Sirius did not hesitate. In the next second, he was padfoot, and he was racing alongside Remus as they ran towards the Forbidden Forest, toward the closest boundary they knew of to Hogwarts's apparition wards. They arrived at the boundary, and Sirius transformed back as he and Remus withdrew their wands. Remus grabbed his wrist, taking Sirius' side along with him as he apparated them. They landed soundlessly by a small old stone church in almost complete darkness. Sirius whirled, seeking, but Remus had already grabbed his arm, putting one long finger to Sirius's lips, standing in front of Sirius's face. Those yellow and brown eyes were wide upon Sirius's face, and then Remus sidestepped and pointed into the foggy night. Sirius could just make out a moving figure, wearing black robes, the moonlight reflected on bone-white skin of a strange face. Remus moved silently forward, and Sirius followed him. Soon they were meandering around gravestones, still shielded by the darkness, and Sirius could hear the horrible figure speaking. You have been taught to duel Harry Potter. To his side, Remus motioned with his wand. Sirius would go right and Remus left, and they advanced silently forward, making their way to either side of a huge marble headstone. Harry Potter landed on his knees, his face pressed into Sirius's chest the smell of Sirius's robes filling his nostrils. Beside him, he heard Remus's soft movements, and Harry opened his bleary eyes, turning his head numbly, and watched as Remus Lupin lay the body of Cedric Diggory gently onto the grass. There were noises, a torrent of sound that Harry did not register, and darkness seemed to be gathering at the edges of Harry's vision, but Harry moved forward instinctually, Sirius moving with him keeping his arms around either side of Harry as if he were shielding him, but he could not shield him from this. Harry knelt over Cedric, using one hand to grip Cedric's robes, staring at the boy's body as the black spots in his vision grew larger and larger. And then there were two hands on his face, each warm as a heated blanket, and Harry was looking at Remus's face, who was leaning over Cedric, his long arms extended to Harry his uncle's face swimming in and out of focus. There was another figure crouching beside Remus, Albus Dumbledore, and Remus let go of Harry's face, moving back a bit away from Cedric so that Dumbledore could see. There were shadows of a large crowd of people pressing in around them. There were screams. For God's sake, Dumbledore, what's happened? The face of Cornelius Fudge appeared over Dumbledore's shoulder, his face white and appalled. He's back. Harry whispered. He's back. Voldemort. And Cedric. Harry muttered. He wanted me to bring his body back. We couldn't leave him. Not there. Sirius's arms wrapped around him, one hand on Harry's head, the other around his chest, and Harry felt like he had been running. For so long, he felt like he was back underwater, in the cold, dark lake. Let me through. A voice was shouting over the murmurs and the screams. Let me through and Amos Diggory was standing now beside Fudge and he was screaming. That's my son. That's my boy. He fell to his knees at Cedric's head, staring down at his son. That's my boy. Amos was screaming. No, no. And Harry fell back against his godfather, 
his own sobs muffled into Sirius's chest, and Sirius was murmuring, You're all right, you're all right. Over and over and then another body, warm and smelling faintly of pine in summer storms, was against them both, enveloping Sirius and Harry into his long arms, and Harry let himself be held as the darkness pulled him under, listening to their synchronized voices telling him over and over, You're, you're all right, right. You're, you're all right. right. Chapter 28 I must wake him, Dumbledore said softly. Sirius's head snapped away from his godson, lying asleep in the hospital wing. No, let him rest, Sirius said harshly from his position seated at Harry's right side. It had barely been half an hour since they had returned to Hogwarts. Madame Pomfrey had come running to the maze's entrance. The professors of Hogwarts shielded her as she conjured a shawl and stretcher for Cedric Diggory's body, which Professor Sprout and Mr. and Mrs. Diggory accompanied back towards the castle. Tears drying on her cheeks, Madame Pomfrey had come to the kneeling figures of Sirius Black and Remus Lupin, finding Harry Potter nestled within their arms, passed out from shock and exhaustion. She handed Remus the potion to help with Harry's shock and busied herself tending to Harry's injured leg as Remus gently opened the boy's mouth and poured the potion down his sleeping throat. Then she had conjured a stretcher for him, and watched as Remus and Sirius walked beside the sleeping son of James and Lily Potter up toward the castle. I need Harry to tell us how exactly Voldemort came to be reborn, Dumbledore said gently, and he waved his wand wordlessly over Harry's sleeping figure. Remus's heart tightened at the sight of Harry's peaceful face shifting, a pained expression taking over as Harry twitched and opened his green eyes. Hello, Harry, Remus whispered. Harry's head was facing toward the left side of his bed, the side where Remus was seated. Remus reached and squeezed Harry's hand with his own. Hello, Mooney, Harry whispered back. Behind his glasses, his usually bright green eyes seemed dim and distant. On Harry's other side, he felt Sirius move a hand to his right shoulder. Harry looked to his godfather's tightly drawn face. He could feel Sirius's hand shaking where he clasped Harry's shoulder. Hiya, pup, Sirius whispered, his voice hoarse. Hiya, Padfoot, Harry murmured. Harry, Albus Dumbledore spoke from where he stood at the foot of Harry's bed. You have shown bravery beyond anything I could have expected of you. I ask you to demonstrate your courage one more time. I ask you to tell us what happened. Harry took a deep breath, and then he began to tell them. As he spoke, visions of everything that had passed that night seemed to rise behind his eyes. He saw the sparkling surface of the potion that had revived Voldemort. He saw the Death Eaters apparating between the graves. He saw Cedric's body, lying on the ground beside the cup. Once or twice, Sirius made a noise as though about to say something, his hand tight and shaking on Harry's shoulder, but Remus stayed silent, his hand on Harry's warm and still. It was almost a relief to tell the story. Harry found that he felt as if something poisonous were being extracted from him. When Harry told of McNair piercing his arm with a dagger, Sirius let out a vehement exclamation and Dumbledore suddenly moved closer asking Harry to show them all the place where his robes had been torn and the cut beneath. He said my blood would make him stronger than if he'd used someone else's, Harry said. He said the protection my, that my mother left in me, that he'd have it too. 
And he was right, he could touch me without hurting himself, he touched my face. Sirius groaned and Remus squeezed Harry's hand softly, and for a fleeting instant, Harry thought he saw a gleam of something like triumph in Dumbledore's eyes. But the next second Harry was sure he imagined it for Dumbledore stepped back, looking as old and weary as Harry had ever seen him. Continue, please, Dumbledore said gently. Harry told them of Voldemort's speech to his Death Eaters, and then how McNair had untied him, and how Voldemort had made him prepared to duel, and the arrival of his guardians. But when Harry reached the part about the golden beam of light that had connected, he and Voldemort's wands, he found his throat obstructed. He could see Cedric emerging, his mother, his father. We saw it, Sirius said, breaking the silence. The wands connected, why? Dumbledore explained the nature of Priory Incantatum and how wands with the same core may force the other to regurgitate spells it had performed, in reverse. We saw the shadow of Cedric emerge from the wand, Sirius croaked. And James and Lily. Echoes which retained their appearance and character, Dumbledore said. These echoes, Harry, what did they do? And as Harry explained, he felt Sirius's head fall onto the bed beside him, and he turned to look at Remus finding Remus staring at him with tears in his eyes. Harry, you have shown bravery equal to those who died fighting Voldemort at the height of his powers. Now, I believe a sleeping potion and some rest are well in order, Dumbledore said quietly. I will be back to see you all as soon as I have met with Fudge. Dumbledore pulled back the screens around Harry's bed and Harry saw the figures of Ron, Hermione, Molly Weasley, Fred, George, Ginny, and Bill sitting in chairs across from his bed. Madame Pomfrey stepped nimbly through the open screen and came to stand by Remus, handing Harry a goblet full of a purple potion. It's a potion for dreamless sleep, she told Harry gently. Harry accepted it and then looked quickly to Remus. I'll tell them that you will speak to them when you wake up, Remus whispered. None of us will leave, I promise. Harry nodded and drank a few mouthfuls of the potion, and before he could say another word, he was carried off to sleep. Harry woke up to the sounds of distant voices in the hospital wing. He opened his eyes blearily. Padfoot was laying at the foot of Harry's bed, ears perked and head facing Remus, who stood, pulling back one of the screens. I told him you would never agree, Dumbledore, Professor McGonagall was shouting. I told him you would never let Dementors set foot inside the castle. As Minister of Magic it is my decision whether I wish to bring protection with me when interviewing a possibly dangerous. But Professor McGonagall was screaming. The moment the thing entered the room, it swapped down on Crouch and... and... Harry felt a chill in his stomach. At the foot of his bed, Padfoot whined. Remus, without turning away from looking out at what was happening beyond the curtains around Harry's bed reached a hand back and patted Padfoot gently on the head. By all accounts he is no loss, Fudge blustered. It seems he is responsible for several deaths. But he cannot now give testimony, Dumbledore said coldly. He cannot give evidence about why he killed those people. Why he killed them? He was a raving lunatic. From what Severus told me, he seems to have thought he was doing it on you-know-whose instructions. Lord Voldemort was giving him instructions, Cornelius, Dumbledore said. The deaths of Barty Crouch Sr. and Cedric Diggory were byproducts of a plan to restore Voldemort to full strength again. The plan succeeded. Voldemort has been restored to his body. 
you know who returned. Preposterous, come now, Dumbledore. Remus swept back the curtains around Harry's bed and Harry pushed himself up on his pillows as Patfoot whined, jumping off the bed and trotting along at Remus's heels as he strode toward where Fudge, Dumbledore, and McGonagall stood. Still seated around the bed across from Harry, Molly, Bill, Fred, George, Ginny, Ron, and Hermione were staring open-mouthed. It is true, Remus Lupin said. Harry, Sirius, and I saw him with our own eyes. Fudge blanched at the sight of Remus, taking a hasty step away from him. You are prepared to take Harry's word, and the word of the heir to the House of Black and that of a dark creature, on this, are you Dumbledore? The black dog swiftly transformed and Sirius Black was looming over Fudge, a growl deep in his chest. You ignorant abysmal bigoted fool, Sirius shouted. Take our memories. See for yourself. Memories can be tainted, Fudge shouted back, matching Sirius's anger. No less by a boy who has just seen such a madman murder his schoolmate, a man who spent twelve years among the Dementors. And whose fault was that? Sirius roared but Fudge wasn't looking at him. His white and red blotched face was screwed up in disgust as he stared at Remus. And the word of A of A. He couldn't seem to say the word. Such minds. He blubbered, looking away from Remus and back to Dumbledore. You are all determined to start a panic that will destabilize everything we have worked for these last thirteen years. Voldemort has returned, Remus said, his voice cold and quiet. The first and most essential step you must take, Dumbledore was saying, is to remove Azkaban from the control of the Dementors. They will not remain loyal to you, Fudge. Voldemort can offer them much more scope for their powers and their pleasures than you can. With the Dementors behind him, followed by his old supporters returned to him, you will be hard-pressed to stop him regaining the sort of power he had thirteen years ago. Fudge was opening and closing his mouth but no words seemed able to express his outrage. The second step you must take, Dumbledore pressed on, is to send envoys to the giants. Fudge yelped. What madness is this? First you take the word of a werewolf, now envoys to the giants. Sirius stepped toward Fudge, growling lowly, but Remus grabbed his arm, pulling him backward into Remus's side. Extend them the hand of friendship, now, before it is too late, Dumbledore was saying. Or Voldemort will persuade them, as he did before, that he alone among wizards will give them their rights and their freedoms. The same, very much, can be said of the werewolves. Fudge was gasping, stepping backward, shaking his head. If the magical community got wind that I had approached such creatures, people hate them Dumbledore, it would end my career. I count eleven people in this room who do not feel that way about such creatures. Minerva McGonagall snapped, stepping closer to Fudge, her eyebrows raised. Fudge's eyes flittered around the silent standing figures, from McGonagall, to Madame Pomfrey, to the seated narrow-eyed huddle of Molly, Bill, Fred, George, Ginny, Ron, and Hermione to Harry sitting upright in his bed, to Sirius's still growling frame, held tightly beside Remus, and then finally Dumbledore, Fudge's eyes skated over Remus as if he were not there. You, you cannot be serious, Fudge gawked. You are blinded, Dumbledore said, his voice rising. By the love of the office you hold, Cornelius, you place too much importance, and always have done, on the so-called purity of blood. You fail to recognize that it matters not what someone is born or what circumstances they are thrust into, but rather what they grow up to be. 
Your Dementor just destroyed the last remaining member of a pureblood family as old as any, and see what that man chose to make of his life. Fail to act, and history will remember you as the man who stepped aside and allowed Voldemort a second chance to destroy the world we have tried to rebuild. Insane, whispered Fudge, backing away. Mad. If your determination to shut your eyes will carry you as far as this, Cornelius. Dumbledore spoke into the silence. We have reached a parting of the ways. You must act as you see fit, and I shall act as I see fit. Fudge bristled as though Dumbledore had raised his wand at him. Now, see here Dumbledore. His face reddening once more. I've given you free reign. I've had a lot of respect for you. I might not have agreed with some of your decisions, but I said nothing. There aren't many who'd have let you decide what to teach your students without reference to the ministry, or keep Hagrid, or hire werewolves. That bloody werewolf employment decree was passed under your watch. Sirius bellowed, fighting against Remus's stronghold. But if you're going to work against me... Fudge shouted over Sirius. The only one against whom I intend to work, Dumbledore said, is Voldemort. If you are against him, then we remain, Cornelius, on the same side. Suddenly the door to the hospital wing swung open and Professor Snape billowed into the room, his face contorted with rage. I heard enough just now, he spat, striding straight for the Minister of Magic as he rolled up the left sleeve of his robes, sticking out his forearm and showing it to Fudge, who recoiled. There, Snape said harshly. The dark mark. It is not as clear as an hour ago or so when it burned black, but you can still see it. Every Death Eater had the sign burned into them by the Dark Lord. It is a means of distinguishing one another, and his means of summoning us to him. When he touched the dark mark of any Death Eater, we were to apparate instantly to his side. Why do you think Karkaroff fled tonight? We both felt the mark burn. Fudge stepped back from Snape too, shaking his head and looking repulsed. He looked up at Dumbledore. I don't know what any of you are playing at, but I have heard enough. I have no more to add. I will be in touch with you tomorrow, Dumbledore, to discuss the running of this school. I must return to the ministry. He crammed his bowler hat onto his head and walked out of the hospital wing, slamming the door behind him. The moment he had disappeared, Dumbledore turned to the crowd around him. There is work to be done, he said. Molly, am I right in thinking I can count on you and Arthur? Of course, you can. Molly Weasley said, her lips were white but her face was resolute. We know what fudge is. It's Arthur's fondness for muggles that's always held him up at the ministry all these years. Fudge thinks he lacks a proper wizarding pride. Then I need you to send a message to Arthur, Dumbledore said. All those that we can persuade of the truth must be notified immediately, and he is well placed to contact those at the ministry who are not as short-sighted as Cornelius. I'll go to Dad, Bill said standing up. I'll go now. Excellent, Dumbledore said. Tell him I will be in direct contact with him shortly. He will need to be discreet. If Fudge thinks I'm interfering at the ministry. Leave it to me, said Bill. He kissed his mother on the cheek, walked over to Harry and clapped him on the shoulder, and then pulled on his cloak, striding out of the room. Minerva, Dumbledore said, turning to Professor McGonagall. I want to see Hagrid in my office as soon as possible. And, if she will consent, Madam Maxim. Professor McGonagall nodded and left without a word. Now, it is time for three of our number to set aside their old differences and trust each other. Dumbledore was looking pointedly at Snape, Sirius, and Remus. Snape's attention turned to the two men, staring at them with the utmost loathing. 
Sirius was giving the look right back, while Remus seemed to be debating whether or not he should release his hold on Sirius's arms. I will settle in the short term, Dumbledore said with a bite of impatience. For a lack of open hostility, you will all shake hands, you are on the same side. Time is short, and unless the few of us who know the truth are united, there is no hope for any of us. Remus released his hold on Sirius. Very slowly, still glaring at one another, Snape and Sirius moved forward and shook hands. Dumbledore looked pointedly at Snape, then at Remus. Snape's lips seemed unable to frown any deeper, and his eyes were black flints as Remus extended his hand toward him. Snape let him wait a heartbeat, and everyone held their breath, before Snape finally shook Remus's hand. Now, I have work for each of you. Remus, your cottage in Wales is simply too far away for the summer. New arrangements must be made. You and Sirius may stay here at Hogwarts until tomorrow evening, and a few days in the cottage after the end of term will be enough time to come up with a new location for you all. In the meantime, you and Sirius must alert the old crowd, Arabella Fig, Mundungus Fletcher, Emmeline Vance, and so on. Remus and Sirius nodded, stepping back towards Harry's bed, their brows furrowed in thought. Severus, Dumbledore said, turning to Snape. You know what I must ask you to do. If you are ready, if you are prepared. I am, Snape said. He looked slightly paler than usual, and his black eyes glinted oddly. Then good luck, said Dumbledore, and he watched with a trace of apprehension on his face as Snape went wordlessly out of the room. Dumbledore turned back to the remaining group. I must go and see the diggeries. Harry, please take the rest of your potion. I will see all of you later. Dumbledore left quietly. Sirius and Remus were now in their seats again on either side of Harry, looking weary and thoughtful. Molly, Hermione, Ron, Fred, George, and Ginny were watching them in silence. You've got to take the rest of your potion, Harry, Molly said at last, coming to stand beside Remus's chair. You have a good long sleep. Try and think about something else for a while. Think about what you're going to buy with your winnings. I don't want the gold, Harry said in an expressionless voice that caused Sirius and Remus to look up at him. You have it. Anyone can have it. I shouldn't have won it. It should have been Cedric's. It wasn't your fault, Harry, Remus said softly. I told him to take the cup with me, Harry said, feeling a burning in his eyes in his throat. He wished his friends would look away. Molly Weasley bent down and put her arms around Harry, hugging him like a mother. When she released him, Sirius and Remus's hands found their way to Harry's arms once more, and Remus said gently, Your potion, Harry. Harry drank it in one gulp and fell back onto his pillows, and thought no more. Chapter 29 Sirius and Remus sat on either side of Harry the next morning as Harry met with the Diggies. Harry Potter's guardians had not slept. As soon as Harry had fallen asleep, under the watchful eye of Madame Pomfrey and Molly Weasley, they had gone to the Auri, sending carefully coded messages to the former members of the Order. They barely spoke aloud, but kept the other in their line of sight at all times, sitting with their knees touching as they wrote letter after letter, merely whispering to one another the name of the person they would next be contacting so that the other knew. At sunrise they returned to the hospital wing, to Harry's side, and walked with him to see the parents of Cedric Diggory. 
They did not blame Harry for what had happened, and they thanked them all for bringing back Cedric's body. Mr. Diggory sobbed the entire time, but Mrs. Diggory seemed to be beyond tears. He suffered very little then, she said after Harry had told her of how Cedric had died. And after all, he died just when he had won the tournament. He must have been happy. They refused to take Harry's winnings. Harry went with Ron and Hermione up to Gryffindor Tower to pack their things. Hedwig was waiting on Harry's bed with a letter in her claw. Harry, you did as much as your father would have done, and I can't give you no more higher praise than that. I knew he was going to come back. It had to happen. Well, now it has, and we'll just have to get on with it. We'll fight. What's coming will come, and we'll meet it when it does. Hagrid. The leaving feast that night was different than any other feast Harry had seen at Hogwarts. There were black drapes on the wall behind the teacher's table. The real Mad-Eye Moody was sitting at the high table now, looking extremely twitchy. Sirius and Remus sat at the very far end, deep in conversation with Professor McGonagall. Professor Karkaroff's chair was empty, and Harry wondered where he was, and if Voldemort had caught up to him. Madame Maxime and Hagrid were sitting side by side, talking quietly. Snape was there too, looking as unpleasant as ever, but his eyes locked on Harry for a moment, and suddenly his expression was difficult to read. Professor Dumbledore stood up at the high table and the great hall, already rather muted, went silent. The end of another year, Dumbledore said, looking around at them all. But then his eyes lingered on the Hufflepuff table. There is much that I would like to say to you all tonight, said Dumbledore. But I must first acknowledge the loss of a very fine person who should be sitting here. He gestured toward the Hufflepuffs. Enjoying our feast with us. I would like you all, please, to stand and raise your glasses to Cedric Diggory. They all did. The benches scraped back and everyone in the hall stood and raised their goblets and echoed. Cedric Diggory. Once they were all seated again, Dumbledore spoke. Cedric was a person who exemplified many of the qualities that distinguish Hufflepuff House. He was a good and loyal friend. He was exceptionally hardworking and infinitely fair-minded. His death has affected you all, whether you knew him well or not. I think that you have a right, therefore, to know exactly how he died. Cedric Diggory was murdered by Lord Voldemort. A panicked whisper swept the hall. People were staring at Dumbledore in disbelief and horror. The Ministry of Magic, Dumbledore continued, does not wish me to tell you this. It is possible that some of your parents will be horrified that I have done so. It is my belief, however, that the truth is generally preferable to lies, and that any attempt to pretend that Cedric died as a result of an accident or at some other's hand is an insult to his memory. The pain of this dreadful loss reminds us that while we may come from different places and speak in different tongues, our hearts beat as one. The bonds of friendship and understanding that we've made this year are now more important than ever before. We are only strong as we are united, as weak as we are divided. Remember Cedric. Remember if the time should come when you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy. Remember what happened to a boy who was good and kind and brave and true, because he strayed across the path of Lord Voldemort. Remember Cedric Diggory. The sky was a cloudless blue the next morning as the students piled onto the Hogwarts Express, Remus and Sirius again riding in the back compartment. Harry, Ron, Hermione, Ginny, 
Fred, George, and Neville found a compartment to themselves and spent the train ride playing Exploding Snap. As they arrived at King's Cross, Molly greeted them all, pulling Harry in tight for a hug and whispered in his ear. See you soon, Harry. See you, Harry, Ron said, patting him on the back. Bye, Harry, Hermione said, doing something she had never done before and kissing him on the cheek. She looked up at Remus and Sirius, who had joined the group. By Sirius. By Remus. They waved kindly at her, and she went through the barrier to meet her parents. The rest of the group followed suit and waved goodbye to the Weasleys, and soon Harry, Sirius, and Remus were standing at the exit of King's Cross Station in the warm sunny summer air. They walked towards the car park and then Remus stopped behind a concrete column. To Hope's Cottage, Remus asked Harry softly. To Hope's Cottage? Harry said. Sirius reached for both of their hands, holding onto them tight, and Remus Lupin apparated Harry Potter and Sirius Black back to his boyhood home. Finite. Thanks for listening to this text-to-speech podfic composed by Burning Aurora.